to the bomb hole. It's going to be very hot. It's going to be very uncomfortable for everybody. The bomb gonna slide down in big hills, you know what I mean, on the big, nice, burgundy snowboard. All right, welcome to the bomb hole, which is presented by Pub Beer. We got a big one today, but first things first, Stony Buds, how are we doing? So good, my dog. Love it. To my left, we have Travis Rice in the booth. Travis, how are you doing? Hallelujah. Beautiful day <laughs> in the grid. Wow, yeah, he refers to Salt Lake as the grid. It's, it might good, catch on. Yeah, that's a good thing. It's a big grid. It's a grid system. Uh, for our listeners that don't know who Travis Rice is, which may be zero people listening, uh, I'm going to give you guys a brief little book report on him. Uh, Travis is arguably the most influential snowboarder who has ever lived. His impact on the culture is unmatched and transcends generations. He's dominated the competitive snowboarding scene from X Games to US Open to Arctic Challenge. He's filmed over 28 video parts. He's quarterbacked the biggest video projects that snowboarding has ever seen with Art of Flight, That's It, That's All, Fourth Face, and more. He's progressed the competition side of snowboarding with Natural Selection Tour. He's pushed the boundaries of backcountry snowboarding to levels seemingly unimaginable. His list of accolades could go on forever. He's seen it all, done it all, but today we got the big dog, T. Rice, in the booth. Let's do this. Let's do this banter marathon, Travis. Uh, kind words. Kind words. <laughs> you, you know, to, to hear you go through that, I literally just see like hundreds of faces mm-hmm. of all the people that have been a part of every one of those things. It's been a great journey, I'm sure. Uh, first things first, you know, before we, we uh, you know, get into it, I was talking to Travis off air. And he's like, you know, I was like, where do we want to go with this thing? He's like, you know, I kind of want to get into some substance. I want to go deep. So I, I figured, what's the deepest question I can ask Travis? And I'm going to ask, we're going to start with the deepest question we may have ever asked on the show. So let's, let's start off with Travis. What is the meaning of life? <laughs> <laughs> what is the meaning of life? Uh, well, shit, what's the... Uh What's the Mike Tyson quote? Everyone comes in here with a plan until you get punched in the face. <laughs> <laughs> That's a great quote. It is a great quote. Dude, what is the meaning of life? Um, I don't know. Like, we're, we're all still, I think we're all kind of trying to figure that out. I think the meaning of life is uh, the opportunity to, to experience what it's like to be separate. Coming in, having this, uh, you know, separation, this individuality that we all get to play with, you know, create the world that, that we want to live in. Heaven and hell, like that's of our own making. And this beautiful opportunity, because I think our natural state is um, in a, a sort of oneness, if you will, uh, collective universal consciousness, and this beautiful opportunity to come into classroom earth and experience what it's like to be, to be separate, to have duality, to have ego, to, you know, go through life on, you know, journey, helping others with their karmic path, figuring out, you know, our remembrance of who our true divinity, our incredible multidimensional beings really are. And, um, yeah, it's, it's, a, it's something that we all graciously signed up for, came into this with a full willingness to go headlong into the unknown of, of existence. So happy to be here with you guys. (laughs) 
Did you? Did he know that question <laughs> no, was coming? No, he didn't. He, didn't. he was not Jeez. briefed on that. No. Wow, dude. Wow. Uh, I think that may have been the most eloquent answer we have ever had on this entire show. For the hardest question. And it was the question number one. So this should be a good show. (laughs) Uh, We're going to start things off with a guest question from none other than Jamie Lynn. Here we go. Hey, Travis. It's Jamie. I have a quick question for you. What was it like growing up in Jackson Hole as a young kid? And who were your early inspirations in snowboarding? What an honor, man, kicking this off with Mr. Lin. Dude, that guy, such a, such a unicorn. Such an amazing human. Like, that guy, exactly, you know, the first question, what's the meaning of life? Like, you know, you see and you witness, like, what he's gone through from the outside. Um, not really knowing what it's, what it's like, you know, to go through what he's, he's been through, but seeing someone, you know, choose, choose love, choose like the beautiful existence he's now a father with an amazing woman and the like the amount of people that that guy's touched and influenced over the years anyways rock and roll jamie um dude early influences yeah growing up in jackson hole was uh you know (laughs) pre uh pre-modern era you know we always had this this thing in jackson about how you know we were like oh we're always 15 years behind the curve that's just how it is and, you know, I grew up uh, as a ski patrol kid. My dad was on the ski patrol. And you know, I grew up on skis, grew up on the mountain. Um, you know, when I first started seeing snowboarding, it was this, you know, pretty funny, you know, some hard boots, some carving, you know, early gear, right? I was a kid, you know, seeing like the couple rogue snowboarders that were on Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. And, you know, it was, it was interesting. Uh, you know, you weren't necessarily seeing like the, the, the best side, right? Like it wasn't this cultural um, thing that, you know, was probably happening like in California. But the minute that, you know, it started to influence into like features getting built. And I remember, I don't know, probably being like nine or 10 or something and rolling into this little, um, you know, rogue area in the mountain where, you know, the resort let some people build some features. And there was like a big kind of like two hit kind of quarter pipe, half pipe thing. And I just remember, you know, rolling on, rolling up that tranny, you know, on skis and just being like, this is amazing. And then, you know, and then a couple years later, um, Pat Gilday, an epic, epic friend of mine who had moved from Seattle to Jackson. Um, he, uh, you know, I think he kind of, he snowboarded and I, I always wanted to try it. And I think when I was 12, got to finally try it out and, um. And that was it, man. I, not out of spite or anything. I actually have I've had a pair of skis for the last couple of years in bindings. I just haven't gone and mounted them up because I just have too much damn fun snowboarding still. But that was literally the last time I skied. And so, you know, for me, it was first the, the act of, like, learning it, going, you know, my sister and I both, like, one spring, just, you know, got a couple days, some rental gear, tried it out you know, connected, connected the turn. I think that was it for me. Like, you know, I, I was such a good skier. You know, I felt like I could do anything I wanted on skis, but it was almost like kind of getting boring because it was like old ski tech, right? Like new radial, radial skis hadn't, hadn't come to age yet. And, um, connecting those first couple turns and, you know, then fast forward, like the following season and whatnot, like, the fact that turning on a just 
you know, garbage day, you know, hard pack day, hadn't snowed in weeks. That was fun. And on skis, it was only when it was like a super deep pow, pow day that I was like, yes. Um, and so once I started skiing, or sorry, once I started snowboarding, um, you know, then I started to understand the culture. I started to learn and like ingest snowboard media, the mags, the videos, um, you know, this little crew that formed um, with my buddy Pat and a few other guys, um, dude, Eric Risland, Kellen Ryman. We had, we had a solid, solid crew. Um, you know, then it was like headlong into the culture. And, you know, the boardroom in Jackson Hall was like the board shop that rented all the movies. And, you know, you roll in, rent out a, rent out a VHS tape, and, you know, it, whatever. It was a gateway drug. Um, and then being in Jackson, you know, for me, like I, I knew about these other you know, pros that were out there. But, you know, for me in Jackson, it was like, it was Lance Pittman. It was Brian Agucci, Rob Kingwell, Brody Dowell. Um, you know, those were, those were the guys who I, I looked up to. Solid. So what did it look like for you coming up? Because it seems like you're 12, and then, you know, your, trend, you, your first video part's trans, Transcendence with Absinthe. What was the gap? to get there. I want to know the arc of the career from getting sponsored, things of that nature. Yeah, man, it was, uh, it's, it's, it feels like a lifetime, that transition, you know, but in all reality is, I don't know, it was like six, seven years. Um, you know, a couple years of riding and trying to get fluent in the language of, of the mountain on a snowboard. Um, and, you know, rolling into high school, um, we had a pretty, you know, we, like I said, we had a pretty solid like snowboard crew and, um, my favorite class in high school was TV production and, you know, doing the school news was, was the best class. Just trying to like walk the line with like trying to be serious enough to not get like booted or slapped on the wrist, <laughs> but you know, cheeky enough, like you could make everyone laugh that morning in the entire school through like your stupid news stories or whatever you were doing. That was the best. Um, Tom Neneman, he, uh, such a great teacher. So he let us check out the freaking shoulder mount cameras. And so we would always check out the, you know, took the class so we could check the cameras out. And then, you know, we'd hike up into the, into the, you know, side country or off the highway, go build jumps and just go <laughs> shoot, you know, put together like a little, uh, put together early, you know, sponsor me, sponsor me videos and stuff. Um, and so it was, you know, what it looked like was, so we had a snowboard team in Jackson. Um, you know, some great, great coaches, Troy Kindred, Dan Adams. Dan Adams was a coach of mine. Uh, dude, give that guy some love. Um, he's also like one of the best snowmobilers in the world. Dan Adams. He's Respect. like full sled neck. But, uh, you know, having those guys <laughs> travel with us, you know, do some like regional events, right? Started doing some, some like regional contests. And then, you know, pretty soon I um, actually got to go to some like nationals competitions. And for some of those events, I had to, I had to travel like either by myself or I would like, you know, made friends, you know, quick networking and snowboarding, but made friends with like the steamboat snowboard team 
or the Sun Valley snowboard team. Um, like those are two teams I got to travel with. And yeah, you know, I never did great, but I did pretty good. And more than anything, it was just, it was such a fun time to be doing, you know, competitive snowboarding. Cause you'd go to like nationals and it was like, so action packed. You'd do, you'd ride pipe, you'd ride slope style and you'd do border cross. And border cross was the shit because all the freestyles did border cross. <laughs> so it was, you know, people trying to do tricks and, you know, everyone did everything. It, it, it was super fun. And then, you know, making inroads with like the whole East Coast, you know, squad at that time, my age, like what later, you know, became solidified as like the grenade crew. Um, There's just a lot of great people. Um, you know, and again, I uh, never did great, but did good enough that, um, you know, I got on like junior nationals, um, went like went and did a couple years in Europe and got to meet like a bunch of the Europeans. Like um, that time, I remember, you know, meeting like Heike Sorsa, riding pipe in Germany. Um, and it was just epic networking. Traveled with, hanging with like the, the BC junior team, like Jonas Gwynn and that whole squad. Um, and so that, you know, that was all super fun. I was, I was doing it, you know, alongside going to high school. And, um, you know, I was able to graduate early from high school, which was kind of a big deal because I was looking to, you know, give it a shot. I mean, it was snowboarding had become such a passion of mine. And, you know, it, it was we didn't really have like good park and pipe in Jackson. And so the only time I got to go ride like Great Park was when we'd go to these, you know, go and travel and go ride other places. And so for me, it was like that. That's what I wanted to do get to go ride the park in Breck, get to go down to Mammoth, um, Okemo, Stratton. Um, and I definitely don't want to miss the, uh, you know, getting to be exposed to the U.S. Open at a young age. I, I traveled with Dan Adams and my mom probably when I was like 17, went out there for two years to watch the U.S. Open, which was, I don't know, the greatest event in snowboarding at the time. And just the vibe on the East Coast was like the first year I was there um, watching was I think the last year that they had it on the, um, was it Sunshine Village? And then there's like the backside of Stratton. Mm -hmm. And so they had it on the front side. And at the end of that, like they, were, they basically said that it was like a riot after I think like the pipe event maybe. You know, people were just, I don't know, thousands of people like throwing bottles and everyone's freaking wasted and like shit's getting broken. And then the next year was when they moved it to the backside and brought in the National Guard and like it was a big <laughs> deal. Um, but going to that event and seeing what was happening and the freaking flavor of the culture that was happening at the U.S. Open at that time. And I went to, and I got in because it's an open event. I got in, I got to do the big air event. Um, pipe event. I didn't make it through, but getting to even hit a jump of that caliber. And um, I think one of my favorite memories from from that was um, poaching the U.S. Open Big Air, which for me at the time was like, you know. So it's nighttime is when the finals of that thing rolls in. And, you know, I, I hadn't made it through uh, into it. You know, it was my first time there. And um, my buddy Dan 
the coach, right? Um, you know, I was like, hey, man, I want to go poach it. And they're like, oh, I don't know, man. Oh, that's a good idea. Like, yeah. I'm like, dude, I'm doing it. I got to go poach this thing. That's like, I hear what that's what you do at the open. You go poach shit. Um, and so I remember, you know, cruising up to the bottom of the big air jump, had my snowboard, my gear, and then like walking into the woods and then just like hearing, you know, bridges or whoever was announcing that, you know, I'm like trudging through freaking East Coast, just dense brush, walking up through the trees, just, you know, hearing it, and then kind of getting up there and strapping in in the forest and looking out, trying to like pick the good window. And yeah, finally, you know, and it was like, all right, I'm poaching this. I better not do something stupid. Like, all right. I was like, I'm, I'm trying to fucking double backflip. <laughs> and I hadn't landed one. I'd tried it a few times in like powder jumps up on the pass in Jackson. And, um, you know, in the forest, freaking strap in. Finally, like the window comes and, you know, traverse out of the forest into the end run of this thing. And I'm rolling into it. And I just hear like, we have poacher on course. <laughs> Like, <laughs> Ricky hit the jump, just go, like, get the melon, and like two times around, spot the landing, stomped, rode into the audience. And I was so jacked up and thinking that, you know, like I could actually get in trouble or something. So I like unstrapped my board and just ran into the crowd. I was fucking gone. <laughs> I mean, in hindsight, I was like, I should have soaked it up a little bit. <laughs> um, but coming back from the from that from the open, like that was the first time for me where I was like, I want to give this a shot. I want to like really give this a try. Um, yeah, unbelievable to think <laughs> of. Uh, how old are you at this time? I was probably. Is that what you said? Yeah, I was seventeen or eighteen. The amount of like piss and vinegar in a seventeen-year-old Travis Rice to stomp a double back like, you out the woods because you're you still got it at this age. <laughs> yeah, like I can only imagine. So there's a lot of that's a phenomenal story, by the way. Um, I didn't know that's why they moved it from the front to the back was just because it got too oh. wild. That yeah, makes it was, sense, it was a, yeah, it was like this. All right, the derelicts are going like into the yeah. back. Yeah, the <laughs> amount of heavy drinking at the U.S. Open in the early so anyone days. Anyone could walk up to it. Yeah, it was unbelievable. So. Uh, you know, I don't know if this is out of line or out of out of uh, chronological order, but I just want to get right into it because there's all this folklore of the super park, this super, your your super park experience. There's all these rumors of like limos and poaching, and I've I've heard it from a different. I want to hear right out of the horse's mouth of this <laughs> super park experience. Is this mammoth too? What super park? Yeah, mammoth. Um, the. the yeah. So long story short, um, you know, being in Jackson, uh, you know, Gooch and I think Pittman and Rich Goodwin, who, uh, you know, one of my uh, early role models in life. Rich Goodwin, if you don't know him, goes by uh, Dr. Goodspin, Richie Beats. He's got a lot of nicknames, but Legend. he's a he was a filmer for Absinthe. And uh, he you know, had been working, filming with Gooch and Pittman and a bunch of the guys up in Jackson and Super Park was happening, and you know I had graduated early from school, and so it was like that was my spring. You know I promised my mom I was going to university the next year, um, and so yeah, it was going. All these guys were going down. It was like the freaking session of all sessions. I think there was like over a hundred riders that year, and I didn't have an invite. And you know Gooch and those guys were like, dude, just come with us, roll. Just, We'll figure it out. Just come down and poach it if you have to. I was like, all right. So road trip, you know, with the squad down to Mammoth. 
get there. And the day before, I think, with, you know, Gooch's and Rich's good graces, Talk Bridges ended up letting me in. And they had the most incredible park set up there, especially that year. So many features. Um, and it was just the week of weeks, like great weather, classic, like mammoth spring. Um, and I just, I gave it everything I had. And at the beginning of the week, um, Rich had hit up Justin Hosnick from Absinthe and was like, hey, you know, can I please burn some film on this kid? And, you know, back when, dude, film's expensive. Like, you know, you basically, I think it was what, 300 bucks per three minutes or something, something like that. And then that doesn't include cost to like transfer the film and everything. So, you know, it's, it's a real deal to like burn, burn film on someone. So Rich shot with me all week. Um, and I think I wrote, I wrote good enough throughout the entirety of the week that I got tapped on the last day, like from Bridges, like, hey, you want to come up for the night shoot or for the sunset shoot? And I was like, yes, you know I do. <laughs> and so last day, um, we rolled up and you'd kind of like, you know, transitioned across a lot of the features. Like there was an epic hip feature and in the front, there was some, you know, transition features, some jumps, but um, the last day was in kind of the biggest features, which was, it was like a big um, frontside hip for a goofy. And then there was, and that's kind of where like the main session was going on. I just remember, I think Abe Teeter got the cover um, from that session. Just still picture in my head, like like no one still to this day can tweak it like Abe Teeter. That guy's got so much strength, <laughs> just so much. <laughs> and he rode stiff boards too, but he made those things look like noodles. Um, and so anyways, we went up and we sessioned that frontside hip and the chairlift went right over this, um, you know, frankly, pretty poorly built <laughs> jump. It was actually, it was a hip that they rolled off the knuckle um, like a landing. And so it was this pretty tight transition um, jump and all week, you know, you, the chairlift goes right over it. And all week, you know, looking at it like, fuck, I think it's possible. Is it possible? I don't know. Maybe it's possible. Uh, you know, no, you know, people were hitting it as a hit, but no one had stepped to the, to the, it was the biggest jump. And so, you know, that was like, it was the time. It was like, all right, if you're ever going to try this thing, like now's the time. And, um, there was one other rider who cannot remember his name, um, who was up there and we kind of were both eyeing it up and, you know, we were talking about it and we kind of did like a couple like warm ups into it and, um, I actually remember he's a, he guineaed it, and he came up short. Came up like I don't know ten feet short, and was basically carted off, like he was done. Um, so I was like, all right, well, better fucking go a little higher than him on the drop in. And you know, it was just one of those times where it's like it's now or never. And um, yeah, hit it. I think first hit. I think I did a. Can't remember if I straight. I think I did a back three or something, and you know, so much compression. I mean, it was a poorly built jump, <laughs> uh, but made it over. Hit tranny. I was like, oh my god, it's on, and so went back up and like the the, the kind of session kind of transitioned from, you know, what everyone's hitting on this far side, and 
you know, Rich and, and Hosnick even was up there and he's like, oh, I'm gonna, let me go get, let me go find a great spot. And, you know, he got in a position, the sun was setting, the light was freaking magic. And, um, and, you know, funny enough, I actually bumped into, um, this rider in the airport, like about a year ago. And he totally reminded me of like a, a pretty sweet detail that I had forgot. He was like, I was sitting next to Peter Line, and you came down and you ollied over the tail of his board on the intro, on the entry into that. I was like, what? Like, oh yeah, I guess I kind of do remember it. Um, you know, and it was like, it wasn't a fuck you. It was like, yeah, fucking Peter Line sitting right there. Hell yeah, it was, it was a, meant to be a high five, right? Um, so I roll in and, you know, the, the, the trickiest thing I, I felt like I could do over it was a backside rodeo. Love that trick. Um, and it was a trick that I chose because I felt like you could take such a compression and then still initiate like the backside rodeo because it was just, you got so G'd out. And yeah, hit it, back rodeo, stomped it, rode away. I think I did a back, backside 180 over it too. Mm -hmm. and, and yeah, I was like so high on life after that. It's like double backflipping the U.S. Open <laughs> <laughs> jump. Um, but yeah, it was just, it was epic, you know, and then later got named VIP of Super Park. And that, to answer your first question, was when um, Hosnick, after that session, and it's like end of April, was like, hey, you want to try to come and film a part for our film? I was like, yeah, but winter's over. He's like, I know a spot. I know a place where you can go up and you can ride till June. It's in Alaska. And I'm willing to send Rich up there. Just be you and Rich. <laughs> First time to Alaska for both of us. Hail Mary, go, go try to put a part together. I was like, all right. Obviously the answer is yes. And then, yeah, that turned out to be transcendent. But do you know what year Super Park that was? Uh, yeah, that was that was 2001. 2001. Okay, so like... Yeah, because I so just... Oh, no, after that, I yeah graduated that from also, So we'll, we got to talk transcendence because that part's unbelievable. Uh, but did you also do like a lawn dart and chug a beer at that Super Park? Because <laughs> yeah, I remember <laughs> having the magazine as a kid... And there was like a, it's like, I don't remember if it was a, I think it was a sequence. I don't know if it was a sequence or a still, but it's him lawn darting, taking a sip of a beer and then finishing the flip. <laughs> right? Yeah. Yeah. So I had that as a kid, I remember. But uh, so, so what I'm wondering before we get into transcendence is like that back rodeo, you, you clearly demonstrate unbelievable air awareness. Like you kind of, you pop it, you pop it slow. And then you even kind of open up and know you know where you're at in the air all the time, like the lawn dart to like beer chug to late flip. You just seem to be very comfortable on these massive jackers. So, how did you acquire such great air awareness? Um, you know, probably through a lot of things. Like when I was a little kid, like I was doing gymnastics, um, jumping on trampolines. I mean, jumping on trampolines, I just listened to Bodie's episode the other day. And I mean, to a T, it's like you want to get comfortable in, you know, three-dimensional space, being able to be able to cat out of shit, like you got to spend time doing it. You got to get fluent in that language. Um, yeah, I think just being able to know where your body is in space. And I mean, I love the looseness of, of snowboarding. And uh, 
you got you got to have some cat like reflexes survival more than anything like you got to know how to tuck and roll tumbling <laughs> like keep that inertia going you get hurt when your inertia freaking stops but if you can keep that shit just moving uh, that's how you survive a big part of being a good snowboarder is being good at falling no Chris, you never had the trampoline experience no, no. As a kid, huh? I, as you can tell, <laughs> Bodie would I wasn't going to say that. Bodie would roast me. He'd be like, yeah, you uh, you should maybe like do some air awareness stuff, Chris. You're Get like, on a tramp. Try a front bit. seven, like land on my back. And you're like, okay, all right, sounds good. Uh, well, well, I mean, like being able to crash, that's, um, I mean, that literally is like my, my, my superpower is like, I'm a good snowboarder, but I'm super good at being able to take a beating and get up. The superpower that is a superpower, geez. So, the first video part transcendence, absent, unbelievable part. So, basically, you went from relatively unknown to T Ricky's on the scene like overnight, pretty much, right? In that one year, uh, yeah, how was that experience? Did you get sponsors? What did it look like after transcendent come down and super park? Did everything change for you? I mean, yeah, it was a, I think, going up on that trip, like the. The Super Park MVP and then invited to go up. You know, I came back from Alaska and was like, Mom, I love you. Please just bear with me. I'm taking a gap year. I got to see this thing through. I got to just see where this thread, you know, where, where this thing goes. And so, you know, she being such a lovely human, you know, her and my father both was pretty supportive of it. Becky Rice. Sweet Becky. Um, and so, you know, I had nothing really changed after the Super Park thing, the sponsors. You know, early on, it was like Rosignol was my first sponsor because uh, a buddy of mine's dad was like the local rep in Jackson. And um, I think, you know, I'd done okay in some like regional events. And, you know, at the time, it was like, you know, he hit me up. He's like, oh, we'll get you aboard. I'm like, sweet. I remember I got a mechanical pencil and I got like a little plastic change tray and a snowboard from Rosnall. And I was like, sick, I got a free board. Awesome, you know? And then Oakley was an early, early sponsor as well, which Gus Buckner, I don't know. Some people know Gus Buckner. That, that guy is a legendary human. You want a good follow on the gram? You're looking for some positivity in your life? Follow Gus Buckner. He's got a beautiful book out too. But he was the team manager, and he was spending time up in Jackson with Gooch and with that crew, and I had kind of gotten linked up and gotten on floor with Oakley. So, you know, after Transcendence, uh, filming of it, you know, i sure I spent a bunch of time in Hood, like riding in the summertime. I spent so much time riding in the summertime. Hood, I, I actually went to Camp of Champs for two years up in Whistler, um, which was most incredible. My, my buddy Eric Rislin and I went up for two summers, Camp of Champs, and the vibe up in Whistler going out. That was like my first time. I was probably 16 or something rolling up there, and the uh, unsupervised like antics that was going on up there was incredible. And so riding summer was a big deal, and riding summer in um, Whistler, and then that summer after Transcendence, I probably – lived at Mount Hood for like six, seven weeks. Um, so whatever, kind of a tangent, but, um, 
I went into the next season pretty hungry. You know, I was like, all right, like signed up for the Vans Triple Crown. And um, that, f- that fall going down to like the premiere of Transcendence was, was super comical. Never been to a, you know, legit film premiere. Was so fired up. And, you know, I think I had like a fake ID that I made myself because Wyoming licenses were such a joke. You can just laminate it. Um, and so I was so psyched on being there for the premiere. Didn't know like what footage came out in Transcendence, right? And went running down the street. Um, I was like, all right, I'm going to go get some money out from the ATM. I'm going to buy you guys some drinks. This is going to be awesome. You know, of course, ATM's like three blocks down. I'm like, shit, running down, get money, come back, go to the bar, get some drinks. Like walk in and I'm like, oh, movie's already started. Roll down the, the hall, you know, the hallway, find my little crew, sit down, and they all just get up and hug me. They're like, yes. I'm like, what? They're like, what do you mean? Did you see your part? And I was like, what? <laughs> no. They're like, dude, you got opening part. I was like, oh, damn it. Didn't get to see it. And then it was like weeks <laughs> until I actually got to see it. Um, but yeah, that I think that something, something changed mentally after that part. I was all in. So same year as Blacklight, too? Yeah. Because yeah. I had that video as a kid. Great vid. Yeah, Blacklight. man. Blacklight. Who he, produced that one? Uh, I think it was like a, a standard movie. It was an offshoot uh, of standard. Offshoot yeah. of standard. Okay. And he was, he's wearing like a like a, a afro, uh, and he's playing basketball. Yep. Yeah. Great so, part. So basically what had happened was Rich Goodwin, um, I got to go do some shooting like in Jackson and stuff, filming for – uh, absinthe, but I, I had more footage than they used, and so they they were kind enough to put it in blacklight. Like I didn't even know I was going to really have a part in blacklight. And the best part was Rich, you know, a filmer. He had submitted all of his tapes, and he had shot a skit with Cutter, our you know amazing human in Jackson, Cut Lawat DJ, um, and he and <laughs> he had shot this whole skit of him like hooping. Like, boom, boom, you know, looking so good. And and they didn't really know me. Uh, you know, they're putting together the Blacklight film. They just assumed that that was me. <laughs> and so I had a full stunt double intro. It was not me. <laughs> just flossing, shooting hoops. Cutter, Cutter made me look real good in Blacklight. But that was definitely not me. Oh, that wasn't you. you. No. You can't tell because so it's like, I, I assume that was you. That is an amazing story. Yeah, that's yeah. a good story right there. Are All you right. still on your gap year then? I'm still on my gap year. Nice. <laughs> My mom knows. I'm, I'm, I'm still going. <laughs> One thing we kind of breezed over, but I don't know if, if it came through and when you're talking, but the back rodeo that you did was very, very monumental in that time in snowboarding. It was like, a, I don't want to say an Ingmar backside air, but it, w- it was like a significant change in, in like going huge in, in that period of snowboarding. I just want to kind of highlight that for if, if that didn't come across, right? I appreciate it, man. Yeah, that was a big ass jump. I think it was like 120 feet or something in the knuckle. Well, they didn't. They don't make uh, super parks over, but at those early super parks, the jumps were way bigger than the end super parks. Yeah, they were like beasts. They well, kind of turned to sorta parks. Yeah, they turned into like well, so many people. <laughs> you'd go to super park and eight people would be riding the jumps out of the hundred that were there. Mm-hmm. So they ended up being like, well, we got to get more people. But those early ones, it was just like the bosses came out. Well, yeah, I mean, I, I think I remember back to um, like a couple super parks before that that I wasn't at, but you remember the jump called the Berserker? Yeah, mm-hmm. the Berserker, Kurt Wastel. Kurt Wastel, backside three, and 
That was a big boy. And it was still just experimental. Like the park builders was like, how big, uh, how big can we make these jumps? Like what, what do we do here? Yeah. (laughs) Um, you know, stuff's been like through all of those kind of, you know, trial and error periods. And now, and now builders are just making like perfect jumps that, yeah, 70 feet, 80 feet. Like that's as big as they get. I remember one super park, it was like you and Breezy in a helicopter and there was all like transfer jumps. The channel gaps. They were humongous. Mm. Mm-hmm. Those guys were going like as big as you can go on park jumps. It was amazing. <laughs> With a heli flying around. With a heli. That was a year. Yeah, that was actually back in Mammoth, and we were shooting for, I think it was That's It, That's All. Yeah, we got some super park clips. Scotty yeah. Lego. Doing nice when you can actually have method. park clips that are like that in movies like that because you don't see that much anymore. Yeah. Yeah, we, 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 we tried hard to make sure there was park in every one of those early films we made. It worked. Yeah. I love a big ass park jump. Yeah. I, I like, we get heat on that for the show sometimes, but I, that's that's where I'm at. Yeah, when you have those a old hems at all kickers and everything. Yeah, else, they're I love just those larger sessions. than life, and the backgrounds are amazing, and mm-hmm. they're cool. I couldn't agree more. So we're still on the trajectory of a a young Travis Rice here. <laughs> we're on this storyline here, and. Around that time, you were still doing slopestyle contests, and you mentioned earlier that you did a triple crown. And where did it go from there? Yeah, so, you know, there was a lot of events where you could, you know, come in as an amateur, sign up, and make it, earn it into, like, the, the finals with the pros. You know, there's not enough events these days that, that have that kind of flow. But So I sign up, you know, go and compete at tri- uh, the triple crown Breckenridge, and that slope style event, I ended up getting second. It was like the first contest of the year. And, you know, unbeknownst to me was X Games that year was given away one qualifier spot into whoever won the X Games slope. Luckily for me, Todd Richards won it, and he already had an invite. Or the triple crown slope. The triple crown, yeah. Um, And so I ended up getting this, like, invite spot like first real year to go to X Games. And um, yeah, then rolled to X is like, you know, basically a nobody. Um, You know, just come out with the first part, rookie as it gets, and roll into X Games, which, you know, there was some big events, and I'd still say, you know, like the Aaron style and, you know, the US Open, I think we're still a little bit more credible, but X Games still was the big show because it had the, mainstream live on television component. And how did it go? <laughs> it went good, man. <laughs> I won that shit. <laughs> <laughs> um, that, that was a wild time. I mean, I, uh, you know, that this was like Kevin Jones' dominance, right? Like, I think he had won, like, the two previous X Games, if not more. And, you know, so being there and, you know, competing against Peter Line and Todd Richards and, um, having Kevin Jones there, like the, the field was so stacked with all these guys who I've looked up to forever. Um, it was a bit of a trip <laughs> competing with these guys shoulder to shoulder, right? And kind of just, I don't know, put my head down and did my runs and ended up just being able to lace out a, a pretty stomped run. And, you know, the classic, I don't know if like Kevin had qualified first, but you know, he was the last one to drop on the finals run. And I just remember sitting down in the uh, the corral 
and waiting for Kevin to do his last run, just kind of half expecting him to land his shit and win it. And, you know, shade, shades on the landing, you know, it's kind of in towards the end of the day. And yeah, he fell like second or third jump and I ended up winning it. I was just like, all right, let's go. That was a, that was a party. Wow. The announcers love that story too. New guy coming in, unknown, leaving a champion. <laughs> yeah, I think that's that's kind of when things started to change a bit. Um, you know, after that, actually got some, you know, like DC got on with DC, which was which was awesome at the time. And then um, that's also where kind of Cersei Wallace kind of came into my life, who's my longtime one of my best friends, manager, agent. Um, kind of living legend of the sport. She was dominant Northwestern professional snowboarder. And uh, I'd, I'd talked to a couple, you know, agents at the time, agent managers. And um, I remember, you know, having a chat with her and she's just this like badass power babe, hot, freaking, you know, tell you her opinion. And after X Games, she flew up to my house, uh, meet with my parents and she had like an infant. Her daughter Ava was like two, three months old. I don't know, maybe maybe four months old, but like infant, just roll solo mom, baby. What's up? And it was kind of like you know, you see how seeing how she handled her situation. It was like, all right, this is this is the woman who I want repping me. Um, yeah, and then that from there it was like, boom, cannonball trajectory. Um, you know, I had an early, early door in with, with the absinthe crew and, um, yeah, the, the following years were just nonstop. <laughs> well, that year, particularly, I think you filmed three video parts. Cause if I'm looking, you have a part in the grenade video, full metal edges. You have a part in prophecy, I believe. And then the absinthe part vivid, which, uh, I don't know. can't remember. I think you got ender, right? Yeah. You got ender and you wrote a Damian Marley. Actually, I remember that's a sick ass part. <laughs> yeah, so um, yeah, three video parts and an X Games win. I mean, that's that ain't a ba- that ain't a bad rookie year. No, I I was just horns up, man. Because <laughs> you know, for me, it was like I you know say yes, like take every opportunity. Um, and you know that point too. You just all I wanted to do was ride, and being able to go out with you know, people that were better than me and had more experience than me, you know, that's what I was just soaking it in. Being able to work with these, these different film companies, go on trips, and, um, yeah, I was all in. Correct me if I'm wrong, but Vivid seemed to be the first year where you kind of figured out AK. Yeah, so did it, was it Saturation and then Vivid? Yeah. Yeah, so Saturation was... The first year to AK. Saturation was my first year. Yeah, but Vivid seemed like you had like, you had like, really like, yeah, got so, your confidence up, maybe. Yeah, it. I mean, still working on <laughs> AK, but uh, yeah. So the the second year after X Games, I filmed for Saturation. Saturation was the film that came out, and then Vivid was, you know, basically my third year in AK. Um, second year with Heli, and you know. I, that you get humbled up there. Our very first year, we just went up in, on snowmobiles and would drive from Haynes. We're staying at 33 Mile, you know, at this little gas station. Rich and I just, you know, 
parked up in this, you know, there was for sure just mold in all of the walls and it was gnarly, but we were driving across the border into Canada and riding Haynes Pass. Um, and so the first year I got, first year I think of saturation, I got to go up and, you know, heli. And actually I was like shoulder to shoulder with like, you know, Yannick Omvel and um, Axel Paporte and, you know, these, these Euros that had been putting in the time, um, you know, up in AK. And man, the, the first time I went Hellion up there, it was super humbling. You get out, you know, the exposure, the size of, you know, the size of the terrain. And first time that I really was, you know, big mountain free riding. And it takes a while to learn how to operate, how to even like wrap your head around stuff up there. Um, and so I think it started to click, you know, cause we were still building jumps and we weren't really doing too much like free riding, um, but riding some mini golf stuff. And then yeah, end of the Vivian season actually had some success with the free riding piece. Buds, do we have a Patreon, I got a that Patreon question that? about Alaska queued up here? And this is from, uh, first of all, thank you, Patreon members. This is a opportunity. If you're part of the Patreon to send in a question like this one from Ricky D'Amico. And he asks, you are from one of the best areas in the world for snowboarding, but you continue to have a special connection with Alaska. What is it about AK that keeps you coming back year after year rather than going on to other parts of the world? Thanks, boss. Appreciate the question. And, uh, you know, snowboarding, right? And especially free riding, self-expression on a snowboard. The fact that you know, my roots are in the Rocky Mountains where, you know, snow doesn't stick to steep rock. And, you know, landings are not that steep for the most part where I come from. Um, it has, you know, there's, there's pros in cold conditions in the high, high elevation of the Rockies. But when you get to, like, coastal snowpacks, you know, anywhere up the West Coast, and especially Alaska, where snow adheres itself to everything. And you get this like insulative blanket that creates this just fantastical, like whimsical, uh, three-dimensional environment where everything is covered and protected. And then now you can you know, draw a line and you, you're, the freedom you have to, to ride is just, it's, it's so elevated and the sheer scale and size of, you know, the mountains up in Alaska are, are it's just on another level. Um, I mean, you have incredible terrain all over the world in BC for sure, but there's something about AK that's, it's bigger and it's, it's more planar and, um, you know, it's harder to get it because of the variability of weather. But when it's on, like, there's no better place to ride. And there will for, forever, you know, it'll be a place where you can progress and challenge yourself. And, um, yeah, okay, it's just, it's pinnacle. Dude, I've been there so many times and never put it together, how the snow sticks to it like that and creates that environment. So true. Because it's coastal, so there's more moisture in the snow. It's not a dry, cold snow. It's yeah, yeah, more more moisture in it, and uh, just the way that it it sticks. You know, you get spines, pillows in AK, and 
for me, because I come from the Rockies where we don't have that, it's always been something that, you know, is so fantastical for, for me, you know, when you, when you're on coastal snowpack, like in the Rockies, we focus on gullies. We stay away from ridges because ridges are always wind affected, you know, always rocky. It's, it's a, just a different approach in the high mountains, you know, here in the Wasatch, right? Like same deal. When you go to the coast, it changes where, yeah, you still have the gullies, you know, but the ridges are caked and the ridges are the safer place to be. Um, and you know, that just feeling of exposure where you're on top and, you know, all your slough, everything's, you know, falling away from you constantly. It's just, there's nothing like it. All right. We have another Patreon question from Maverick Killed Goose. Great name. Yeah, it's a good one. What kind of mental routine do you have before hitting big gaps or dropping insane lines? Would you would you ask me that again? Because all I was thinking about was uh, Alaska. <laughs> no, my my nickname growing up was Goose. Oh, really? My dad just constantly called me Goose. Was he like a Maverick? What Top uh, Gun? Top Gun fan? Is that what it was? <laughs> no, well, uh, yeah. Who was probably? Yeah, who wasn't at that time? No, it was some. I think I said some funny shit when I was a kid, like. Um, I'm as silly as a goose. Yeah. Just stuck. <laughs> and it just brought you right back there, huh? All right, Goose needs to hear the question again. So <laughs> right, repeat it. That'd be great. <laughs> I was just thinking about my dad. He just went right <laughs> off to Pops. All right. This is from Maverick Killed Goose. What kind of mental routine do you have before hitting big gaps or dropping insane lines? Um, yeah, the, the, the mental. I always love that video, Heavy Mental, because it was really so applicable. Um, the approach to riding big mountain and for that matter, like big features for me, it's, it's, it's evolved over the years and, you know, you do something so repetitiously, you start to figure out kind of what works for you and what doesn't. And, um, you know, to, to sum it up, you know, there's, there's, there's two parts to it, right? There's a, you got to do the homework. Like you got to know if it's a gap, you got to know what the pop's like, can you take it, how much speed, how much impact you think you're going to have in the landing. If it's a line, you got to do your homework. You got to know where everything is. A lot of times you can't see like what the, what's, what's over the blind rolls, you know, what's over those features. And so you got to put your time and you got to know where you're going. And then you also have to be on that, know where your exits are. If something doesn't go right, like, you know, um, and so there's that component. And then there's the visualization piece, which is, you know, you got to be able to feel it and visualize what it is you're doing. I mean, it's like, that's the test bed. Uh, you know, you run it through. And I find like, I, I usually want to get to a place where I can see myself landing and feel what it's like coming around landing if it's a trick or, you know, landing off some part of the line. And then you, you know, you work that like analytical approach up, do the homework, it's super heady, you know, you're all in your head, hopefully a little in your heart. Um, but when you get to the top or you're about to drop in, I found like the hack to getting in, you know, some call it flow state, right? A clear headed space where you're super present and you're able to react because thinking is slow. To cognitively, you know, make decisions, um, shit happens too fast for that. And so if you can like take a couple breaths, I just, I take a couple breaths, try to let it all go and then drop in with a clear head. You already did the homework. You already did the research. 
um, being in a place where you can react um, because it never goes how you, exactly how you think it's going to go. Like something always is off. Uh, something changes. No, it wasn't quite how you thought it was, you know. Um, and so you just have to be in a good place to react. That's, I think that's what works the best for me. How do you do your homework? You pull your mic a little closer. When, because I've been to Alaska and you get in a helicopter and a lot of times you're going to a place that you've never been before in your early days, let's say. And so you get that, you kind of go around in the helicopter and you're looking, you take a photo. And then all of a sudden, maybe 30 minutes, an hour later, you're on top of that line. <laughs> so how, where did, when did you do your homework? <laughs> well, it can, it can be just standing at the, just taking enough time to stand at the bottom and just like look and memorize it. I and mean, really digest it. I mean, that for me is the greatest game is the game of, you know, do it in your head, build it, problem solve, and then see if you can like bring it into reality. Um, I mean, it's creation. One of the reasons why we're here to bring things into existence. Um, and, and for me, that's the joy is to see if you, how close you can get to putting down what you build in your head. If you can make that a reality, that, that's the game. A lot of writers fail because they aren't up there because they aren't able to do that. Huh? They all of a sudden get up there and they're, like, oh, shit, where am I? Well, it's something that, you know, like anything, it's a muscle, right? It, you you got to practice. You got to, you know, you got to have, you got to have a lot of, you know, at-bats. You got to fail a bunch of times. You got to learn, you know, the hard way. Yeah. Um, because that's just the nature of repetition, right? Like, we're, we, uh, we're, we're, we're amazing pattern recognition machines, but you need that repetition. Mm. Um yeah, for a lot of people, I, your first year to AK is basically failure. It's a wash. Yeah, it's almost a wash, <laughs> except for probably but you. Unless and you go to Mark the, or, or like unless you go to Anchorage, like me, oh, then, I, then I'm cleaning up in the streets. But uh, <laughs> go, going back, I, I, I'm curious. While we got a mind like yourself in the booth, I always think about this. You know, let's just say you're in the winter around this time, whatever. You're you're peak filming uh, during this season. What percentage? of your mind is consumed with snowboarding. Are you mindboarding? Are you sleeping about it? What percentage of your mind, let's just say, especially in the younger years, because I'm sure you have natural selection, all this other stuff going on, but those 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 years, are you just mindboarding, sleepboarding, all that stuff? <laughs> yeah, I mean, for me, like that first decade, uh, you know, it was pretty all in. It was like, this is what I'm doing. This is what I'm here to do. This is the opportunity. Like, this is my love and passion. Um, but doesn't mean you don't have, doesn't mean you don't need to, like, work for it. And, you know, I've found that, like, going the extra distance, whether it's preparation, whether it's making sure you're, like, gears together, you know, your crew's on the same page, it's, it's, it's going the extra, the extra effort. And being ready for like when the day when the day presents itself and the opportunity is right there you know like are you ready to seize that or not um and i think that was the beauty of being young and, and ripping around like that's uh, that's all i was focused on you know wasn't even social media back then right you're just you're there present like ready with the right crew 
Um, and for me, like mentorship was, was huge. Like, again, I can't say it enough, like being able to spend time around people that, that know more than me are more experienced, ask questions, watch how they did it. Um, yeah, the, the mentorship piece, like surround yourself with, with people that are better than you at what it is you want to do. Incredibly articulated answer. Uh, we got another hard hitting question, and this is from Alex Yoder. I thought it was fitting in the sense that we're talking about AK and stuff. So here we go. Yoder's got a question for you. Hey, Travis, it's Alex. Um, you're well known for doing very crazy, death defying stuff on a snowboard stuff that most of us think is impossible until we see you do it. And I think a lot of people just assume that you are fearless. Um, but I feel like there's more to it than that. I think anyone that sort of ventures out of their comfort zone encounters fear and apprehension and other things that make them sort of question what they're doing. And I feel as though you being a very intuitive individual have sort of honed in on techniques or reflexes to interpret fear in a different way and maybe even utilize it as, um, you know, a signal or um, some other bit of knowledge that helps you excel. Um, and maybe I'm totally wrong, uh, but I'm just curious to hear you explore that topic and what you have to say. Dude, Alex Yoder. Love that guy. He's a uh, he's an artist, artist on edge. Um, such a thoughtful individual. Thanks for the question, Alex. Um, yeah, fear. I mean, <clears throat> you know, I've I've come to realize, and you know, it was quite some time ago, but um, you know, certainly not fearless. Like, dude, fearless does not go the distance. You know, if, if you're someone that is literally without fear, um, you, you don't, you're not going to go the distance. It's not sustainable. Like fear is one of the greatest senses that we have, um, especially when you're, you know, out amongst dangerous situations where there's, you know, high risk in how you're operating. Um, you know, you need to tap into to every sense that you have access to. And if you can begin to, you know, ally with fear. Um, it's one of the greatest tools in the tool toolkit. Um, and I think that what's, what's really difficult is trying to separate like the irrational fears from the rational fears, because, you know, there is a, there is a real fear standing on the edge of the cliff, right? That you might fall off and die. Like that's a rational fear. Like you, you know, you, we're, we're gifted with these senses, keep us alive. Um, and then you have, you know, irrational fears, which, you know, are like phobias, right? Or, you know, some, some component of like, whether it's, you know, social anxiety, you know, arachnophobia, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Where it's like this, this fear. And for some people it's like, um, you know, pretty detrimental to existence. And um, it's those irrational fears that you have to be able to 
you know, overcome and, you know, look straight in the eyes and, and, and get through that and then use your rational fears that are there for a freaking reason that are going to, you know, going to keep you alive. And so if you can find, you know, an alliance and, you know, keep that shit super close, um, yeah, it's, it's one of the greatest senses you have. Fear is amazing, amazing, powerful tool. You just got to learn to love it, freaking hug it, bring it in, you know, use it to your intuitive advantage. Um, because intuition is a tricky thing, man. Intuition, it's so subtle. It's so silent. And it's so easy to second guess it. You know, intuition is essentially, you know, you, you more or less, you get it in the gut. It's, it's core. And intuition is always the first reaction you have to something. Like intuition will be the first thing that pops in and give you a, you know, a moment of, of feeling or hesitation. Um, but, you know, we're so programmed to like second guess it. And I have for years, like trying to tune in intuition is it's really difficult um, because it's too easy to talk yourself out of it. Like, God, no, I got it. Um, yeah. All hell fear. I knew a chick who had a banana phobia. Phobia, Like see a banana and go crazy, like crying, basically. Yeah. I mean, you wonder, you wonder where that comes from. Yeah. Like, you know, is it, is it freaking past life trauma? How you went down in a previous life? I don't know how it worked with the banana. Took yeah, a banana to the head, yeah. Like, could go in that part of the grocery store, basically. Or some, like, childhood thing, yeah. you know? Like, yeah, what is that? And, and how do you, you know, how do you get past it? You don't get past it by just turning a blind eye to it and yeah. never addressing it. Like, that type of shit. Therapy. Yeah, therapy or being with people you trust. I mean, I think we've all seen, you know, the episode of someone being, you know, deadly afraid of sharks, right? And they go, like, shark diving. I'm deadly afraid of sharks. <laughs> I'd go in one of those cages, though. Why not figure it out? <laughs> but that intuition, as you get older, I think you learn how to really identify it. And, you know, you're out in a forest, maybe, you know, all of a sudden, maybe something's chasing, like a predator's out there. You can kind of feel that, the mm-hmm. eyes on you or something. And when you're younger, you don't really know how to identify that, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, well. Or you just don't listen to it. Maybe you feel it, and you're just like, eh. Well, it's like these, it's, you know, these extra, like, you know, sensory gifts that we all have that are not fostered as a ch- as children. Like for me growing up, um, you know, there's all these, you know, things that they, they won't talk about in school, you know? And so these gifts that we have, we kind of like forget we have them. And, you know, for me getting out of high school was like, I felt like that was like when my true like education started was being in the world, being around people, alternative thinkers. And, um, I mean, don't get me wrong. Like school, school was fantastic for, you know, like the core, you know, the core like card hand of, you know, science, and biology, and physics, and math and did all this stuff like that. Good shit to have. But as far as stuff that I use on the daily, like that stuff is not taught in school. Mm-hmm. I want to tee something up too, because what I heard you talking, you were basically talking about logic versus intuition, right? Logic, and and you're, what you're talking about is thinking your way out of something, right? You you have an intuitive ping, and maybe you're like you you think your way out of it. But the way I process that is, the you know your intuition that's a feeling, 
So there's kind of a separation between thoughts and feelings. Now, I just wanted to see if that teed up anything for you to run with on that. Um, you know, I think I, I think I got some to parlay that into. That's awesome. Okay. Um, you know, talking a little bit about like whatever how intuition works. It's like that first guttural reaction, and then it's really easy to kind of talk yourself out of that. Um, I really appreciate, and I think this this is rooted in like John Buffery and risk assessment. If anyone doesn't know John Buffery, he's an amazing guy who's, you know, he's mentored a ton of operations, you know, helped founded Baldface with, with Craig Kelly and Jeff Pensiero. He, you know, runs BC Highways, Avalanche Protocol, like the guy's legit. Um, and, you know, Pat Moore created this awesome, you know, risk assessment class um, preseason to help, you know, a lot of like filmers and people that were like putting themselves in harm's way. And, um, you know, one of the beautiful, you know, rules that have, have kind of come into our um, existence and how we operate in the backcountry is, you know, the minute you make a decision to step back from whatever it is, like if you're, you know, crews going out into the backcountry and you got, you know, and something doesn't feel right and you hesitate, you step back or, you know, see something in, in snowpack or a pit or, you know, you see a sign, the minute that you make like a backward step, like that's, that's the step for the day. Like you don't talk yourself into, you know, don't take half an hour and be like, yeah, actually, no, I think we got it. Cause I've done that so many times, so many times. Um, but with that kind of intuition component, it's like you can put that into practical sense. And when you're heading out into something and doing something risky and, you know, you yourself or collectively make a, a change in your momentum and inertia that is a hesitation and you pull it back, like have that be for the day. Just run with it. Be like, we, we made the call. Don't second guess it. Great advice. Great advice, Travis. Okay. I'm going to pivot here and go uh, back to the old uh, the trajectory of Travis's career here. So we're, we're going to run through kind of where we're at. So we hit transcendence, blacklight, prophecy, full metal edges, vivid saturation. That's all two, 2002 to 2004. That's a lot of stuff. And then comes along pop. Now pop was where you went from Travis on the come up to Travis is, is planting his flag on the top of the, on the top of the fucking hill, dude. And, you know, you went, it, you filmed a lot in Utah, and you beat down the local cheese wedge scene. <laughs> he came and just put a smackdown on the Utah token wedgies, the wedgie Jacksons, if you will. Um, <laughs> and uh, basically just, it was, a, it was a fucking slaughter. It was a slaughter fest, man. Like, talk us through the pop year. Oh, the pop year, man. Uh, look, you know, I think we were, yeah, we were three, three movies in with Absinthe, right? And it was like rolling into this fourth, these, fourth season. Um, I think we were just hungry and we had like built this foundation over the previous years with filmers, with like spots, with the level of writing, kickers, stuff we were trying to do. And I think we just went into that year with um, a bit of a different mentality kind of a like all right we, we gotta take what we've learned and let's try to take it to another level that year um you know great riding partners 
um, that was really the like the year that I got to spend quality time riding with Roman too. Um, dude, Roman DeMarchi, <laughs> that guy is a savage. And, you know, being able to spend time with like Shane Charlebois, which one of my all time favorite humans in snowboarding, and Stan Evans actually. Like whenever I came down to Salt Lake, I'd stay at, I'd stay at Stan Evans' house. You know, photographer, super colorful character. Um, and so, you know, that spring, we rolled into the like, you know, one month, like we're basing in Salt Lake. And, you know, kind enough, you know, being whatever was Stan and Shane, um, you know, those guys were, were taking us to some spot, you know, there'd been a lot that had already gone down at, you know, various spots. I mean, sure. Like Chad's gap. Um, I don't think it had been hit by any snowboarders. Um, but that month of rolling up, you know, opposite snowbird and Alta, just <laughs> looking down and, um, maybe bleep that out. I don't know how secret of a spot that still is. It's not that secret. Grizzly Gulch is not yeah. a secret spot. <laughs> okay. Chad's Gap is like, if you text me, if you go on your phone, it's in maps. No. Like, I swear to God. Oh, God. <laughs> There's just a, a path up there in maps. Right. If anybody Apple listening maps. wants to go build it, just Google Chad's Gap. God, Godspeed to yeah. you. And people want someone to go build it, so that way it's it's open for the it's season. Built. Yeah. <laughs> so, you know, we went into that session. I think, like, I think that year we had... You know, we had done some stuff in the area without naming well, naming spots. I'm going to name some stuff. You hit mine shaft jump, cab nine. Yeah. Back seven, heater cab nine. Uh, and then, I mean, before we get to Chad's, we should probably talk about the pyramid yeah, session. Yeah, pyramid. Because the pyramid, or do, well, however you want to break those two no, down. No, I mean, that's, but, I mean, the memorable component, right? Like, I, I remember going up there and we were looking at Chad's. Yeah. And, you know, we also were looking at pyramid and it felt like the, uh, the, the, the diligence was to go to Pyramid first. And, you know, Pyramid was big. And we built that thing. I still think, like, we built it better than everyone, anyone ever has, personal opinion. Um, and the session that ensued, it was like a couple days, like two full days of build, and then on the third day we hit it. And it was, you know, got a couple things down, but, um, you know, earlier in the year had, like uh, – overcooked a front seven or front nine, I think, you know, and had the, like the double wobble like appear and was like, Oh my God, what is that? I need some more of that. And then it was, you know, I'd been thinking about that all year and we got to that jump and I don't think I, yeah, I had some seven or something on that jump already. Uh, I really wanted that front 10 and you know, that's a long hike, that jump, big ass in run, you're coming and cooking. And I think it took like three or four tries. And I remember the sun was setting, light was getting better. You know, I think I second try, first try it came around. I was like, oh my God, there it is. Second try, you know, a little overcorked. You know, I was looking at the light. I was like, shit, I've got to get it this next try. You know, so I go booting up there, sweating profusely, drop in. And again, something doesn't quite go right. Um, and the light, the shadows just coming, you know, coming up Grizzly Gulch. And I pretty much didn't run, but it felt like I ran back up, just sweating, <laughs> mouth breathing. Um, dropped in, and that one, it just came around freaking perfect. I remember just stomping, 
riding out like into the shadow line. And there was another crew down below who was, uh, who was filming on some other little jump and like rode right by them, glory. And someone, you know, someone just being like, what the fuck? <laughs> I mean, that was a feeling. Um, and after that, you know, I think Roman landed a couple, couple great tricks too. And after that, it was like, all right, we're ready. Let's build it. And then we proceeded to, uh, to work on Chad's for like the next, it was like a three day build. Because by that time we had learned that like, do not underestimate the importance of a good in run. In runs everything. I think, you know, kids on the come up underestimate the importance of a good run. So we built that jump, you know, again, three days in. And, you know, by that time, you know, Hosnick had come down and um, yeah, he rented a heli, <laughs> snowbird, powder. Powder birds. Powder birds. Um, and we, we freaking did it. We actually lapped, we lapped that. It was such a long hike and we had the most epic session because we used the bird to bump, hitting chats and bumping. And I think the way it worked with, uh, you know, we were on the kind of Rochambeau Guinea, Guinea program and we had taken turns and I think Roman lost on pyramid. So he had to hit pyramid first. And so then by default, I had to hit chads. Which at the time I was like, psych, yeah, you got to hit pyramid, put the speed in, sweet. And I had to hit chads, and so the one thing I knew I didn't want to do was come up short on that, because that that year, like a lot of times it is, like it's a big mind tailing landing, and the top of that thing was dry rock. It was like the knuckle was freaking rocks, and so you didn't want to come up short. And I overcooked the shit out of that dude. <laughs> you landed in the parking lot. Yeah. Yeah. And I actually got pretty lucky because there's like a little mine road like down on the bottom of that landing. Um, and I landed, uh, I think I went about 200 feet and landed right before like a little flat road and just impacted in and you know, sent up the info. And then that was it. That was like the session started, <laughs> set the pace. I talked to Charlie Boy and he said that you were originally 40 feet higher but some skiers told you to go, drop in lower. Like, what are you doing up that high or some shit, shit like that? Yeah, I can't remember exactly, but I definitely, like, I, my, first, my first guess on what, what I needed was, like, way further than I, I slipped down quite a bit, which, thank God. Yeah, I wonder where you could have <laughs> landed, dude. You could have landed on the other side of the, <laughs> the, other side. the valley. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's, it's just so it's, steep. It, it's so intimidating. Like, you're yeah. there looking at that gap, and, you know, you're like, I've never hit anything this big. Better go fast. <laughs> um, hey, you don't want to come up short. Yeah, let's run through the tricks because there was a it was a slaughter house five on and that Stan thing. and the the photographers and the video crew just killed it. Was it five tricks? Would you do five on them? Um, covers on that thing. I don't even remember, man. I th yeah, four or five tricks. I could run you through it. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I mean, what I remember is I got yeah I got switchback three, which was I was super psyched on. I was like, let's do some technically difficult tricks on this a switchback five back rodeo seven um i think i did a front side something you did a cab seven. Oh yeah cab seven that which was the looked heater. sketchy uh just like the the body position <laughs> of like the cork um and then dude watching roman try the chicane like of all the tricks you're gonna try roman was trying chicane and he was hooking riders left and he was kind of gapping you know it was like a the landing is a mine tailing, right? And so he was like going 10, 15 feet left over the knuckle and like catching Tranny down low 
on the edge of this ridge and and he had a battle with that trick. I think he tried it maybe five times, four or five times. And um, I don't know the last trick. I think it was back rodeo seven, maybe last trick I did. And he finally stomped the the chicane last trick. That was like one of the most difficult and crazy tricks that I think I ever witnessed in person go down was Ramon's chicane. The Shakira. Shakira. Yeah. Wow. Yep. Your switchback five, you barely squeaked over the top of it, too. Yeah. It was a little squeaked it right in. <laughs> like his tail might have caught the top of the tail in mine. Uh, it was such an epic session. And we had like a bit of a, you know, there was a bit of a crew. Like, like it was probably like, I don't know, 15, 20 people that showed up and was mm-hmm. watching. Um, yeah, once people catch wind, they just start walking up to watch, right? And homies of homies. and Yeah. Then we, we, we like, we went back down with the heli and we're freaking popping beers and stuff in the helipad and then the, the the coolest part of that session was like and it was i didn't even know that he hit it um was forest oh yeah after oh at the end yeah and he had come That's and right. he had helped us for a day he, he, he wasn't there for the full build but you know he was kind of flying the wall was kind of thinking about it you know and and we bounced and then forest had the freaking balls to like step up and i think he got like a backside five yep and, and it was kind of after the sun went down too, right? Wasn't yeah, it, it was last, like last low light. light. I don't even know <laughs> if he had sun. Um, and I actually didn't know that he freaking stomped something on that for forever. That's wild. But uh, dude, respect to Forrest. Yeah, let's give him an air horn for that backfiber. Yeah. yeah, it was legit because he he helped us out. Um, yeah, he wasn't just coming up and sneaking up. He helped. And yeah, yeah, he put right. time in. He 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 earned it. Um, you know, earning it is part of the, like the the, the jump building. Like you got to put time in on something, especially if you're building for three days here. Yeah, and you know we we took it re- like we would knock jumps down when we were finished with them. We're like, all right, you want to hit it? Like, freaking put some time into it. Um, and you know, halfway through our Chad's Gap build, we were up there one day just like chalking up bricks, and we see this like kind of scraggly ski crew freaking roll up, you know, and we're like, what, what are they doing? And then we see him like dropping in and they started hitting the pyramid gap because we didn't have any strength left to ruin that jump. And, you know, Roman, like being the instigator of like, this is fucking bullshit. Like, look, we got to go up there. I was like, all right. <laughs> so we've rolled up there and, you know, these guys, I think they were having like a little break in their session. You know, everything was just red carpeted out for them landing, you know, and dude, Roman just freaking just, deadpans and looks him straight in the face and just walks up, walks right up on top of the cheese wedge, just throws his pants down and just takes a shit like right on the freaking top of the jump. I mean, while looking at him. You know, like when... Eye contact. Yeah, when your dog... That's an alpha dog, that's yeah. an alpha dog move. Dude, Big straight alpha dog. I think I like pissed on it or something. <laughs> you lifted a leg after. Yeah. The, the which... legend of that poop actually is still talked about in the backcountry, <laughs> which is awesome. Which, uh, you know, fast forward, ended up bumping into one of those skiers <laughs> like a couple years ago too, who was just like, oh yeah, yeah, we were, we were the skiers hitting the pyramid jump. I was like... Right on. <laughs> Did he bring up the poop? He's like, yeah, I remember that. That was the end of our session. 
<laughs> Savage. Such a Roman move. A boss move. That's how you establish alpha male Especially dominance. Especially with the eye contact. Yeah, yeah the eye contact. <laughs> <laughs> eye contact adds to that. Now, talking to Charlie Boy, he provided a little more intel, too. And from his perspective, he made it sound like you and Roman were kind of like pushing each other to just go fucking huge all winter. Like it was like Roman went big, you want to go bigger. You went big, Roman wanted to go bigger. W- can you uh, corroborate that story? I mean, yeah, I think that, I think like, you know, a f- in a friendly sense, like for sure. Um, because, you know, the, the story of Pop doesn't really in there um, because after that, um, like the next freaking step up was trying to gap the freaking pipe. And we, a couple weeks later, we flew to Stratton. And after the U.S. Open, you know, and that was, it wasn't, it wasn't 22 foot, but it was like, I don't know, it was, it was 19, 18, probably. Eight, yeah, 18, 19 foot pipe. Um, big pipe, wide, flat bottom, right? It had been getting cut all year. And um, the goal was to like straight kick or gap the pipe. Um, and that thing was big. They, they spent a while building it. And it was riders left, like rolling down, rolling in. And it had this kind of like savage berm because there's a fo- the pipe's up against the forest. And so there's not a lot of room. And so, you know, it was like roll in, bit of a berm into the gap across the pipe. And so... You know, and we did some we did some warm up warm up runs into it, um, and I I think I tried like three or four times, so it was heel side for me. It was heel side, or I had to go switch, and there was so much consequence. And I remember, you know, I, I didn't have magnet traction yet, so I was rolling in trying to hold this heel edge, and it just it was like I'd have it, and I skip out, and I, I felt like I didn't have it, and. Um, and Roman, yeah, ended up, I think, getting a back five. And that was such a savage. And, you know, that was an amazing session. One of my favorite parts of that trip was, you know, again, we're shooting film back then. So, like, we did the whole three weeks up in Grizzly Gulch. And, you know, no one sees a single clip. Like, we got to check photos, but no one saw anything. Like, is there a hair in the gate? Did you freaking burn the film? Like, you don't know if you got it, really, until you get the film transfer back. And we had just gotten the film transfer. And so we were all in Stratton, and we had rented some condos, and, we, like, we had no way. We just got it. We just checked in, and there was, like, this family with a couple young, like, Shredder kids that was there just on their, like, Weekend Warrior. And we were like, do you guys have – I think it was, yeah, like a DVD player. Do you guys have a DVD player? And they're like, yeah, we got one. Like, can we please come, like – you know, review our footage. And so we rolled in and like they invited a couple friends and we had this like viewing party with like four or five kids, you know, and we, we watched all of this footage back and the, the kids were just like, what the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> and it, they nailed everything. Um, yeah, it was a, it was a big year. The Chad's gap from the bird uh, definitely looked unreal. Now r- around this time, just yeah. to jump that. Well, yeah. But around this time, though, somewhere in this time period, I remember because I was a kid, you were at the U.S. Open. And this is going to be good for your core score, Travis. This is going to be great for the street the street world. So a lot of people know you for AK. They know you for cheese wedges. You know, they know he's done well in some quarter pipe and, and slope style contests. But 
you weren't really known for being a rail dogger. But I remember, because I was the spectator, and my buddy Stevens was competing. But uh, Scotty? Scotty Stevens, yeah. U.S. Open Rail Jam. How did it fare for you? Freaking took that thing down. You got, first, you got first place? Yeah. <laughs> first place U.S. Open Rail Jam, Travis Rice. Wow. For those who don't know, slap some respect on that one. Man, That's incredible. I, I love the jib. Like, I really do. And for so many years... Uh, you know, I mean, I felt like like the the jib competition was was something that was very different than actually, you know, being out on the streets and um, you know and doing an authentic case. But I, I won a, I think I won two or three rail contests, and I did a number of street trips. Um, you know, I did a trip in Norway, did ample time on the East Coast. Um, you know, we jibbed about everything there was to jib in Jackson Hole. Um, I all, love all it. Two jibs. A lot of jibs out there. Yeah. <laughs> there was, there was like, yeah, there was like antler, four, four or five jib. pretty, pretty sweet spots, man. Um, really good antler bonks, I've been told. <laughs> dude, the Travis Rice real snow streets. <laughs> that's what I want to see, dude. <laughs> I be incredible. I wanted it, you know. I wanted to put together like a like a legit part, you know, that rolled into like an AK part. And I think, um, I think with the amount of competition stuff I was doing, I just never like took. Just never just took the amount of time to really lean into it. It'd be um, a big commitment. Yeah, it is. You know, and you know, you're you're risking a lot too. Or like early season, like throwing it down on the freaking steel, like shit's unforgiving. Respect for for what that has become, and you know, I was always a fan. Yeah, I mean, people are so out T right Rick, now. T. Ricky's down, down for the streets. Yeah. He's down for the streets. It's official. Down for the streets. He's down for the streets. Okay. Well, it's, it's beautiful, you know. It's 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 expression. I think it's one of like the the diversity, epic diversity components. Like snowboarding wouldn't be what it is without like that uh, the street routes. I mean, how many how many people have access to like, you know, what do you guys have up here in the Wasatch, versus like the entirety of the East Coast, you know, up into Canada, Midwest, you know, that's what you got, like. Make the most out yeah, of it. Yeah, they don't have Grizzly Gulch. Yeah. <laughs> what do you think about how snowboarding has become so segmented where the, your, the slope-style competition side of things, half-pipe competitors, they, they're in their bubble, backcountry's in their bubble, streets are in their bubble, and each one of these bubbles tends to think that their bubble is the fucking best bubble, and all the other <laughs> bubbles suck ass. <laughs> so what, what's your take on, on the kind of uh, fragmented snowboarding cultures? You know, I I think that it's something that's just so inevitable um, because there's all these, you know, again, going back to back in the day, like everyone did everything. Um, dude, in, in today's world, like if you want to if you want to be competitive in the half pipe, like you best be spending the majority of your time in the half pipe. Like you want to dominate streets like you got to focus on that shit. You're, you're not just like putting a month in and then going and riding Powell all winter. Um, so, you know, uh, hyper specificity, like you're a jumper, slope style rider. Um, the level's just so incredible across the board at every one of these things. And if you want to be, if you want to be top dog, like there's kind of, I, I mean, I feel like it's unfortunate, but it's also the beautiful nature of like how far, you know, people take their craft, and 
you know, frankly, like that's, that's one of the reasons why I love the natural selection is like it, it takes, you know, it takes a lifetime of like the diversity of those experiences. Like you can take jib tricks and the skill set that you learned, like to big mountain, to like natural conditions. You can take transition riding pipe. You can take, you know, jumping and slope. You can take just straight free ride. Like all of that kind of informs this, this greater experiential approach to that type of riding. So you're saying all roads lead to the punch <laughs> eventually. Seems that way. You know, not for everybody, but um, I think that all roads help. All roads are beneficial in the approach of, you know, natural terrain, big mountain mm-hmm. riding, variable conditions. The, and the thing that's phenomenal about it is that the expiration date, the expiration date of a competitive slope style half pipe rider, it's fucking 25 like it's it's like you're j- it, it, it's gonna and your body just can't do it but Same with the with back the streets co- too, the, uh, yeah the streets no, like uh being on the top level yeah top level but backcountry the knowledge and the you can you can take it to riding lines and it, it necessarily it doesn't necessarily have an expiration date as low as the other ones yeah i i agree you can be up there doing line i mean jamie goes up to ak still and kills it Dude, amen. 40, I, whatever, you know? Yeah. I mean, you know, I, I, that was, like, one of the reasons I think that, like, natural selection was meant to be what it is, was because, you know, you the 25-year, 30-year freaking age span in, like, a competition um, where you, you know, where you see it, like, you know, take, like, Freaking golf or you know, F1 or tennis or, you know, or surfing, right? Even skating. Like, I think it's beautiful when you have the variety of, like, the young approach versus the wise approach. Um, I think that's a really compelling component. All right. We are going to get into a word from our sponsors, and uh, it's all about fits. And we're during the break, I'm going to uh, take a fit. Let's go. Hey there, bomb hole. It's me, Haley Langlet, and I'm going to be talking a whole lot of fit with you guys. I'm going to start by talking about the Naya TDS Gore-Tex jacket, my favorite jacket of all time. Uh, it's super lightweight. It's got Gore-Tex, which is really important for keeping you warm and dry on the mountain, especially if you're going to be spending a little bit more time riding more than a couple hours and it's very versatile. I can wear it in the backcountry when I'm filming or I could also be wearing it on a resort while I'm competing or just riding around. My favorite pants has got to be the AT Stretch Gore-Tex pant. I really like these pants because they're really baggy, which I think looks so phenomenal on everyone. It adds like a whole lot of steez and it looks really sick. So yeah, that was me talking fit. Talking fit, fit. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about some socks. Jed Anderson rides them, Jill Perkins ride them, and I ride them. Of course, you know I'm talking about Stance. If you've ever seen a pair of socks with the Icon logo on the ankle, then you know about Stance. Stance has been making some of the most comfortable and creatively designed socks and underwear for the snowboarding community for a while. They also make Celtics, Boston Red Sox gear. I got all kinds of collaborative gear from them. But lately, their designers have been bringing in the same winning formula to clothing. 
We're talking joggers, hoodies, hats, and tees. They even got a Wu-Tang collab. Things kind of fire. Toe-to-head comfort and creativity. Head on over to stance.com and use promo code THEBOMBHOLE to save 20% off. Again, stance.com, promo code THEBOMBHOLE. All right, we talked a lot about absence so far, but during the time you're filming for absinthe, you also had shots in the grenade videos, and seems like you had some pretty heavy roots with Clancy and and the whole grenade crew around those times. Um, it seems like you guys were spending a lot of time in in Mammoth. Do you want to touch on those times? Oh, those were some of the best of times. <laughs> yeah, I mean the grenade the grenade days and the grenade crew. Um, I mean that. That like came up quick, and I remember, shit, I remember winning my first uh, X Games, and I think I just had this like giant grenade stenciled on the nose of my board, because you know it was like this was this common like thing. It was a it was a crew. I mean, um, you know, previous to grenade, we had this thing called the Twenty Two Crew, and that was like our Jackson squad. And it's so great to have like a little posse, you know, to to revolve around got each other's back and 22 crew was like our epic thing in jackson and kind of solidified around my buddy pat gilday who uh r.i.p he passed in uh i think like our junior year of high school um and i think you know rolling into grenade you know all these relationships that i had made on the east coast you know all those guys um moved west and you know I, I actually I lived in Breckenridge for a little bit with my buddy Keenan Rice. Um, yeah, Keenan Rice. What a legend. My brother from another. Um, and then the only other place I've really lived was, was, was Mammoth. I was living in the top of this like A-frame with some people I knew, some I didn't. And it was just like, it was like a kegerator. I think there was like a stripper pole on the bottom floor. <laughs> and, uh, you know, because Mammoth, they had the best park. Like they had just such great conditions. And then you had like the rock of, you know, Danny Cass, his brother Matt living there, Kyle Clancy, Lane Neck, Colin Langlois. I think Eddie Wall was around, Chach Marach, Charlie Marachi. Um, I mean, the list goes on. Having Hannah Beeman, you know, out there, like it was just such a, like, unique time. And so, you know, the Grenade days and Grenade films, um, you know, it was just that. It was like this outlet for this like young bunch of just like hungry, incredible snowboarders, diverse people. And uh, it was kind of like the, it's kind of like the Lost Boys. Um, and Hannah Beeman was like windy. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I mean, you know, it was, it was super rambunctious and, uh, you know, got into a lot of trouble. And, you know, having Jared Slater and Kurt Morgan kind of be the ones that were handling business on the film side. You know, Kurt Morgan, I first met him. He's a pro rider on the East Coast. Actually, my very first meeting with him, we rode for Rossignol, um, was meeting him on the East Coast and riding up the chairlift with him and him like just freestyle rapping on the chairlift. Um, you know, think he had, thinking he had these like fresh flows wrapping around blunts and stuff. Um, and then, you know, later on, we continued to ride together and you know, he ended, he ended up being, and he's an incredible musician and amazing filmer. He's passionate about it. And so he took on, you know, the filmmaker role. 
and his you know early projects were like all of the early Grenade films, and you know I was I was I wasn't in like every film, but I really you know had big presence in like Night of the Living Shred, where we spent a ton of time in the North Island, Japan, and the skits that came out of those Grenade films were so gold. I could go back and watch some of those, um, you know, blowing up the zombies in a freaking van with a legitimate grenade. And um, and so my relationship with Kurt Morgan as the filmmaker and Jared Slater, you know, as well. Um, I also, we need to give Dave Schiff a shout. <laughs> I don't know if you got to mention it. Wow. Uh, sketchy Champion. D, so much, so much gold in that group. But, you know, working with Kurt Morgan on the filmmaking side, traveling with him, and then on the other side, working with uh, Rich Goodwin and the Absinthe team. Um, you know, for me, like that was like furthered education. I was super into filmmaking and the time spent with both those guys learning how to shoot 16 and, you know, learning about post-production with the Absinthe team. I mean, the Absinthe post-production was incredible because Hosnick had the great idea. He's, you know, looked up like, where's the most consistent surf that's still in like the USA? So he had access to FedEx and it was like Southern Poipu Beach in Kauai. And so we would go out for these epic edits um, and got to sit down like in the, in the trenches of the edit and learn like how Hosnick and how all these other guys approach that that craft and then with grenade it was kind of the same deal you know got to travel and they were shooting all digital absinthe was shooting all film and through all those years you know we finally got to a point where you know between rich goodwin and kurt morgan kurt kurt and his uh wife tiffany ended up moving out to jackson hole and living with me and we built a studio in you know one of my like, guest rooms and a home I had just purchased in Jackson. And, um, and we decided to like take a run at combining forces. And so Rich came on as kind of DP, director of photography, and uh, Kurt Morgan was kind of took a directorial role as well. And he was just such a master editor, like Final Cut. Like he, he was fluent in the language of Final Cut. And, you know, we we decided to just go for it. And I, I self-funded the first like three months, bought equipment, you know, paid for everything and start the film. And then we got Oakley to, um, to come on board and like underwrite this, you know, major film, which, which later became the community project. And, you know, Maddie Swanson, who was a name that a lot of people knew, man, he's, I, he's gotta be like one of the best team managers I think I ever had his passion, <clears throat> how hard he worked. And, you know, he was, he was in it for, he was in it for the culture and in it to just try to create something beautiful. He helped uh, us get it across the line and we got to spend a year and a half um, making the community project. And the community project was, was such a rad experience because we really wanted to change the paradigm of how the snowboard film worked. Cause you know, by that time, I'd done, I think, four parts with Absinthe, and I'd shot all these different, like, video parts where it's like, boom, you know, your tricks, your song, next part. And, you know, it had kind of started to, to be this thing where, you know, you kind of had to pay in. Sponsors had to pay in to, like, you know, help get you your, your spot. And the community project, the way we sold it to, uh, you know, to Oakley, we were like, hey, we, we want to focus on one company 
like taken down the cost of the movie. And then we want to just invite everybody like straight spring break all year. It's about sessions. It's about getting together. And so it didn't, it, we kind of had this like non-denominational thing where we had all these different writers come in and shoot all these different segments throughout the community project. And I feel, I feel like it ended up being really successful because of the approach where it was like session based, it was location based. Um, and dude, we learned so much <laughs> making that film. And uh, it was just, it was a freaking great time. Amazing time in life. That's the beginning of the, the Travis and Kurt Morgan run. You guys are about to go on. Really uh, great, great video if nobody's ever watched it. Um, and, you know, we've been getting deep, but I'd like to get shallow for a minute. <laughs> I'd like to go the opposite direction. <laughs> so uh, in that video, um, you guys fly in a private jet for a second. And it just got me thinking, you know, I was talking to somebody and they're like, oh, you're having Travis on the show? You got to talk Cheddar Biscuits. You got to talk Bisque, right? So um, for for the people wondering about the Bisque, I mean, I don't know what you can and can't talk about, but maybe like biggest check or if you want to throw us any type of shallow um, physical or uh, fiscal, whatever, some type of... Some type of uh, income nugget to, to hold over the people that want to know about cheddar bisques. Um, actually, I did. I brought some tax returns. <laughs> <laughs> wow. <laughs> he's not trying to pull a Trump on us. He's, he's got tax returns. <laughs> okay. No, actually, uh, <clears throat> so my, uh, my lovely partner, my magical lady in life, mother of my child, uh, Brooke Castle, she's very thoughtful. And she actually freshly baked you guys some cheddar biscuits. We have some actual cheddar biscuits. Wow. I mean. Holy smokes. Get in there. Mm. Wow. Should we give her the super air horn for that? Some real cheddar biscuits. She's very thoughtful. Oh, my God. Fresh out of the oven, these babies. Mm -hmm. Cheddar. I don't even remember the last time we talked about them a lot, but I'm going to be honest with you. I don't eat them much, buds. I don't eat them much. No? Yeah, um, it's good to have a, brev a beverage uh, to be able to compliment. They, you know, mm -hmm. good. Bread. cheddar biscuit will dry Ooh, out if you don't have yeah, some butter on delicious. it. This is delicious. I mean, look, I, I think there's a. Uh, <laughs> all right, we could start. We could start it this way. The uh, like contest wise, because you know uh, the, the early days, like a big part of my you know income was like trying to you know earn cash at, at events. And, you know, the earliest days of, like, holy shit, this is real, would be, like, going to Japan and doing the, the Tokyo Dome contest. That, that contest was so legendary because of how all the riders were treated and the fact that you had the Tokyo Dome Stadium with, like, 50,000 people in it just going nuts for a snowboarding competition. Um, and then at the end of that, you got paid in cash. Like, you left. Or, you know, the next morning, you roll in super hungover and you go and you pick up your money and you know it's like you you did well at that contest it was two days of competition quarter pipe and a uh, big air and you know you there was times we we're walking with like thirty thousand forty thousand bucks and you had like in yen and a car well the car you could like cash out because there's no sense in taking the, the hard Nissan to check Astro. the car yeah hard to, <laughs> hard to yeah, check yeah. it on the airplane you can't carry it on yeah um 
so that was always fun. And then you like breaking up the money, like flying back with your with your crew. Uh, fuck, I had some friends who like lost like four grand. No. Yeah, like flying back and I don't know. They're all lost four grand. <laughs> yeah, it was like I think it was Gabe Langlois, Kurt Morgan. I don't know what happened, dude? <laughs> We were flying we back. I wouldn't give buds any of that <laughs> if I were you flying back. You would be the one to Dude, lose it. I don't, I don't know what happened. <laughs> like legitimate, just like, you know, disappeared in like the freaking seat back or something. I don't know, drinking on a plane. And <laughs> But um, the, 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 the biggest payday um, contest would be the, uh, the Boost Mobile Pro in Chicago. Mm. Uh, that event was insane. There was a lot of like sell, sell money, and then Boost Mobile was going big. Um, there was some friendlies at the helm of the marketing department with Boost, and um, yeah, they did that. It's like Soldier Stadium, I think, in Chicago. And uh, there was like a best trick, and then there was a win, and it was a jump into a quarter pipe. And I think on paper I won 80G um, because I got best trick and I won the event. But the but like the it was kind of scrappy. the The contest was kind of scrappy, and um, you know, there's a there's an old, you know, old kind of cultural norm that, that stemmed, I think, primarily from Europe with snowboard competitions and splitting the prize money. We're like, that was a thing. Like, if the, the conditions weren't that good or, if it su- you know, if the weather sucked or if it was just a group of people that were like, ah, fuck it, let's just split the prize money, you know, then there's no competition. And so going into Boost Mobile, um, the conditions were not that good, but it was rideable. And they did a vote like prior to it, and you know the vote was like, all right, we're going to run the contest as is. So we run the event, do it, I win, and then um, fucking David uh, Benedict. Thank you. I want to <laughs> say Beckham. All right, scratch that. Um, and then David uh, David Benedict kind of like rallied this crew around like post event, like let's take a vote. We should split it. And so it turned into this freaking kind of drama. And it was kind of half-half, but majority voted to split, but they had already run the contest. So they ended up doing this weird thing where they, like, split part of it. And I think I still got, like, 55 grand. Mm. But I didn't get that full 80. After you won, though, that's a little weird. It was a little weird. seems like that's a pre-contest discussion to me. Oh, wait a second. (laughs) Um, But, you know, and that was, you know, I've always adhered to the 10% rule. Um, You know, sometimes it's hard to achieve, but... You know, I grew up in the realm of like, no, you won money, like you're 10%. Let's go. Um, 10% rule is 10% at the bar. Uh, It'd be 5,500 bucks that night. Yeah, it it was a it was a big night. That's a big spend. Yeah, I don't know if I always nailed it, but I sometimes I went over and yeah, 5,500. Yeah, probably didn't hit that. Yeah. Um, and then you know, rolling into the films like, um. Yeah, I mean, it takes resources to do these big projects. And, you know, Community Project was the start of, like, all right, like, let's solidify a budget to go out and, and try to achieve what we didn't think was achievable. Um, so I think that kind of started, like, you know, pushing the pushing the boundaries of, of, like, what, like, a real budget. You know, I think our budget for that film was a little north of half a million bucks, which at the time, like, that was a lot of money to... Uh, to put into a film, you know, and that kind of started, started it. Yeah, this is going to be a masterclass on how we burn some budge. That's what <laughs> we're going to talk about here. How to burn some budge. I mean, half a mil is still, that's a, that's, 
not a it's a big budget. It's not a small budget. Yeah, and that was in like, like even now. So so community project comes out, your inaugural, like you're kind of the quarterback, I'll say you're quarterback in this thing, you're self funding, uh, all that type of stuff. And then you do more with Absinthe, which is a great video part. And then we also kind of skipped over DC Mountain Lab, which is a great time in, time in history. Uh, but then that's when the, the shit really went from uh, you cranked it up to 12, you know, on a scale of 1 to 10 with that's it, that's all. Uh, I want you to kind of just spill the whole beans on that's it, that's all, because <laughs> that kind of changed, I think, the culture and the, the size of the jumps and the progression of the sport drastically. Love it. I love how covered in cheddar bisque you are right Dude, now, too. By the way, <laughs> thank you. These are delicious. Those are really good. Yeah. Yeah, Brooke. Yeah, um, thank you, Brooke. Yeah, I mean, covered in the bisque. Right. We uh, we wrapped up community project with like a, a pretty epic premiere tour. Like that was so fun. Um, and you know, hats off to everyone from you know Hawkinson, Andy Finch, dude, Tyler Lapore, uh, Colin Langlois. So many great guys came out and shredded that thing. And um, I think it wasn't actually too much further down the road that, like, dude, Tyler Lapore. If we could just go off on a quick tangent yep that guy uh such good style such an interesting enigma of a human and like i don't know if you guys have talked about his exit from snowboarding on this show (laughs) you know about his exit it seemed abrupt it well you know he for him it was just it came to a point right and he was like i got other interests in life like this was great snowboarding was fun but um i think it was like real last year he uh he made a zine, and so he uh, he basically mm-hmm. shot this this whole zine with all these like artistic like scenes where he was like posing butt naked, just freaking hog out, like on the mantle, like on a fruit platter, like you know this really artistically done zine. And he went to uh, he went to the snowboard trade show that year, and just started freaking passing out these freaking zines to everybody, <laughs> and that was his like. And then he kind of, yeah, retired. That was his plan to exit that the old, way? D- that was the old dong exit. out yeah, exit. The old dong out later, <laughs> yeah. guys. Wow. Letting the chopper breathe. Got to respect that. <laughs> For everyone to see. Printed. <sighs> yeah, respect. That's confi- a confident human, I'll tell you yeah. that. Yeah, I think he, he went into uh, into bicycles. Like, he's mm-hmm. engineer. I don't know what he's doing now, but smart, smart guy. Artist. Yeah, a um, big artist. I remember catching him. He'd go to Japan and just cruise around and do street art. Mm-hmm. Very creative guy. Yeah, so uh, I think, you know, we finished that, and, you know, inevitably when you're working on a project and, you know, you got creatives, Rich and Kurt, myself, and you have all these ideas, right? You can only do so much. And the ma- I find the majority of the ideas come towards the end where it's like, you know, the classic, and that's what a majority of snowboard films are. It's like shoot now, like edit and put it together later. Like, respect to when things are thought out and there's foresight. Um, so, you know, we're in post. We finished the community, and I think we kind of realized that it's like, we, like this was amazing, but we, we, this is just like the instigation. Um, so took a year off, rolled with absence. So great to be back with those guys, getting back up into AK with them. And then we kind of laid, laid the plans for what later become – later became that's it that's all and it kind of started with um 
it started with like cinematography and like how we were going to showcase the filming and these like up until that's it that's all i felt that we had never done a good job of portraying these you know fantastically beautiful locations that we get to go you know i would show a video part to my folks you know and it didn't tell anything about the places we are yeah a couple couple block off shots of you know some beautiful place but and so um, I was in New Zealand, and I stayed on for a couple of weeks, do some vacation um, with my lady at the time. And we ended up going down to this, you know, little town south of Queenstown. We went to this like beautiful theater that this guy Peter Thompson had helped create, and he shot this film called Shadowlands, which was a aerial cinematography, like South Island, just you know, thirty minute film, just like flying around the mountains, and it was the first. Um, Cineflex. So he had the aerial gyro Cineflex system. And I got that, I bought one of the DVDs, went home, and, um, you know, I think it helped inform. And at the same time, Kurt Morgan was, you know, he's always been in tech. And at the same time, you know, he wanted to use, uh, like, the West Cam, which was this ridiculously large bubble camera. You know, they were shooting Hollywood films, like the best Hollywood films with West Cam. And so we kind of went into that's it, that's all with this idea of trying to step up the cinematography um, game. And Kurt, you know, we started that film the following year in New Zealand. So I did more. And then that summer we went down and Kurt had like brokered some, you know, Kurt's a hustler. And he had like brokered some deal with this guy Peter Thompson to come and like let us use the system um, pretty much at cost. And same deal. Like I... I self-funded the whole start of that's it, that's all. Like, I don't know, probably put in 30 grand or something, which was a lot at that time. Um, equipment, heli time, all the stuff. And then we came back from that New Zealand trip and we had our like pitch and we like went to Red Bull and like, we want to make this film. And they ended up like, all right, we, we got you fully supported, um, brought on some other partners. And then that was like two years of, it was about two years of work and you know we went back the following year, year to New Zealand again I mean the New Zealand segment alone in that film is so so beautiful and you know the, the time we spent in Jackson and we I mean it was like full on um but you know we were head down you know we, we had the best riders coming out with us you know that was like the first project I worked with Mark Landwick on having having Lando on the team he's he's a straight motivator and he's a comic he's like a he's a gifted comic um we just had an incredible time i mean we had nicholas we had freaking terrier we had so many great writers come out for that film um and you know probably skipping over a bunch but we decided to premiere the film in new zealand because that's where we had started it and you know in wanaka we, you know, brought in like the best screen in New Zealand, got the sound right, and that film I think was in 1080, which was like a big deal. Like looking back, Community Project, we output that project to 480, which if you watch it today, it's like <laughs> like Instagram clips upload at higher res than 480. Um, and so when we did our premiere of That's It, That's All in Wanaka, 
like a lot of people were there for it and I don't think people were ready. I don't think we were ready for what it was that like we had actually shot and created like the natural history components with like how we captured, you know, the writing in it. And, and frankly, like just the two year hustle of like working with the best in the world with the, you know, ain't no bullshit. We're here to freaking throw hammers. Um, that premiere was super memorable in just how it affected people. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we proceeded to do the just most psycho like world tour, that premiere tour. We were all single, about killed us. There's some nitty gritty we got to get into with uh, snowboard nerd talk uh, with that's it, that's all. Um, <clears throat> you know, you you love the cinematography. I, I, I just went back and, and revisited it. And my favorite section, actually, that, that stuck out the most to me... <laughs> When you guys are like smashing at all the trees, when you guys are like flying off the wedge and doing all like the Miller flips and taps and like, I mean, there's a lot. That was, that was unbelievable. I totally like for some reason I that didn't register you and you and Lando going Richter on that. I mean, like straight up Lando's Miller flip on the top of that tree was like one of the one of the most incredible things that I've ever seen go down in person. Because it's one thing to watch that on film, but to be standing there like looking at this situation, like we were tapping it, you know, with our boards and stuff. And the fact that he like Miller flipped it and got the top of the tree. Um, dude, Ian Walsh was out that day. We put him on a sled, first time sledding. He came out and he, he was like right there, watched that whole session. Watched Lando uh, Miller flip the tree. Um, yeah, that was, I mean, it was just incredible times. Like what, what, what was, possible with you get like a, a core group of riders and you just you know focus and work hard up every day before the sunrise out there that was in like january getting clips in january is not easy mm -hmm. usually january is kind of a write-off <laughs> totally so going back to that's that's it that's all i'm curious so you're like you got the cineflex you got the budget from red bull you're quarterback in the project you are the guy you're the guy right what type of mentality did you have with what you're trying to do in the process of making that's it that's all like what was your mindset I mean I would say you know more focused than I feel like I've ever been with just like we are going to succeed like we are going to make this happen you know, we got, we got no excuses. Any like, you know, come, you know, any coming up short, it, it was on us. Like, and I think to be in that position and be empowered to like really go for it. I mean, I think it goes back to like all of my experiences from the first film crews working with, like all the time with Absinthe and the time spent with Grenade and all of the contests and, you know, all of that like led to like all of the films that I've loved to watch over the years, that that all helped to like inform the approach that we took with that film. And, you know, hats off to, you know, our whole film crew, you know, from Gabe Langlois to, I mean, we had such a great team that was willing to put in the effort. You know, everyone was up early. We were bringing back, you know, like, freaking boom jib cameras and you know playing with different you know cutting edge camera systems that were pain in the ass to use i remember uh for this session where 
Um, I think I ended up getting like a couple double corks back to back on uh, this thing called the Hawk and Roller, um, which was a jump that Gooch brought Hawk into way back in the day. I think it was in subject. Um, actually, right above the pisser, you got Kevin Jones triple backing. That was <laughs> that was the uh, the Hawk and Roller. It's funny how the naming game works with things because most of the time, like. You know, like Terrier especially. He's got, like, stuff named after him all over the world that, like, someone brought him there. Like, a notable figure brought him there, and he did something. And because it's the local spot, like, like Gooch wasn't going to take, like, oh, the Gooch rollers, right? <laughs> or, like, we got, like, the, the Hawk and Hip. Like, you know, Pittman and all those guys had that thing beat in for years, mm -hmm. and then Hawk did a method, and then it stuck. Mm -hmm. Funny how it's it yeah, There's about 15 MFM jumps in yeah, Utah. Yeah, MFM jumps are just everywhere. <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think back to like the mindset and approach, it was just, you know, we were not going to fail. I mean, I think that was our mindful approach was like, we are not going to fail. We're going to give it literally, we're going to leave everything on the table mm -hmm. and we're going to work harder than anyone's ever worked on a, on a film project. That was our mentality. You can see it too, working hard because these cheese wedges, you could yeah. take a fucking semi truck off of. They're like 15 feet wide. And and going back to thinking about this, I think it came out two thousand seven ish somewhere around there. Let's just say give or take for my uh, point of reference here. But so in two thousand seven, that's it. That's all came out. You guys are going maybe the biggest as far as freestyle backcountry snowboarding has ever seen. As far as airtime wedges riding AK, like it was just it to me. It felt maybe like the pinnacle of going fucking huge do you feel like snowboarding is regressing in some ways in that regard well <clears throat> i think that the other combination you know the other factor with that film was like the edit too like the edit that kurt did on the final product of that of that shoot was incredible like i think about the the new zealand snow park edit to that justice song where like is some of the best best like rhythmic stylized editing that I've ever seen with all of the work that he did. And I mean, did the avalanches that we captured like down in New Zealand with the, with the Cineflex system. Um, I think, I think it was like all of those factors and you know, with, with like whatever, like today's day and age, man, I think it's just, like things progress and things evolve and like yeah, writing's progressed. Like what what guys are doing on you know wedges in the backcountry now. Like yeah, it's it's there's some stuff that's beyond. There's a couple things that fucking hold up, but um, I think it comes down to like if people are crewed up and are willing to put the work in. Like that was kind of always my my mantra. You know, it was like I'm gonna work harder than anyone else. Um, and those films, like those wedges and everything, you know, all that stuff. It's like, we put the time in. Like, there wasn't any days off. Like, it was storming out. All right, we're going to go build. And we're going to make sure that we shoot this jump when the light's perfect. We're going to show up in the dark and be ready when the sun comes up. And that's something that I think whatever over the years, you know, I watch a lot of film projects. And, and you know, a lot of people do incredible work, but when I see that shot where it's like they're hitting the jump and you can tell that they missed it by like two hours and it's shady, you know, for me, I'm like, oh, should have got up earlier. <laughs> um, 
I don't know. I, I think the other component too is like, you know, we were still in the golden age of, uh, of like the snowboard film. Like there was no social media. Like the film came out and that was like the thing. You went and you bought it. Like I think, you know, That's It, That's All was like one of the first like streamed, like buy it on iTunes kind of flicks. Like I don't know if Community Project was, was like streamed. Um, I think I was still like physical copy. Um, so I think that also changed, right? Because, you know, you work so hard for this like huge end product. And it was, it was really, it was like, it meant a lot to work for this end, this end like art piece. And I think like that's it, that's all is when it kind of started to transition for me at least to like that artistic component, especially with like Kurt behind the helm. You know, it was about building this, you know, artistic cacophony of like lighting, cinematography, music, like the edit, you know, the build, um, you know, gives me goosebumps to think because, you know, we were in the edit bay, the pain cave, and that's where all that stuff comes together. And uh, we just worked our freaking cheeks off. I talked a little bit to Tim Zimmerman because he gave us a photo of you from that, uh, movie which is awesome we're gonna have signed prints truffle pig yeah the truffle pig booter oh the truffle pig yeah, yeah. Awesome. but he kind of uh went into some of the build sessions and how gnarly they really were and maybe you'd be like at a zone where there's crevasses underneath and just like like for him it was almost not too much but it was just the most intense thing he had dealt with and even the builds were scary yeah, and the work that went into it was just so next level, and I guess the proofs and the results, and well, and I think it goes back to like, you know, so much gratitude for like the team of people that were behind that. We had such a, such a badass, you know, crew of people that were will, you know, and it was like whether you're a photographer, cinematographer, like key grip, um, everyone was was shoveling. Stony buds would have thrived in that environment. Yeah, definitely <laughs> thrived at Truffle Pig. <laughs> Um, key grip. What's a key grip even do these days? Out well, there? so so truffle pigs was a project we put out. Much, that was much later. Like, no, wasn't that the name of that jump? No, though? oh I no, truffle pigs was a project we put out. Yeah, two thousand oh, okay. fifteen or whatever. But yeah, so that was much later. That jump. Oh, okay. Um, so gotcha. I wanted to bring something up here. Uh, you know, talking about that's it. That's all. Somewhere in that time frame, you switched from riding Rosie to Lib. But before we get to that. There, I think there's a shot of you in the teaser on a forum. <laughs> yeah, How yeah. I, I, uh, so yeah, what's going on? You almost read for forum. Yeah, so you the know, forum nine. I was like Rosignol was Rosignol became a, a the 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 crew behind Rosignol in like the first five years, like the early two thousands. Um, like I would argue that. I would argue that there was a couple years there where there was the best team in snowboarding. And I stand by that statement. Like how deep the roster went. There was like 15, you know, people. JF Pelshat to like Benji Ritchie to, you know, Jonas Emery, Todd Richards to, uh, I mean, dude, we had, uh, I don't know, it, it, the, the roster is deep. I wish I had it lined up in front of me. Um, and then, the classic, like, you know, sad brand story, you know, it was all based out of Vermont. And then, you know, France basically, you know, turned into RS and we all had a lot of like, you know, I had my first pro model. Um, I think I did two years of Rossi pro model. 
had Brian Agucci do the bass with his uh, Don't Feed the Monster, kind of anti-corporate, like, you know, these monsters that he was painting. And my buddy Ryan Hayworth was, did the top sheet. <laughs> um, and then Europe, RS Europe, like, took it back. And they're like, oh, we got to get back on brand. Here's the cock. And here's the, like, ski font. And at that point, it just imploded. And I was like, all right, like, I'm out. And, you know, at that time, trying to figure out, you know, what I was going to do, where I was going, and, um, you know, had some connections with TM at, at Forum. And, um, you know, it was kind of this, like, what do you think about Forum? And I was like, well, you know, like, Forum's Forum. Like, um, you know, respect to what those guys built. And I almost signed with Forum, wrote it for a while. Yeah, wrote the community project uh, was it community project? That's what that's all. You might have been. I think it was community project trailer. Yeah, yeah, because you were actually, I think, in more. You're on a lib, so that would make sense. Yeah, so community project trailer was like, you know, wrote a lib, wrote a forum, and I kind of couldn't really get past the like. I don't know. It just didn't feel right for me. Like, it, you know, forum was like too cool. I just it wasn't me. Like. You know, I grew up in Wyoming, kind of a weirdo. Like, I was not, I don't know. It was this, like, image and persona that I just didn't, like, feel connected to. And, you know, Bob McKnight, God bless him, from Quicksilver. <clears throat> Quicksilver at the time uh, owned Lib. Um, they kind of, him and with Cersei, and because that was, like, kind of the dream company for me. Uh, the first board I ever spent money on was my buddy Eric Risland and I. We actually like, we pooled our money and we bought what we thought were the best products on the market. And we got the like wheat-based Jamie Lynn Lib. And for some reason we bought a pair of Flows. (laughs) 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 You know, this is like, we're like 15 or something. And and we would kind of go back and forth. Like he'd ride that board for a couple days and then I'd get a ride at change the stance and we'd kind of go back and forth, which you know, Eric Rislin, man, is a name that you guys don't know, but, you know, if there was another person who I grew up with that was, like, trajectory, like, he would have been freaking pro right there. Um, but he didn't make it. He ended up, like, getting into some, like, you know, stupid adolescent, like, legal issues and ended up, you know, kind of caught up in the system a little bit. Um, but he was, he was, like, the best snowboarder that I knew growing up. Um, and he didn't make it. Uh, I mean, he's still alive. He's a great guy. Um, but fast forward, you know, this this like lib lib thing came together, and you know, I had been on Oakley for outerwear and really loved like the Oakley crew and team for all those years. We got so much support, but you know, they had kind of changed their focus a little bit, and they kind of ended up dogging Maddie Swanson a little bit, which I think was pretty whack. And so I ended up, yeah. Last minute Hail Mary, Bob McKnight put this deal together with Lib and Quicksilver, and it was just the, the dream deal. You know, it's like five years, just, you know, and part of it was um, natural selection. Like, we will, like, natural selection was the idea that we had come up with, and part of the deal was twofold. It was like, we'll commit to titling natural selection, and for the first year, you're only deliverable. This was the best part. You're only deliverable 
was you got to come up to Tyax and go on a heli trip with me. Wow. Was basically the like first year deliverables for that that contract with with Quick and Bob McKnight. Um, with Bob actually. With Bob. Wow. Bob was like, yeah, and it was it was just like come up and shred. It's um, a sweet deliverable. So. Yeah, that was like a, a, a huge turning point. He's just basking in, in cheddar bisque. Yeah, he's he sprinkled like, all over himself. Yeah, he just makes the contracts that he gets to hang and ride with you. <laughs> what a G. Yeah, it, well, the beautiful part, man, was that they were they were willing to like um, invest into snowboarding too, right? Like with the film projects and with, um, you know, especially with natural selection. Like that event wasn't happening without Bob McKnight um, and Jackson Hole Mountain Resort. Both like green lighting to commit to that, and the first one was called the Supernatural. No, it was oh, yeah. Natural Selection. Oh, was it was Natural one. Selection uh, was the first one. Okay, so yep. Supernatural was Bald Phase. Supernatural was Bald Phase. Okay, that makes sense. Yep. Did I remember when those uh, cock ads started coming out from Rosignol? That's yeah, that's awesome that you made. That you were like, all right, I'm out of here. Yeah, well, it, it just, totally made that ski line like a direct line to skiing, basically. Well, dude, Christine McConnell, God bless her soul, yeah. like East Coast freaking snowboard culture. Pat Bernier was uh, like, you know, Caleb Brown, who went on to like, you know, found Doozy. You know Doozy? I don't know what Doozy is. Dude, he, he, uh, it's a little company where they, they, make, uh, they make beer koozies for 40s. <laughs> oh, mm. wow. <laughs> yeah, Doozy. We actually, uh, that was the, the opening night for the first natural selection competition was um, we did the seating for the event, mechanical bull riding. Wow. And and uh, everyone got 40 PBR 40s with tuxedoozies, tuxedo dress doozies. <laughs> oh, wow. And there was like multiple On 40s. Multiple uh, shoulder injuries. <laughs> Dude, <I bet. laughs> like the day before the contest started. It's a good way to thin yeah. out the herd there yeah, a little bit for Travis. Herd, see who's yeah, who. that's smart. <laughs> yeah, that's I did really too. well. I think I think Mark Carter won that won mm-hmm. that uh Makes sense. He's a natural. Yeah. Makes sense. He's got all the experience. Um, Yeah, but I mean, whatever hats off to, you know, what what that crew, you know, founded with with Forum and what that was. But it just wasn't me. It was like too much of a like cool guy image. So how do we get to Lib? So, you know, basically flew up, (laughs) met with the whole Lib team. you know, and it's such a, like a family run business, um, that I just did. It was instant. The first meeting was just like, Oh, this is my people. These are my people. These guys are kind of weird and they're willing to like everything they do. It's so like funny, sarcastic. They have so much fun with it and their boards are truly incredible. Um, and my favorite part about that year and the board that I was going to get, like we had talked, I was going to get a pro model, right? But it was going to take a year. And so that first year, I got to ride Jamie Lynn's freaking Blue Girl board. And so the base was just, you know, these giant blue tits <laughs> was like the full base. And I got so much mileage out of that base. Like, because I was still heavy in the contest scene, going to X Games and stuff. And like, dude, just, just waving those little freaking sweater, sweater puppies. <laughs> <laughs> On camera. You probably helped Jamie well, well, speaking, with some, speaking some of uh, which, pro model or some money. I, I hope so. I think yeah. that board did really well. Yeah, the year. amount that you were writing it. I actually happen to have another guest question from none other than Jamie Lynn. Woo. Here we go. Hey, Travis. It's Jamie. I have a question for you. You've always had awesome graphic submissions. What's been your inspiration, both past and present, 
to choose the graphics you put on your boards each year. Amen, man. Coming from, coming from the guy, like some of the best graphics out there. Um, well, being a young, you know, impressionable uh, teen where, you know, I was so, couldn't get enough of the culture, loved it. And, you know, you, you could tell that like these companies that really were, you know, at the forefront, like graphics, board graphics, like that's what it was. Like it was the, the, the snowboard is, you know, it's not just this like little riding toy, you know, it's like part of your identity. You know, this thing is not only the shield that protects you all winter, um, you know, it's this like powerful device that for me was like taking me around the world and it was such a key component to snowboarding. And, you know, growing up and kind of hearing like legend lore, like Mikey Perillo, because Mikey Perillo had been up with, with Gooch and Jackson and, you know, Gooch was doing art and, you know, knew about Jamie and like Mike Perillo was kind of a legend. You know, Mike Perillo was like the, the guy who, um, he was building some of the first parks up in Big Bear. And, you know, he became an artist and just super gifted guy. And I think, I think one of the one of the, the board graphics probably had the most um, influence on me was like the balance. The it was like the face, the multi, you know, it was like five boards wide that Perillo did with Burton, and it was this balance series. And I, I don't know if it's because I like had stickers of it, but I just remember thinking that was so dope the way that it was like a graphic that went across all the different boards. Um, I, you know, the, the corn husk uh, board that Jamie put out, that was one of my favorites just because, like, we, we, we had one of those boards. <clears throat> but I really, you know, I had so much respect, and I, and I put these artists in such high regard. You know, they were, like, these people that I put up on pedestals because, like, I'm not really, like, a classical, you know, artist, right? And <clears throat> so I was just a fan. And... <laughs> through the years and starting to be able to like play with doing my own art. And um, the first year on Rosie, get into that board. It was funny too, because right about the same time they went to the cock, um, I convinced them it was a super good idea to like make a board that didn't have a graphic on the base. <laughs> no logo. <laughs> just graphic, but no logo. Yeah, it just, it just had the like, the, the don't feed the monster uh, yeah. logo that, uh, that Gooch did. Mm -hmm. I was like, no, it'll be sick. Like, no. Just because you didn't want to People will wonder it. what company it is, you know? <laughs> and, um, but, you know, getting to, uh, you know, start to do that process and collaborate with artists um, was something like one of my favorite things to this day that I get to do. And, you know, Quincy Quigg was the artist that I got to first do my, my first pro model with Lib with. And we did this crazy graphic where I think it was like when, you know, Bush, it was like the Bush, you know, first election. And, and so talking with Quincy, you know, it was great because I just went off in this whole narrative about like what, what was going on in politics, like what's happened with our you know, world. And we put all of this like whole political conversation into this graphic that, that Quincy freaking laced out and Lib was all for it. Like, yeah, let's just do it. Um, and that kind of started it. And then the following year, I got to, like, reach out to Mike Perillo and hit him up. Like, Perillo, well, you know, he was still kind of this, like, elusive figure for me and got to work with um, Mikey on this, on this, 
this first like yellow graphic it was called the contradiction. Um, and dude, I still remember like in LA, like going and finding him and like going into his apartment. And, and it was like, dude, this like weird setup of all his like, you know, stuff and organized clutter. And he had like a freaking military parachute was his whole like ceiling. And I don't know, it just, it, 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 had, it had an impression on me. So we started this graphic and he probably worked on it for two or three weeks. And I think, I don't think he was in like the healthiest like situation in LA. And we got him, I think it was for Gucci's wedding in Jackson, Gucci's getting married. And we got him to come out to Jackson and he came and he finished the painting in Jackson. And that kind of set this, I think, tone and precedent for what I, you know, for the last, whatever, 13 years have kind of followed with when you go and you collaborate with an artist, like you got to show up and, and, and put as much energy in to them. And so I've always, you know, reached out a lot of, you know, humility, respect, and I try to build these narratives and present those narratives to an artist. I've put some crazy like storyboards together for people over the years. And then it's like, Hey, take it and run with it. Like it's your style. Like, I don't want you to compromise what you want to do with the art, but, but you know, I could go back every single board graphic, man. It's like too much meaning, too many secret little things hidden in the paintings. Um, yeah, it's been a freaking joy for me. Well said. Uh, love it. Good fit at Lib. You look good on those things. And uh, I think we might go back to some video stuff. But before we do, buds, oh, do you know what time I is it? I think I do. What time is it? Name that video part. Uh, how's your confidence level zero through ten on name that video part? I mean, I tend to uh, I tend to be a take a recklessly optimistic approach to life. <laughs> so, no matter what, no matter what you're doing, huh? I've never I've never heard that term, it's recklessly o- optimistic. I'm uh I'm gonna go with with ten, yes. assuming that I'm ten ten's gonna help manifest me not blowing like a, a low hanging fruit mm-hmm. pick I like that it. I should have nailed. Yeah, we talked about. I, I kind of tried to ask for some information of like any genre, and I, he provided basically nothing. No information. And so, well, this well, is. Well, and our last guest got it without even listening. So, yeah. Let's see how you do. Here we go. <laughs> Definitely going to get flagged for that extended play. Yeah, all good. Um, Great song, though. Yeah, absinthe film. Um, <laughs> but off to a bad start. <laughs> off to a bad start. <laughs> off to a bad start. Oh, maybe it's just the like, the the how the familiar familiarity of. Um, okay, so if it's not absinthe, let's work through this. I can give you some little crumbles. Give me a crumble. Yeah, hey, give me some crumbies. There was a roller you mentioned earlier, a particular jump. A roller. That this person might have had an influence on. Okay, so then, mm. you know, obviously the, the cheat stance. So that must have been, that must have been subject. There it is. Yeah. Well, you, all he needs is a little guidance. A little guidance. <laughs> the intro to Subject Hawkinson. Yeah. Uh, I'll, uh. I'll, I'll take a halfie on that one. Yeah, we'll give you a halfie. You, you still get the prize Here's pack. Here's your prize pack. You got a Dude. Yeti carry-all filled with bomb hole merch. 
You might find that on like uh, all the items in there on Craigslist in Jackson Hole in, in about a month. But uh, no, no, they'll be on Cindy. <laughs> the uh, thank you. I mean, dude, Yeti makes the best freaking shit, and yep. I'm, I'm not just saying that because I'm partnered with those guys. We got bombhole sweatpants this... for you in there, bombhole hats, bombhole hoodies, dude, all the... available bombhole.com. Yeah, which as it should be, man. You guys got you guys got the best brand in snowboarding right now. <laughs> Woo! Can we uh, make sure to save that yeah, and we save can that. use that for something later, please? Yeah, with an Julian. E stone gnome. Oh, you got the, the gnome. gnome. Yeah, we got the e gnome. Thank you. Very kind. <laughs> too too good. Um, okay, and then for part two of name that video part, this is for the listeners. If you know what song this is, comment on the photo of Travis on our Instagram when his episode comes out. That's where we pick our winner. Okay, here we go. Okay, thank you for playing in that video part. Travis, <laughs> you ever hit a smelling salt before? Oh, um, it's. I think I played with one like a couple decades ago. <laughs> played with one. Seen enough. And so, uh, oh, dude, 35% alcohol? I don't know, is it? I I've never read the label. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if it's alcohol or ammonia. I think that's ammonia is what you're looking at. Looking at. <laughs> well, it says alcohol. Oh, it does. Okay. Right. Um, what do you do? Just give it a little crack? Squeeze and it, and then just ease it up to your nose. Or if you're Travis style, you might go all in and give it a... Holy <laughs> fluvial <laughs> fertile plain of Astoria. Oh... He went oh, deep. Shit. Mm. Oh my god. That's incredible. Strong. Oh. Wow. Woo. All right. I needed that. <laughs> Speaking in tongues over there. Wow. That really wake you up. All right. Dude, I had a stuff up, stuffed up nose. Not anymore. Yeah. <sighs> Penetrates deep. That's a deep penetration there. That's that what is that is. <laughs> it's a deep penetration. <laughs> All right. So Which one of these walls do you think I can get through? <laughs> All of them. Well, where you're going, you don't you don't need doors. Just know that where you're going, you don't need doors. You just go straight through the wall. All right. Uh, go get this thing back on the rails here. Woo. So we we talked. That's it. That's all. And then you went on to do a few more parts. Obviously, the Neverland horse part uh, is worth <laughs> mentioning. Riding around on a galloping horse. It's phenomenal. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you want to touch on that, but then we get right into... Yeah, I'm going to touch on Neverland. Yeah, yeah let's touch on it. Uh, the, what I, my favorite memories of Neverland were, A, I somehow talked Jared Slater into coming out and, and filming for it, which Jared Slater, you guys don't know, yeah. he's, he's responsible for uh, so many great things in snowboarding. Um, and to have him come out as a cinematographer, putting him through the paces every day out there in the backcountry. And the, the other beauty was that um, I had Dan Breezy with me. And Crazy this was Dan. my first time, like, filming with Breezy. I think it was kind of his first time, really, like, filming in the backcountry. And he came up to Jackson, staying with me. I got to know him. Such a funny kid um, who I think these days he's a, he's a damn – Empire. He's building yeah, an empire. No, nothing funny going on over there. He's like Scrooge McDuck, yeah. basically. <laughs> um, Guy but, owns buildings. But yeah, that was like that was such a freaking fun video part to put together, and uh, I put it together in three weeks. Like I wow. had a three week run, and called it. And for me, that was like the the I don't know the the sweetest run I felt I've ever been on. 
for, for film and conditions were just awesome. And, um, I think breezy was breezy was out like getting into it. And I think, you know, a, I was like on a tear and feeling it. Um, but riding with him, he was just like, what the fuck? <laughs> um, and then to see what, what breezy later went on to do, like, yeah, damn breezy, man. He's a beast and, and respect to his lady too. They were staying with me. I before. wonder if him seeing you in action like that is what got him to be such a beast. <laughs> the motivation. I mean, you know? there there might have been like a little bit of influence, but I think where Breezy took it, like that shit's internal. Yeah, like that that's coming He's from within. That, huh? yeah, yeah, that's that's not like oh, I saw this one guy doing something, <laughs> and I, you know, that it's self motivated. Yeah, uh, that's that, a deep fire. Deep. That's shorty fire burning on the dance floor, if you will. <laughs> yeah, for real. Somebody uh, call nine one one. Somebody called nine one one. So going back, uh, you also you you mentioned your tricks. You didn't talk about the horse though. Oh yeah, True. man. I just was looking for ultimate weirdness with that part. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's this piece of property up above my house and you know, it came to the end and you know, I knew we really didn't have much and Hosnick was like, I got a you know, got a pretty good the part's pretty sweet. Like, what do you want to do with it? And so I was like, Oh, I'm gonna get a white stallion and go just freaking bareback that thing. And sure enough, found like a, you know, someone who was kind enough to like bring this white horse out. And I fully lied through my teeth and like my horse skills. Like, do you know how to ride a horse? And <laughs> I was like, yeah, yeah, I'm good. I got it. Like, yeah. And, you know, I'd been on a horse a few times, but I was not a horse person. And went straight bareback with like no hands, bareback, full faith. Just like, all right, we got to get this shot. Here we go. Just stay on it. Throw the hat. And uh, it was just a fun, fun shoot. I mean, hail to the skit. Yeah. <laughs> no experience. And I just write to bareback. Recklessly optimistic. Yeah, recklessly he puts optimi- it. That's and, and then I think Shane Charlebaugh picked the song. I didn't pick that song, but the song was freaking too good. That was some fuego. All right, some more reckless optimism here. Uh, Art of Flight, Larger Than Life. Part two. This is where this is Travis and in all his glory, uh, bomb dropping out of Red Bull helicopters and <laughs> getting it. Yeah, man, rolling in. Uh, Art of Flight was the first project where I didn't have to like self fund the first part and then sell it. You know, which like, you know, just quick sidebar. Um, you know, I think one of the things that when I look back to why I was able to like fast track, yeah, I think some of the success I had with like, you know, filmmaking and whatnot is um, I was always willing to like invest in myself. Like I had a bunch of friends and we, you know, we all had like these little deals in the beginning that, you know, they had travel budget and, um, but you'd like kind of bl- tend to blow through your budget. And I had a lot of friends who were like, oh, like I'm done for the winter. Like I don't have any more travel budget. Like, I'm not going to spend my own money to, like, you know, go chase this. And for me, I was I was always on the on the other side of it. I'm like, dude, but, like, this is, like, an investment in your future. Like, invest in yourself. And, you know, there's a couple people that did that, but I always, you know, probably did it, you know, almost a little too much and, like, you know, put your money and effort to, your, you know, into what, what it is you want to do. And, and, like, the community project, that's it. That's all. Like, those films only happen because, like, took the risk and self-funded those projects and then brought them to someone like, see, like, this is what we're going to do. You know, and proof's in the pudding. Um, Kurt was always big on building, you know, pro way over the top decks, printing books of like, here's, here's our plan. Um, 
and so you know the art of flight we had finally like earned our way uh, you know the ability to like start the project um and again you know hats off to red bull for like <clears throat> willing to take the uh you know take that risk with us ultimately um and that was kind of the foundation of brain farm too so you know the year leading into uh to the art of flight was the formation of brain farm um and you know kurt was was uh basically taking this professionalism and the cinematography to another level and you know kurt kurt as he does like kurt went big and he went and he found some investment and you know found the funds to like tool up and you know literally like the, the 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 production that he put together and then you know the 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 people that he hired onto the brain farm team um that kind of set the basis for what like art of flight became you know kurt um you know, he brought on you know greg wheeler formerly silent um <laughs> greg wheeler you know we had steven sherba come on bungie jared slater was on um you know uh Gabe Langlois, and then, you know, Anthony Vitelli worked with us. We, we worked with so many other people with Brain Farm. Um, Chad Jackson came on as producer, and, and then it was like, boom, we had this major thing. And all of the stuff that we wanted to do that we didn't get to do for That's It, That's All, like, that's where we started with the Art of Flight. Um, and, yeah, it was a wild two years. We, you know, we did, like, a whole year in Chile. Unfortunately, it was a pretty bad year chase like conditions all through Chile and um I think we kind of started the first year the first winter we ended our season with the Tordrillo trip and Lando John Jackson up to Tordrillo Mountain Lodge you know they were kind enough to like work with us for like a full month um we happened to hit it on a year like it was one of the best years ever and we were late uh, you know, we went up and started the project into April, <clears throat> but those mountains, you know, they're a little further from the coast, a little higher elevation, um, and held in winter. And that, that AK trip was just so, you know, on another level and what Lando and what John Jay were doing and how we were shooting it. Um, I mean, that like set the pace. We had a, we had a good year in Jackson. We had a good year filming, but that AK trip was just game changing. Revolutionary I, I got film. A question about the film: What kind of numbers is it at these days? I should know this. Should I should know <laughs> this? I don't, but um, it's got to be a lot after all the time it's been out now, you know. Well, I mean, I think it's safe to say I think it was like the most viewed. That's what, what I was getting at. Yeah, like I feel like time. it brought snowboarding yeah. into a new arena almost because it's something that went into a lot of homes that maybe yeah. wouldn't see snowboard videos. It went mainstream. Yeah, it went mainstream. Did yeah. you feel the effects of that uh, being the the marquee name on it? One hundred percent, man. Like, uh, you know, we did a, you know, for one, we did a psycho tour with that film to jump around with this project. But I think we did, you know, like forty forty five stop tour around the world for two months, um, and then on top of that, I mean, yeah, I did like I did Conan for that film. Um, late night talk shows, like the media. And I think just where where it landed, like 
you know, historically, culturally, it was like right at the beginning of social media, um, but it was still like the you know pinnacle when film was was king, and I don't know, you know, the soundtrack, you know, and the edit again, like hats off to Kurt and the whole edit team that like put that film together. Um, you know, it's the first time, you know, we were using like slow-mo. Like I think the, the cadence, right, was community project. We kind of like changed the game up with, with the format. And then Art of Fly, or then that's it, that's all. We brought in the whole aerial like the aerial cinematography, natural history, holy shit, like beautiful places around the world being able to truly showcase and almost bring some like, you know, empathy and first person, like relatability, uh, maybe not relatability, but people could like picture themselves in that area. And then um, Art of Flight, it was all of that plus like the slow-mo. Like you watch it today and there's like, there's too much slow-mo. But for the time, you know, we were the first ones to like be shooting with a phantom camera. Um, you know, scientific camera built for, yeah, hyper slow motion. Um, I don't know. It hit. It hit. <laughs> totally. That AK First trip, video part yeah. movie to go to on Conan, right? Yeah. Conan. Yeah. That's and, amazing. And that's the thing, too, is like you really were something where my dad or a normal human being that knows nothing about tricks can watch and appreciate, where in our little bubble of snowboarding, we tend to make snowboard videos that we hope our friends will like. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, man, it was it was a wild, it was a wild couple of years. I mean, the, there's so many stories from like all of the trips, but you know, like you mentioned, the, like the heli, like jumping off the basket, um, like so much of the stuff we did has some crazy backstory to it. But that one was pretty funny because, you know, this pilot Glenn, <clears throat> who super badass pilot, but um, we were up there and we'd been like talking about it, you know, because like back in the day. Like in Valdez, you know, OG, like riding up pontoon, um, you know, this heli with the peak was named pontoon because they first accessed it with heli with these helis that had like the inflatable like land and ocean uh, skids. And so, you know, having two guys ride up to pontoon to ride that face, um, you know, and then later Jeremy Jones getting like long lined in with the heli. And so we, kind of been joking around with, with the pilot like you know dude what, what do you think about jumping off the basket into the line and you know he was he was super into it he's like oh yeah yeah you know it was kind of coaxing us on and so the day the, the day that we did it it just happened to like work out you know and we were at this face it was midday and it, it kind of had the right approach it wasn't too huge and it was, you know we asked him like dude this, I think this is it can we do the basket ride he's like yeah yeah we can do it and Clark Fines, you know, shout out to Clark Fines, who has, uh, you know, helped us a ton, producer on fourth phase, uh, was our, you know, lead guide up in AK at the time. You know, he oversaw the safety on it, and it was pretty simple. It was literally just a strap carabiner, and I was just holding on to it. And, you know, we started up, and it was like, take it slow. But even going like 40, 50 miles an hour, the wind started to catch your board. And I was like kind of getting pulled off the basket. I was like, holding on to it. I was like, holy shit. So we kind of do a couple runs and, you know, I wanted that I, people have tried the, the bomb drop like multiple times in like surfing. Mike Bassett. Yeah, we got to go Mike Bassett. Yeah. Mike Bassett with like, 
Like, I don't know if there's ever been <laughs> like a, he should be the poster child for bomb hole. Yeah, yeah true. Huh? Because I don't know if there's been a bigger bomb hole. No, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, that like is the biggest. 120 foot to your back. Um, and so, you know, I wanted to have momentum. Like, I wanted to enter into it like a jump. It didn't make sense to jump into a tranny from like a static position. And it's one thing that I've reached out to a couple of surfers, you know, I see people try, try to bomb drop into trannies like on waves. The wave is never that steep and they're always trying to do it static. The wave's moving underneath. You got to overtake it. You got to have the trajectory to go into the tranny. And so anyways, it, it was like, all right, you know, roll it like 20 miles an hour. I'll just, I'll hop out at the right time and whatever. That worked. We got the clip. Clip was psycho. <laughs> and, you know, and then like four months later, and we had a conversation you know, with, with them, like, hey, we got the footage, you know, like, we totally collaborate, we're down to, you know, see how this thing plays out. We understand that it might, you know, this might not be cool to show this. Like, we don't know what the legal ramifications of this are. And and then, you know, a couple months later, we get this message, Brain Farm got this message, just like, so uh, Glenn turned himself into the FAA and uh, said that, you know, Clark Fines, you know, basically like pushed him past his comfort zone and he didn't want anything to do with it and tried to blame it all on like our lead guide, which was total bullshit. Wow. And so, you know, and it was like, yeah, and you know, you guys can't use the clip because it's like, you know, people are going to get fined. And, you know, Kurt's like, Kurt's a New Yorker. Like it was all collaborative until like that move, and then Kurt was like, "Fuck you guys! We're now we're for sure using the clip." <laughs> and what it was lame. It was like it ended up, it ended up being classified as a stunt um, because we we're making a film, and you could, you know the FAA rules don't apply to stunts. Ah. So it all it all worked out in the end. But shout out to the legal team that figured yeah, that out. So Clark out. Clark gets fired, <laughs> and we hired him. Oh wow! Yeah, he got fired, and, uh, and we hired him on. And he came on, worked with us, produced, and you know later on, to this day, is actually still producer over at Red Bull, putting on like epic, epic film projects. And good dude. All right, I got. Uh, I'm gonna I'm gonna change gears for a hot second here, get back into some substance of sorts. So I'm thinking about you with all these projects, right? So. Whether it's back rodeoing a giant park jump in like 2002 or kind of spearheading that's it, that's all, or riding a big line in Alaska, these are all extremely uncomfortable endeavors. What's your relationship with getting outside your comfort zone? Um, it's been one of growth. Um, you know, over the years, you come to realize that, you know, you, you learn the most about yourself when you put yourself in uncomfortable situations. Um, you know, the, the, the illusion of, like, static comfort. Um, it's, you know, it's this respite that I think oftentimes can be somewhat suffocating. When you look at like personal growth, um, you know, it takes a lot to get into, you know, places of uncomfort, whether it's social, whether it's, you know, physical, um, but it truly is. It's like, that's when you learn the most about yourself or 
you know, you, you, you take away lessons from like failure. As so many people have, you know, said before me, like failure is the greatest teacher. Like if you have a willingness to like try and fail, um, that's growth, especially if you're willing to, you know, do a bit of a post audit and try to understand like what didn't go right. Um, yeah, I think get yourself into, into uncomfortable places, man. That's, that's where you'll find growth. Now thinking about that, you know, you think about the top, being on top of the cheese wedge. And, and I always think about this analogy, like, obviously, you know, you can do a front three and you're going to be like, I can land that. And I know that'll work. And I know that'll be safe. But the, the greats tend to be like, well, I'm going to do a front 10 double on this instead of a front three. Oftentimes, not always. Some are style guys, whatever, uh, teach their own, you know, but just saying pushing that pushing out of the comfort zone. I, I wonder if oftentimes is is the the drive. Do you feel like you have like an insatiable drive to get the tr- clip that outweighs the risk of falling? Um, I think that over the years, you know, like getting when you get a trick and and I felt this really like early on when you when there was something that was you know you didn't know if you could do it or not um and you wanted to try because of this like you know simple like do I think I can do this do I think I can actually like do this thing that I can I can kind of visualize it I want to progress I want to push myself um when I, when I felt like I landed a trick or <clears throat> wrote a line, like there was this overwhelming just feeling of like I, there's purpose to my life. I don't know how to better say it. And, and I think it was, you know, the understanding of like the feeling that came with like, you know, coming out of those battles where you were trying to do something you know, you, you saw it in your head, you can, you can conceptualize it. I think it goes back to like bringing ideas into reality and the game of like trying to do that with a trick, with whatever, with the, you know, it, like the, it's that game that still like feel like my life has purpose. Even though it's kind of a shallow thing when you, when you apply it to like landing a snowboard trick, but if you take away, like, you know, your global impact as a, you know, as a citizen of Earth and what you're giving, it, it's not about necessarily that. It's about just this, this, this bringing an idea into reality, um, creation. And, and that's the joy that I continue to get out of, like, can I think of something and bring it into reality and make it into something tangible and real? Mm. Now, what you're describing is also like highs, right? So what goes up must come down. So in regards of having these peak life experiences and these clip highs, as we like to call them on this show, of landing these unimaginable maneuvers, I think we have a Patreon we question do. that pertains to maybe low points. That we yes, get. this is from uh, Jeremy Jensen. <laughs> We get to see all the highlights of your snowboarding career over the years in your brilliant and inspiring films. There must be another side to this and major challenges that you've overcome 
along the road. Can you tell us about some of the lowest points? Yeah, man. Um, <clears throat> yeah, I mean, you know, PTSD. Shit's real. Um, you know, people process differently. Everyone processes it a little differently. Um, you know, for some reason, I I haven't I haven't dealt with depression like too much, but I would notice like at the end of a year, like some of those big years, especially being up in AK, when like you're just, you know, your adrenals and you know all of like the chemicals coursing through your body to like prepare it for battle. Um, you know, I would have like several week, you know, hangovers, like coming out of a winter season where it was just like, you know, heavy and like, you know, struggle to like be productive, you know, and I just have to like sit with it and allow it to take its course. Um, you know, I think depression hits people, hits everyone different. And, um, you know, I, I don't really know why, like, you know, maybe it's a, a state of mind. Um, I, I think I know a lot of friends of mine that have dealt with the highs and lows of like, you know, the peak experience to, you know, the, the, the PTSD and, you know, depression that can come, especially with like seasonality. Seasonal, seasonal depression is something that in one way, shape or form, I think everybody's got a little bit of it. Um, it's a spectrum. And you know, I think I dealt with, um, I mean, we're all emotional, energetic beings, right? And I, I dealt with stuff. And I think a lot of it, like, I freaking bottled shit up, right? The classic male thing to do, just go through shit, freaking stuff it down. I mean, I, I lost I lost a couple of really, really close friends um, growing up and, you know, through snowboarding. And I think those kind of this kind of closed me down for a number of years. Like I mentioned my buddy Pat Gilday, like he passed, I was, it was extremely traumatic. And then um, Tristan Pico, like one of the best up and coming like French writers, incredible talent, like a couple major, major breakout film parts in absinthe. The back 180. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, just a rising star, such a nice kid. Like he came out, stayed with us for about a month in Jackson and um, just a super freak accident. We had, we had like the best day running and, you know, rode the village in the morning, snow was incredible, went out in the afternoon, you know, to go sled lap this like home zone that we had. And, um, you know, mini golf stuff that we thought we could manage and he dropped into this little chute and it popped and the, you know, it was a slab that was bigger than I think we thought at the time. Uh, and he just got turned upside down and got brought through some trees and just hit his head on a tree and snapped his neck. Um, wasn't buried. You know, I was doing the lap and I actually blew a belt, was changing a belt, came around the corner, saw the situation and like Gooch is up there doing CPR on him. Um, and there was, there was nothing we could do this instant. And dealing with that, like his parents coming and staying with me, you know, like that was a really heavy moment in life. And uh, 
I think is moments like that where, you know, I was a teenager. I didn't really have people that like to talk it out, you know, really know how to process trauma. And I think that kind of steel, steeled my cage up a bit for freaking a number of years, like emotionally. Um, yeah, took a lot of time to kind of break back into trying to uncover some of like those, those traumas that you hold in physical form in your body that, you know, fester if you don't, if you don't deal with them. Um, so, you know, I think back to like the root of the question, I think that there hasn't really been that healthy, at least like in my era growing up, um, you know, there was no, there was no like conversation about, um, you know, depression and, you know, how people were feeling and, you know, you know, emotional, um, yeah, just brain health. And, and now it's beautiful to see it, you know, becoming something that's more regular. I mean, I think consciousness as a whole on this planet is, is, is increasing and the willingness for, you know, the, the male, the white male to be able to like, um, get into their emotions and feelings, um, I think is a, is a, it's a path, uh, towards improvement. Did you guys have to bring your friend out of the back country? We called search and rescue and they eventually came and, and, um, came and he got hellied out. Yeah, there's no way that you guys didn't get PTSD from that. I mean, that's no. about as heavy as it gets right there. Yeah. It was, it was super sad. Really yeah. unfortunate. Mm-hmm. I also, I think about in regards to that stuff too, it's like, you know, there's, there's also like a weird thing where it can put you in a deep depression. Obviously initially we'll always do that. But then it can turn into, I got to get it for the people that can't. Did you have any of that experience? Yeah. I mean, it, you know, you just take your own, like, attitude, right? You're out with, like, you know, friends of yours, you're doing what you love. And, you know, you put yourself in a place of, like, what, what if something was happening to me? Like, you know, if I were to pass or whatever, it's like, yeah, I would want my friends to continue to create and like do what they love and hopefully take a lesson out of it. Um, but I think through those early like death experiences, you know, and just like I was in Japan when Jeffy passed, Jeffy Anderson, oh, I mean, give that guy a bomb. Hold that guy's, give that guy a horn. Um, you know, you see, you see these, these rhythms of, of death. And I think I, I, uh, I'm actually, as terrible as they, those things were, like I'm, I'm really grateful also for those experiences because, you know, death has taken on a lot different, I think, role in, in my life and outlook than had I not had those experiences. And I think kind of similar to fear, like, you know, if you can change your idea and I think evolve, like what, what death is, um, you know, and unfortunate as it is, like I've, you know, come to look at death through a lot different lens, um, you know, and, and death is, is actually like a really beautiful, beautiful thing because it's what makes it so special. It's what makes life so sacred and, and the gift that we have um, because of death. Like if we were freaking vampires. If it was infinite, none of, nothing would yeah. matter. Yeah. 
Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean... All right, I'm going to uh, segue into a question from Jeff Pensiero that pertains to what we're talking about. Travis, Jeff Pensiero here with a question. Uh, I have known you to seek out holes in rocks, tubes, tunnels, portals, as you call them. And it's made me think, I really want to ask you, what do you think happens when we cease to exist in this earth on this plane? What happens next after this life? Is there an afterlife? Does it all just end? Do we become part of the collective unconscious? I can't wait to hear your answer. And I'm really looking forward to hearing your bomb hole, buddy. All the best. Look forward to talking to you soon. Um, yeah, Jeff Pensiero. Snowboarding is so lucky to have you, my friend. Uh, all right, what do I think happens when you die? Well, um, I guess what I think happens is uh, upon that moment of death, um, there is a very quick and disorienting transition, and you have your you know, higher self and some angels that come and basically take you by the arms and, you know, beyond that disorienting experience, um, there then is the remembrance of, you know, one's divinity and connection to God. Um, I think that there's a several day process that involves, you know, essentially recounting and downloading the existence that you just had. I think, uh, the records of your entirety of life are captured within the crystalline grid and stays on earth. And you go back to your natural state and plan for uh, your next incarnation. Um, I think there was a really important uh, moment in life when this aha realization um, of the fact that I think we choose to come in into our situations. Um, and it was this beautiful aha because, you know, what's one of the most difficult parts of our existence? It's victimhood. It's like, I am a victim of my circumstance because from victimhood comes, um, you know, resentment comes hate comes, um, helplessness. And through that, you know, comes disease. And I think, the beauty of why I, I like to believe in the fact that we choose our situation as soul to come in is it erases victimhood. It then empowers, you know, cause a lot of people come into like broken homes or situations that are just fucked. And I think we come in as, as sometimes we play the part and help others on their life path on their karmic road. Sometimes we come in, um, you know, to, to live out, you know, it's, it's kind of a gamification in a way, um, this experience. And so, uh, I think it's this beautiful realm of, uh, like total responsibility. And I think we choose, we choose our path. Um, that's what I think happens when you die. Okay. You mentioned reincarnation too. Yeah. Elaborate on that, please. Um, well, the vast majority of the planet does believe in reincarnation. And um, I think, in it, you know, in essence, 
you know, the energetic, like true forms of, of, of who we are, um, I believe are, you know, infinite. Um, and I can't grasp with the reality that, that this is all just a, you know, a single, single experience. Come in, do our stuff. It doesn't matter what we do, you know. I don't know. The, the, the purpose of, of, of living kind of try, starts to escape me. And I've had too many experiences um, throughout my career and throughout my life that have, like, you know, shoved in my face that have proved beyond, you know, any doubt that there's a lot more going on. <laughs> so that's, that's what I believe. But I respect any, anyone's belief. Yeah, I love, I love that. The yeah. only weird thing about reincarnation is the population gets bigger and bigger. We're at 8 billion now. Eight billion strong. Eight billion. Just the other day we hit that, I guess. I heard, uh, I was reading somebody that believes in reincarnation. I was reading something they put out, and they they said, what if the bright light we go to is the delivery room? Which is pretty wild. <laughs> just out right into the next. Yeah, I, 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 think there's a re, I think there's a recoup session that goes on. That I don't makes think sense. you're out one in the other. I think maybe time there, is just different, moves there, differently. There's unexplainable things of people that are born that know how to speak a language yeah. that is not native to where they're from. A little kid that, that doesn't the language. That it's unexplainable, yeah. right? So, I mean, there's there's definitely things that point in that direction, right? You know, and it's this it's this like peripheral evidence that um, you know, so many like fundamental beliefs are built upon like the majority of the evidence like points to this or doesn't point to this. But you know, an interesting component, and maybe we'll get into fourth phase uh, at a you know later time. But the scientist that we worked with um, in the fourth phase, he had a really interesting um, take, Dr. Jared Pollock, and his whole premise was like, you need to solve for the outlier <clears throat> to really get to the root of what's going on, because the majority of you know the inner workings of how something fundamentally works, like it can paint a majority of the like proof of concepts but if you don't focus on the outliers you know you you're never going to get the whole story and yeah i mean how many how many books are out there how many like you know components of evidence are like yeah kid will freaking speak some other language or will tell parents straight up like i was in a burning building and yeah that's how i died and uh, you know where does that shit come from yeah there's even one kid i was reading that pointed himself out in old books or something Mm mm-hmm was like this was me and there there's a way to tie it back and prove it or if you ever work with an energy worker they can straight up tell you what you did in the last past life and yeah stuff like that yeah it's interesting stuff and the thing that's cool is like you can believe that i can believe that if i want and people can believe something totally different and that's also totally okay what's yeah, your man. theory on why the population grows then just curious um i think that the more you know we modernize and industrialize like yeah we're at we're at Eight billion said. I mean, I think, you know, I think the Earth can actually can handle responsibly like quite a bit more population. Um, I think, you know, longevity of life, and I, I think when it gets into like those types of questions of like, yeah, but eight billion, like, you know, how many souls are here? Like, you know, what, how's that work? And I think that just goes into this realm of like. You can't even imagine like the back end inner workings. I think it's so hard yeah. to even fathom the perspectives of universal consciousness and how those programs really work because we don't know. I don't know. Yeah. 
I openly admit I don't know shit. Mm-hmm. This is just <laughs> what I think. And isn't that, isn't it Hindus that believe that certain animals can be, eventually become human souls, and if you're evil, you become back, you regress? Yep. Maybe that's part of it. I don't know. I don't believe in that. Yeah, that's but hard. um, yeah, I don't think that you know <coughs> you like karmically then become like a street dog if you yeah. do some shit. I don't know if it's Hindu either. You got to deal with that, but. Um, my understanding of souls and what I believe is um, we're actually one of the only creatures on the planet to have like individual souls and that animals, plants um, have shared soul groups. Ah. And, you know, I mean, we're the only creatures on the planet that come in completely freaking helpless. No memory, no instincts. We have to learn how we do everything. Like uh, every other creature on the planet you know, maybe it gets a little gray when you start to get into, um, you know, dolphins or, mm. you know, large. The Pope two years oceans. ago uh, claimed dogs moved into the soul group level. It's kind of tight. Um, the dolphins. But are yeah, we're the only ones come creepy. in with like, you know, we have to learn everything. You know, everything else, it's like the animals know what they're doing. Instinct and all you know, that. Like they know to be afraid of humans because for the last couple hundred years, like humans have been killing them. <laughs> or vice versa, you know, it, it shared shared wisdom. All right, we're going to take a quick break and talk to you guys about our new sponsor, DB. Yeah, we have a new partner this winter, and they are a travel brand designed in Scandinavia. Built for the journey, DB's products feature the hookup system. And the cool thing about this is you can carry your board bag, your wheeler bag, and your backpack all with one single hand. Yeah, these are some quality bags, buds. They feature ribcage technology, ensuring all your gear is protected. DB is the brand for award-winning snow travel gear. It's backed by some of the best. Sage Kotzenberg, Kevin Backstrom, Estelle Pensiero, and Gimbal God, and many more. If you want to find out more, you can follow DB at DB Journey. That is at D-B-J-O-U-R-N-E-Y. On IG, or if you want to go on their website, head on over to dbjourney.com and sign up for the DB Black Membership. and Be the first to know when their new Sage Cosberg line drops this winter. And the best hooked up luggage ride this winter wins a full Sage Cosberg edition travel collection. So be sure to check them out on Instagram at dbjourney and head on over to their website dbjourney.com. Quality board bags, roller bags, backpacks. Some of the best you can find. All right, this is a good segue to get into fourth phase. Oh, sorry. Before we go there, you guys have done such a good job with your curation of snowboard lore. Like, it's pretty epic walking the walls in the bomb hole. You, you ever get an opportunity to roll through bomb hole? Oh, Office, yeah. it's, it's epic. So Thanks, Trav. I, I brought something. I was like, what's, what's the most uh, <clears throat> rare and, I don't know, commemorative item? Before we leave Artiflight. Ooh, we like items. Oh, shit. We, we like items. A, we we got, like we're items. getting the gift. I don't we're know if you guys gift. ever saw the Art of Flight book. You ever see this thing? Mm-mm. I never saw it. Really? Mm, I don't know. Maybe. Dude. So my, my like, passion while these, while these films were getting edited was to take lead on – I was working on the edit, too. But oh, wait, behind you. Nate Bozong, he gave us that. Dude, Bo's nuts, man. I had some good days with Bozong over the years, man. Um, so I took on the projects of print because I'm a huge fan of print. 
print, photography, art. And so we, uh, we made this. Joel Brinson, Melissa Larson, rest in peace. Um, this was our project. Beautiful. Give dude. it a little. Give it a little open. That thing's incredible, dude. Just, just open the top of that thing. Actually, it might be better for the camera to open it backwards. Backwards? Yeah. No, no. So put it flat. No. The bottom. Yeah, yeah, like that. Oh no, no. Sorry. Put the. Yeah, there's like a flap that opens on oh. the top. Dude, we did Holy the most smokes, the most epic like, collage <laughs> with that thing. Wow, dude. we got to get the art of flight. We got to figure out how to get that on the set, buds. Who uh, who made that? Um, why don't you explain what that is for the listeners? So this is like a this is a full you know like pop up pop out like ten layer collage. You open up the whole thing. It, we had so much fun trying to come up with with this thing. Um, Lithographics Inc. We actually won an award with this book. Uh, this company, Lithographics Inc. out of San Diego. Um, yeah, the, the the art the art piece. This was like we kind of did it through a symbol and um, yeah, we, I think we did like three thousand of those. Everything he does, he does big, <laughs> including the book to go with the movie. And then there's a book underneath too. Yeah, yeah. Oh, the the book's insane, dude. That's incredible. Thank you for the gift. Yeah. Should we do gift for gift, or should I wait, buds? You go gift for gift, I think. Let's maybe go gift for gift. All right. We got you a gift as well. It's going to save it for the end of the show, but while we're doing gifts, let's do gift for gift. <laughs> so we were thinking, we're having Travis on the show. We should give him some type of award of some sort. But a lot of awards, they just aren't the right award. So we came up with what is called the B-Hole Award. Now, I welded this, and B-Hole stands for something. You welded it. Damn. It stands for Bombhole Official Lifetime Excellence Award, the B-Hole Award. <laughs> so we hope we, uh, we want to say thank you to everything you've done for snowboarding, the stewardship of our sport. And, uh, yeah, we got crafty in the garage and welded that thing up. Oh, this thing's incredible. I've, I've, uh, I'm proud to announce that I'm graduating from A-Hole to B-Hole. <laughs> <laughs> I hope that's right next to all the X Games medals. Uh, it's maybe in front of them because it's a little bit more prestigious. And if you look in fine print, it says similar to Nobel Prize at the bottom. So in case you're wondering kind of what it is, it's very similar to a Nobel Prize. This thing's incredible. Thank you. And um, I feel like I've, I've crashed as big or harder than most. So this, this means a lot. Dude, the detail you put on there, too, with the things on the back so you can set it down and Dude, everything. Thank I you. Mean, Come yeah. on. Yeah, weld a little tab to hang it on the wall if you want. Yeah. We're, we're good to go. Man, a mini talent. And so here. it doesn't scratch a table, too, right? Uh, to yeah. Well that's, that's, well, that's actually so it hangs flat. Is uh, what I, gotcha. So it hangs flat. But so also it, so it doesn't scratch. have a weird cockeyed hang on the wall if you hang it's it. It's just incredible detail thank on there. Thank you. You know, we've been spending a lot of time doing the show, and I don't work <laughs> with my hands enough, so it's been fun to You like to take project. that time and... Uh, put it in front of the bomb hole sign there. That'll work. Bozung's weapon. <laughs> put it right, yeah, move Bozung's weapon and put it right there. There we go. We're Bozung's good. knife that doesn't collapse. He just is like. I was just trying to put that in. Did he weld it open? Yeah, he welded yeah. it so you can shank people. All right, Trav. Well, let's get into uh, fourth phase. Uh, great concept. Hydrology cycle. Pretty deep. We were just deep. Let's stay deep. <laughs> Fired up. <laughs> yeah. Um, hydrology piece, man. I. Uh, you know the fourth phase. 
was kind of the first film that I felt like I kind of took control of, of the narrative. Um, like there was a lot of other people uh, like openly invited like in the other films, right? Like Community Project was a, you know, collection of everyone involved, but definitely like Rich Goodwin, Kurt Morgan collaborating on that. And then that's it, that's all. You know, it was collaborative, same with The Art of Flight. Um, but, you know, it was it was Kurt and I, and Kurt was driving a lot of, you know, the 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 narrative. And I think for the fourth phase going into that project, it was like, all right, I, I have to, like, walk this path. And Hydrology, which was set in place, you know, frankly, from, you know, a poem Brian Gucci wrote um, that essentially you know, ended with this process we follow, this cycle we ride. That, you know, for me, it was this, like, conceptual, um, you know, summation of what I loved and how I've kind of lived my life when it comes to, you know, ocean and, you know, loving surfing and, and the, you know, rivers and the mountains and this, this whole cycle where... Um, yeah, being in the winter in the mountains, riding the energy of these storms, they melt out, and it's this giant, beautiful, like reciprocating cycle. And being Jackson Hole, like on the you know Continental Divide, and this like grand view of looking west. And my goal had been always to like get to the Pacific, and especially the South Pacific. With you know, this whole time I'd always been sailing in the summer times, and so. It was going into that movie, and I also wanted to try to make a little more honest film, you know, like the the art of flight. That's it. That's all. Like those things were just like rock and roll, triumphant, you know, ballads. And the fourth phase, we, you know, we didn't want to remake and do like the art of flight too. We wanted to change it up, and we set out to try to make a three, you know, three act story structure film which we had never done. Um, and, you know, it being centered around, you know, part of it was my desire to, like, want to understand better, you know, the, the inner workings and the mechanics of, of the world and the functional components of, of weather and snow and, dude, hydrology is life. Um, and so it was really, it was incredible being able to, you know, have the team that we did and with Red Bull, like pledging to support us on this like huge idea. Um, it was, it was an honor to be able to go in with the level of support we had and try to like tell this hydrological story and try to tell a more transparent and honest, um, story. Mm. Now in that film, there's, there's, uh, some Sailing clips, falconry, uh, falcor. Yeah, exactly. With falcor, I would love you to sell me on sailing and the effects it has on you. For me, <clears throat> what I love so much about going into the backcountry with homies, um, you know, you're out with a group of people. You guys have, you know, worked hard to get there. You have a relationship where, you know. When you go in the mountains, you are wholly responsible. You are at the mercy of your, your own decision-making. There's no one out there to help you. And that, like, 
responsibility, like radical responsibility, um, is what I've come to find is freedom. The definition of freedom is fucking radical, radical self-responsibility and accountability. And, you know, I think I grew up with this, with this idea, you know, that like, it's, it's a great example, like Vegas, like of that being freedom, where it's just like, whoa, nothing matters, sin in it, like, no, you know, <laughs> like, woo, I'm free to do whatever I want, like, you know, nothing matters, da, da, da. Um, but man, it's hollow, like, like, freedom is living a completely radically responsibly life, and so that's what I got out of backcountry riding, and I found that sailing, it was the same thing, it was going out and problem solving and being creative and you know for me a big part of it you know learning it like with my father and then beginning to like bring friends of mine out for experiences that were you couldn't otherwise get that experience um for me that that's what sailing was it was uncomfortable situations and learning through just doing it so you can read books you can take classes you should be prepared don't go into it you know, ignorantly, but the only way to learn something is to go and do it. And I was fascinated by it. And that was the only way I was going to learn how to do it. Hmm. I also think I was thinking about your life too. And, and all these things that you describe put you in a state of extreme presence of being present within the moment where if you're making the wrong decision, there's consequences for your actions and they could be devastating. Uh, but more so the things that you're describing, backcountry snowboarding, sailing, there is no distractions. There is no lack of presence. You're just in it. Are, are you, is that something you, you put a lot of emphasis in on your life is finding presence? Um, yeah, it is. And I mean, don't let me fool you into thinking that like, you know, like I've got it all figured out or, you know, I'm in this like elated fucking existence because, you know, for me, you know, I've had to come to grips with the reality of like, uh, you know, I, I sometimes do it and did for years is like this escapism mechanism. Um, and, you know, it's taken me a long time to kind of come to come to grips with like, what is the purpose of what you're doing? Like, are you running from the responsibility of day-to-day -day life? You running from your un, you know, your un, uncomfortability of like sitting alone with zero stimulation, like at home. You know, because yeah, there's times like I couldn't freaking handle that. I would rather go out into the backcountry for a day in a fucking blizzard than like sit alone in my home without like stimulation of some sort. Um, and so it's taken me, I think, a long time and to try to like retool like the intention of what it, what it was I was doing. Mm -hmm. And I think it goes to sailing too. Like I, you know, like I think the sailing component of it, it was like it forced me to be in this like amazing present state. And I say a couple things in, in the fourth phase that kind of, you know, that talk to that around, you know, going and, and, and doing all that and, and feeling like I'm living the life that I aspire to, but you know, that that's not a through narrative. Like I haven't figured that out. Mm. Right. Like the, the distraction of the freaking 
Instagram, social media, like da, 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 the, the, all the noise that goes on, responsibilities of just living. Like it ain't easy. It's tough. And um, it's like trying to not get to that place through like escape, escape it mm-hmm. um, has been a big, a big part of it. And I think the fourth phase was, was frankly like a, an exploration into this mm-hmm. concept. And I'm really grateful for, you know, having a relationship with Melissa Larson um, through the fourth phase because we really worked a lot on, on narrative, you know, with Justin Taylor Smith who came on as a filmer. We'll talk as an editor. We'll talk more about him later. But, um, you know, she really helped like extract this, this uh, you know, this narrative and, and helped to identify like what that was. And I think through it, like, almost changing the idea of what adventure was. Um, because for so long, it was like, oh, the grass is greener. Like, you know, want to see the world and want to, like, you know, keep running and take on new projects and da-da-da. Yeah. And, and then there became a time where it was like, dude, adventure is actually, if you want to get to the root of it, like, made up this word called inventure that I think is more appropriately defines like what adventure is because in it's an internal experience like mm-hmm. your perception of these new experiences new things you see and um and trying to do it in a less like running from something mm. more I, I love it and i th- when i'm listening you, you talk too i think about the excess of peak life experiences that that you've lived in your life and i as i've gotten older which i absolutely have zero shit figured out but i've been chasing a little bit more balance so when i think about your life of almost an excess of peak life experiences it seems very difficult to maintain balance 100 percent. i mean i mean back to your thing about sailing like you know sell me on sailing it's like like anything in life it's everything <laughs> because i can tell you about you know being anchored off some freaking reef pass in the far, like, you know, out, outer society islands with perfect waves breaking and just, you know, dude, life at its freaking best. Um, but then that also comes with like three weeks in the boatyard, scrubbing the hull, fixing the freaking toilet. And like, it is everything, you know, sailing is, is fixing things that are constantly breaking every day um and i think life's the same way where it's like you gotta take you gotta take it all you can't focus on just the good Mm. all right before we move on from fourth phase is there any uh things you want to cover um yeah i mean look the last thing i'll I'll say about fourth phase was like that's the hardest project i've ever worked on um you know the, the team behind that project and then it you know it going into post um you know, we brought Justin Taylor Smith on, known as Chip, who came on, you know, as like an intern at the beginning of the project. And by the end of that was like one of the key lead editors, um, Rose Core, who is uh, Stephen Sherba's um, wife, uh, who actually edited. Uh, I actually did a series, a video series called Rice Pudding um, that I did with her and, and having her come on and help like lead the post on fourth phase with this other incredible director named Fern. It was just a big project, but it was really, really hard. Um, the post on that was, was really difficult. Um, premier tour. Yeah. I think we did 52 stops around the world. Um, 
It was nuts, but it ended up like a, it ended up a beautiful, you know, transparent film, I think. Um, yeah, it, it was it was a lot, mm-hmm. and uh, came out of that film looking for really wanting to do something like radically different. Didn't didn't plan on doing a film by any means, but um, you know, we basically rolled into the next year. Um, and we did depth perception. And that was like a straight up rebound relationship. Like straight up. Get out of a long tough relationship and then like woo do a couple tricks. A little rebound. Change everything up. And um yeah, Chris Murphy from Helio and Justin Taylor Smith and then we went into that dude hit up Brian Fox, Austin Sweet and Robin Van Jen and man what happens when you put the perfect like trip together and we got to spend Essentially, like two and a half months filming that movie, and that was a super fun movie to make. Awesome! Looked like you guys had a good time, and Sweeten, that was where he was really starting to come into his own too. Must have been fun that year. Yeah, bouncing around. Yeah. Okay, uh, I think maybe the next one we should cover. You know, we breezed over depth perception, but dark, uh, dark matter. You and Elias just seemed like you guys clicked in AK, and it was perfect yin and yang there yeah man dark matter was an incredible trip it was something that was so um opportunistic like i went up i was so psyched to help mark mcmorris and craig uh, mcmorris do this like big ak trip and you know they'd ask for help i helped them set it up and we we had everything to a t plan for like it's good it could be as good as it gets you know back up Trojola mountain lodge had the support of them helping us out we went up and got completely iced out, like 17-day storm. <laughs> it, snowed, it snowed over five meters in the mountains. And we got out one half day in the storm, and I saw, you know, I saw what I'd never seen before was how much freaking snow had fallen. And I left there like, this is such a unique time. I, you know, hit up uh, Tommy Moe, Mike Overcast, who... You know, we should give those guys a horn because um, super helpful in a lot of the projects we do. And they were kind enough to, like, make it work at a, like, mice-infested, like, old cabin that we were able to come back, like, two weeks later up. I called Elias. I was like, Elias, what are you doing? Doesn't matter, dude. Come to Alaska. And, you know, this was kind of a trip that I had done years before called it Truffle Pigs with Chris Rasman. And, um, you know, set up, you know, Chris Rasman, I think is probably one of the best riders on the on planet and knew that if I brought him up to, to this opportunity in Alaska, that, it, you know, it was going to be nuts. We ended up getting completely skunked uh, with, with snow conditions. We put a segment together that was hats off to our resiliency and sticking it out. But, you know, Called Elias because Elias I know was a very responsible decision maker and an incredible free rider, and I felt like bringing Elias on board. Um, you know, I, I didn't have to like worry about his decision making up there. I knew that he was capable and mature enough to like, you know, know what he could get into and you know make make the call if he didn't feel comfortable. And we went up there. <clears throat> Uh, had Sean Aaron on sticks. Sharon's one of the best filmers in the biz. Um, and then 
um, having Christoph Thornson, who, um, yeah, ex-pro snowboarder, amazing filmer, and we just went super skinny crew. Two filmers, two riders, and we proceeded to just execute. More riding than I've ever done. Like, conditions were all time, stable, blower, and we just took advantage of the situation and put that whole film together in, like, two weeks. Turned out awesome. Two weeks. We, sorry to backtrack for a second. I totally forgot, uh, when fourth phase, one thing I really wanted to bring up. You get dragged off of a cliff in an avalanche. Yeah. We t- tell, tell that story and what you learned from it. Um, yeah, so the avalanche in Valdez is where that took place. Um, you know, we were, we were getting ready. It was the end of fourth phase, and we were getting ready to go out to this area called So Far Gone, right? The whole point of the film is, like, trying to get out to this area. Um, and, you know, we'd been heating it up, Victor De La Rue, you know, warming up, getting our legs ready for the trip. And we had been building upon, you know, our momentum. And we had done a lot of things, right? Terrain progression, been working up, working up. And, um, you know, we had like a half a weather day. Uh, it snowed, it snowed a little bit, like dusting at the lodge. That morning we went out and we're riding on the eastern side of the range. It was like two inches of new, you know. Was, yeah, it was unsettled, but it was two inches of light snow. So felt pretty good about it. And then had scouted out a zone we wanted to hit in the evening. Uh, it was across the range. And so after lunch, packed up, went, go set up for this face. And um, it was just looking crystalline, stellar, so beautiful. Um, I think we were, you know, it's just super tuned in. And it was so beautiful that I didn't want to disrupt the slope. I didn't want to slough because the new snow was very sluffy. And um, I wanted to keep it pristine, which, you know, Victor ended up riding a line that had kind of already had some mid-storm sloughs, straight-lined it like a boss. And I had a line that had a secondary exposure, which normally I, I do not fuck with secondary exposure in a line because it's just one of those things where, you know, when I see someone ride over, like, death exposure, like I did that a few times in my career in different places, and I just don't really... It's kind of stupid. I, you know, I don't know. I just, I'm, I'm over it. And there was a small cliff band that, you know, I made the bold decision to ride a line because I felt I had exits. I felt I could get out of anything. And drop in. The thing starts to spider web. You know, back three, I was going to do a back seven. Pulled it back last minute. You know, landed the three and was like, all right, shit's popping. I'm going to exit stage left. And the thing just went way bigger than thought than imagined it could have. And kind of what happened was we were closer to the ocean. And, you know, where we had been, we had seen two inches of snowfall. And then the new spot that we moved to and rushed right into shooting, uh, it had received more like eight, eight to nine inches. Um, and, yeah, I was headed for the exit, pinning it, and I just – in my mind, I didn't have the perfect snapshot. You know, I would have had to like blow over some rocks and I didn't know what was on the backside. And so I hit the brakes, got swept and ended up taking like the, the biggest slam I've ever taken. I got taken over the cliff, probably
probably 120, 140 feet, landed on my side on hard pack, blasted into the air, landed again, and um, yeah, somehow, somehow got as injured as you could get without like getting seriously injured. It was it was heavy. It took uh, took about a month to go and recover from that, and kind of had some pretty incredible breakthrough experiences. I think in the in like the month that that followed that in, that injury and my recovery because I was trying to get back up and finish the project. Um, you know, it it then after that session it proceeded to just snow for like a month in Alaska. And I was down in California dealing with some stuff, um, did about everything you could do to rehabilitate physically, hit a wall in my rehabilitation and, um, ended up reaching out to a girl named Whitney Bell, who uh, worked up at Esalon. Esalon's like a incredible, it's like was started in, I think like the mid late sixties with the human potential movement up in Big Sur, really pretty special place. And I had an eye issue. Like the day before that happened, I tomahawked so hard that I freaking dilated my eye for like a m- two minutes, full dilation. Respectable tomahawk. Yeah, that's a heavy tomahawk. Like your whole pupil. Boing, pupil. So yep. Too much light getting in, is that what that means? Yeah, completely blinded. Came back. It actually kind of happened again, the avalanche. And um, went up and, uh, you know, threw straight up like energy work. Um, uh, you know, kind of cranial sacro work, and I literally was able to like heal my eye, which I think I had a displaced bone, with all these little muscles behind behind your eyeball, and um, yeah, just some I don't know powerful experiences like inter- like you got to heal energetic and physical, and um, and after that I was kind of ready to to go back up try to finish it. Um, we didn't really get the weather window to finish that out properly. But it was, it, yeah, it was heavy. It was super heavy. Definitely a near-death experience there. The sounds you're making, you're, you know, you took in snow, and yeah, luckily you didn't get buried, but you got dragged off a cliff. I mean, it's got to have some PTSD associated with it. It was. I think it was one of the first times that I, like, really worked through that shit, too. Like, a lot of injuries, a lot of small injuries, nothing major, actually, in, in my career. And, you know, you always kind of just get back up. Mm-hmm. dust your shoulder off or deal with it however you're going to deal with it but that was the first time I really took it to that level where you got to ener- energetically freaking work through mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. and that was powerful uh, oh fuck it while we're on it I'd like to lean into that a little bit more and maybe you could get into a little bit of the specifics of the energy healing because th- that's what I'm interested in personally like he- you hearing you talk about that <clears throat> um yeah, I mean, we're, we are multidimensional beings that operate on, you know, energy and light. And we have all these incredible physical systems. Um, but you got you to gotta address all of them. And emotional scarring, you know, is, is a thing. That, I mean, it's one of the great things about doing body work and energy work is work through that shit. You don't work through it, and it, it, again, it festers. It can lead to issues down the road. Um, and... You know, for me, uh, especially with that project, uh, with that time in my life, like, um, you know, I, I, uh, like I said, I, I did as much as I could physically to heal, and I hit a wall, 
couldn't, couldn't get past it. And it wasn't until I started to address the emotional component and, um, you know, that I, that I really had like some pretty incredible outcomes. Um, there's such incredible healers in the world that, you know, are so gifted in very many modalities. And, you know, it's, it's a gift that like everybody has. Some people lean into some muscles. Some people, you know, some people work, work that out. Um, but yeah, I mean, seek help. Like there are incredible people out in the world, like whatever is ailing you. If it's like emotional trauma from like, you know, upbringing to you know, whatever it is, like there are people in the world that can help you. Mm -hmm. Breath, Reiki, all kinds of great. Yeah, there's, there's so many different approaches into it. Um, yeah, I mean, if you want to go down that hole, it's like we, we put so much emphasis on like with training and preparation and like being a healthy person into the physical components of it. Like, yeah, do you work out? Do you eat right? Like, great. But, you know, like I was brought up in a world where like it was the physical tangibles. It's like, what can you prove? What are hard results? Like, like that's how you work and, and level up and be good at whatever it is you're working towards to be good at. But, you know, we all, we all come in. There's these incredible gifts that, that so many people have access to. You know, everything from, <laughs> you know, people that are psychic to people that are, you know, healers. Um, I mean, remote viewing. Like, people have the ability to take their consciousness elsewhere and remote view. There's programs that people work on, government programs that people have worked in. Um, you know, lucid dreaming, awake dreaming, astral projection. Um, I mean, the list goes on of like all of these things that, that, you know, I was never told as a kid that these things were real. I was never, you know, sat down. It was later in life where you start to meet people and have these experiences. I was a real proof guy too. I was like, I didn't believe shit until I see the hard proof. And um, so grateful for all those experiences that have helped inform my you know, current worldview. And they're all just hacks. It's like we take so little advantage of, of our full potential. Like we all have you know, these skills like that we don't work on because it's kind of, you know, foo-foo or it's a little weird or it's, uh, it's unproven. And I think that's kind of the, the beauty of it. Um, I mean, what is like human progression? It's like dude, people are going to start to, you know, have these arsenals of skill sets and tap into these different modalities. And like that's the future progression of humanity. Mm-hmm starting to tap into these extra skill sets that we all all have. Yeah, people will tell you remote viewing's like uh, sci-fi, but it's government-backed program with proof, right? It is sci-fi, yet yeah. it's freaking But it's real. Possible. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, the amount of whatever, people that do incredible shit. Like, take a gymnast, right? Like, what, you know, human potential. Like, what happens when, like, Cirque du Soleil like you see someone like put so much time and effort into like crafting a skill and what they can physically do with their bodies. Um, like if you were to apply just even like 
minimal levels of commitment to like working these additional muscles or queuing into these different like, you know, things that we have um, access to. We don't have to go to Circus Soleil. We got one sitting right here. Yeah, we got the fucking <laughs> real life one. We got Art of Flight guy right here. Well, same deal. Yeah, I, you know, I spent my 10,000 hours, 20,000 hours, like, working on being a great snowboarder. Um, and it's fantastic, you know? It's like mm-hmm. 10,000 to become, you know, well-versed and fluent, proficient, 20,000 to take to the next level, 30,000 to then start to realize you, you actually don't know shit and that... It's so much of it is like the unlearning. Mm-hmm. And for me, like mm-hmm. my furthered education after high school, like it's 10 years of just like trying to break that shit down and, and realize that like my know-it-all worldview at a young age was, was very limited in scope. Um, surrender to the like, the unknowing. Mm-hmm. You gotta retrain the way your freaking brain's wired. Mm-hmm. That's been a hard road. The more you learn, the less you know. I've read that that worldview that they try to get you with in school was designed back in the day to get us all to be factory workers. And it doesn't really work, hold up anymore in today's world, you know? Could be, yeah, that makes sense. I've done some reading on that, I don't know. I mean, there's just fundamental, like, (coughs) whatever. I don't want to, like, bash school and education. There's a lot of good things that come out of that. You learn a lot. Um, They just need to restructure it, right? Well, dude, I mean, we're working on, you know, we're working off a system that's, you know, 150 years old, like it's not modernized, just like our political system. It's like, like the world's changed, probably should like rethink how this works. Because what worked 200 years ago, it's, it's, it's a little slow and a little clunky. Mm-hmm. One thing you were talking about earlier, I kind of just want to highlight talking about the energy and the ne- negative trapped energy in the body. And it's interesting if you think about like a snowboarder, right? We, we have like these just incredibly aggressive crashes and these experiences and they're scary. And, and this might be dramatic, maybe it, but maybe it's not. But some of it's going to like, it's almost similar to going to war in a sense. And, and then I've had people say like, like, you know, comment on our show, like, negative trapped energy that that's kind of bullshit or whatever and thinking about that like you know think about when a prison when when a a a soldier goes to war and maybe they come home and they hear a firecracker and they go into a full-blown panic attack where they can't fucking breathe and they're just they're having gnarly psd what is that 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 is an experience that happened that is stored in your body that is still causing you trauma because it's still in there. And I think the the modalities that you're talking about, essentially, until you go through and you're able to move that energy out. I know we're getting into the weeds, we're getting fucking crunchy here. But <laughs> but uh like that that's like your avalanche, right? Like you gotta take that that PTSD soldier situation and move that energy out, or else you're gonna you might have panic attacks when something triggers you or you know that's just an example but i, I just love the energy the idea of of taking that energy and, and that negative energy moving it out and and those neg- those experiences that are stored and 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 working through them so i don't know i just wanted to I, I think a great analogy that stuck with me is um if you take it into physical form like okay learning about the muscles and how your body works right you know, I take a hit, you freaking punch me super hard in the arm, right? Or whatever it is, I fall hard and I, 
you know, bruise and I get a knot in my muscles. Like what happens? Like your muscle tissue actually goes into this fight or flight mode and, you know, creates this, this tight little bundle, bunch of muscle. And, it, and if you don't address that and work it out, it stays knotted up and then you lose blood flow to that area. And over time, that muscle tissue literally crystallizes. And then you have this like, you know, crystallized, dry, like, you know, piece of shit like in your muscle that will affect your flexibility, it'll affect the efficiency of your muscle, and then that thing's just buried, you know, in in your body. And so that's why, like, rolling out or actually getting some body work and working through the, you know, trauma, um, you know, and these things can fester and create disease later in life, and, you know, that's like the physical form, and that's that's what happens with emotional. Mm. Okay, trick nerd, trick nerd transition here. Resetter. I've been talking about this trick on air, unbeknownst to me that you, you had you had done. No, I'm, I'm segueing into this. Oh, gotcha. This trick that you do in Resetter that I didn't think anybody had done until recently, where you go off of a jump and you do what could be called a cab nine. But what I look at is you do a switch 180 and then you fall into a backside rodeo seven. And I've been like in my head, I've been wanting somebody to do that because I would do it, but I, I'm not going to do it. But I'm just saying in my head, and we I've mentioned it on air, and I'll, you fucking did it. <laughs> did you, is that what you were intending to do? Talk me through that trick. Um, yeah, it's a it's a scary way to spin because you lean into it, and you you kind of, you know, in snowboarding the the way you always don't want to fall, you don't want to just be a little over the bars where you're coming in hot and, you know, that's when you take the biggest whipper. Um, I remember back when I was Dan Adams, a coach, I remember, I remember he was always like, I want to see you like land and go over the bars and splat. I'd rather see you do that than land and butt check. Cause that means you're committed to the trick. Like, I don't want to see butt check crashes. I want to see you land it forward. Um, and so with that trick, um, which I did just watch. Someone just put out a, someone did a, I think a, maybe a seven in that same cork where it's like leaning into it and the cork feels like you're going over the bars. Um, but it comes around. Uh, I don't know. It just different ways of, of, of leaning into tricks. There's still, there's still a lot of variables. Um, you know, how many freaking cab nines have I done? <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Just, Worked out that so day. So how would you describe that trick? Um, easiest way to do it is, uh, like, just catch your toe edge a little bit. It's a, it's a funky – it's almost like toe side front side, you know, toe side cap, whatever, um, where you're just leaning in, leaning into it a little bit. Mm -hmm. And you got to go – well, for me, that trick, you got to go to nine to end the, the cork. Mm -hmm. You don't get to nine, you're gonna land over the bars. Would you describe it as a switch one eighty to back radio seven, or just a cab nine that's off a crazy axis? I uh, is that how you? I would do love it? to. Is that I, how you I do would it in your head? I feel like you're giving me too much credit if yeah. I describe it as like the cab to switch back. There's switch. Or sorry, cab to back road seven, because I see that as like a trick that I maybe didn't quite do, but it's similar. Okay. That's what I saw when I watched it. I yeah, I love it. Um, I guess because then you did a, a cap nine off the heels to kind of just like 
make sure that people knew that there's a difference. There's a difference, <laughs> right? Is that why? Is that your intention? Because, uh, yeah, I think it actually was. It might have been. Fuck, no, I don't even remember. It was first try. Yeah, the first track. Might have been back seven. Sure, it wasn't back seven. First track. Uh, the first track in that landing is the switch. What the cab it was, nine? It was cab back nine. rodeo oh, seven. Right. Yeah. Um, Chris is such a student. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> Yeah, Resetter. It's a great freaking project. All right, we still got some some stuff to cover, so let's maybe move through the... We got a couple projects left here on the old docket, and we're skipping over a ton of stuff. There's, I apologize to our listeners that are like, what the fuck, you didn't talk about these? 28 There's video parts? 28 video parts, so everybody simmer the fuck down, please. <laughs> um, okay, so you did Road Less, uh, a splitboard trip where you were kind of the student, which is cool, um, camping. And then I think we should... I mean, if you want to touch on that, and, and snake milkers. Those are the kind of two left that I have as highlights. Snake milkers. <laughs> yeah. Great name. I mean, look, Roadless, it was the classic, you know, Gooch hit me up about doing a project, and it's like, you don't really have to finish your sentence. Like, sure. <laughs> amount of times he's helped out on projects that we've done. And then, you know, having him and Jeremy together, too, it was, like, such an honor. I mean, for me, that was... You know, when I did uh, Deeper uh, with Jeremy Jones, it was just one of those calls you get where back to the, like, this is going to be different. This is going to be uncomfortable. You know, yes. Say yes. Um, And so, you know, it was a beautiful narrative of uh, that particular trip. And where we went, it blew my mind, the conditions and the terrain and just the experience. It was hard. But it was a, just a beautiful trip, man. Being out hiking in the mountains was, it, it, you know, felt like a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, I thought they did a good job and, with it. And, I, you know, Gooch, Gooch is just such a poet. He really is. He's yeah. a Miyagi vibe. Got that, that yeah. wiseness to him. Yep. And then um, I felt like... There actually was maybe a little bit of similarity, but, um, dude, rolling snake milkers was kind of the, you know, opposite of the spectrum a little bit. Uh, you know, we had just finished the Natty Select in Jackson, and conditions were all time. A bunch of riders were, were hanging around. And the conditions in the high country, in the high elevation, were freaking terrible. Like, full red flag stability. Terrible snow conditions. Um, you know, trigger hair, super dangerous. And, and we drive down the Snake River Canyon, like, every year. Every year we looked across the river, just like, oh, you know, you mind ride stuff. Like, oh, picture riding that. Oh, wouldn't it be cool? Wouldn't it, what if, what if? Never really thinking you're going to do it. And, you know, that was like... 36 hour heads up of just like, ah, I got a raft, you know, but he's like, well, I, I got a raft too. So we just put this trip together with the uh, shrub brothers being loving freaking shrubs. And it was just a fun trip. I, you know, talked everyone into just giving it like two days, just, let's just try, you know, first day was a little rough. We like Got on the river, you know, it's having Lando there too. It's just nonstop comedy. So it was it was super fun with him and the shrubs. You know, the first zone we went to it was like everyone struck out. I think Blake got a big old um I don't know what he did. 
the old slob or indie or something. Um, I like, yeah, everyone fell. I like cleaned the whole face off just to rock. I was like, ah. And then second day, actually got into some good riding. And then from there, it was just like every day. It was like, dude, just give me one more day. Just give me one more day. One more. And turned out to just be such a fun, fun project. And, you know, just made this scrappy film. And, um, you know, later down the road, we, th we like, we put in for film permits. We tried to do everything, like, the right way to, you know, try to work and honor with, like, the Forest Service, you know, protocol. Um, tried to get a permit. Ended up later, after we did the project, got denied a permit. So basically made it into a, you know, totally free film, zero commercialization. <laughs> I basically paid to stream it. Just paid for people to go watch it for free. Snakemilkers.com. It's it's still there, still up. I don't know, just a joy, you know, low elevation, you know, foot powered, and it's the kind of thing where you know we went through that trip, and you know, I think a lot of the stuff over the years that I've done has has, has been kind of in this like uh, you know unobtainium level where it's like yeah we got heli budget we're going to like the best places on the planet to go do this stuff and um you know i think it was a just a reminder for ourselves but also you know the people where it's like dude all you need is all you need is like a crew and a goal and go out and put the time in and it's like all the shit that happens along the way like yeah get some good riding in but the joy of that project was just all the shenanigans in between go just hike up behind the house. Like there's so many places where you can go and ride. Fly off a pillow with a tree stick, shrub sticking out of it. You know, <laughs> why not? Shrub. All right, Travis, there's a major event we have not talked about yet. A snowboarding event. I don't know if you've heard of it. It's called the natural selection. Mm. Mm. Great name. Yeah. Good name. Who came up with that? Um, I actually am proud to say that I came up with that. Name. It was, uh, I don't know. It was right about the same time that I think Darwin died. Darwinian theory got more or less thrown in the trash. So it seemed like that name was kind of free for the free for the grab. Um, and you know, and then whatever we we did that event. It was such an incredible Jackson like experience. Resort was all in with that event, and um, you know, snowboarding world came and had the time of their lives, a um, bunch of great feedback, but it was, it was, you know, so obvious the like the audit that we did afterwards was just how much, how much the, uh, you know, terrain dictates what's possible. And I felt like the early natural selection in Jackson, the terrain didn't allow, there was limitations of what it allowed riders to do. And their, talents and skills and cre creative take on riding a snowboard was not fully supported. And so that's where like we step back and say, hey, we got to rethink how we do this. And, you know, whatever, four, four or five years later, um, looking for venues and, um, you know, hats out to, I think Gabe Langlois, was the was like the guy who recommend we were looking everywhere. He recommended, you know, checking out a particular face up at Baldface, and I didn't really know Jeff Pensiero at the time, but um, you know, we we were I think shooting that's it that's all, 
and you know, we, we were staying at like the Blaylock Mansion at the time, which is this like big, crazy old mansion in Nelson. And um, we were flying and, and just paid visit to Jeff one afternoon on the way back from filming and um, started, got to know him, you know, <clears throat> told him about what we wanted to do and checked out the venue and kind of planted the seeds. And then we continued to <clears throat> collaborate about what later became the supernatural. And I think, I think Kurt Morgan came up with the supernatural name. Um, but you know, that was a beautiful relationship. I think just how much support we got from Jeff and like all the lumberjacks up in BC, it was just a, a really exciting time. You know, it was like a full year getting into that event. Red Bull, you know, came out, pulled out all the stops, like fully supported us in, in that event. And, you know, that was like the next iteration of like what the Jackson Hole, you know, early event that again was a Quicksilver titled event. Bob McKnight supported us on that. Um, and just, you know, the whole team up at Baldface, all, all the guys who, who did, did the work are, you know, Lee Usher, you know, Buff helped out, you know, Demian Whitley. And then, I don't know, I could go on and on naming names, but so many people helped out. And we had an amazing crew. It was funny. I had like a, the, white, the white helmet guy who, you know, is the one who gets laughed. He shows up on, on the set, you know, the foreman. I'm like trying to tell people what to do. And, you know, I had like flagged and designed the whole course. And then we worked with this amazing like team of lumberjacks and arborists to build that thing. And that was like through a whole summer. I think I did six trips up to Nelson that summer. Um, and in the beginning, I didn't know what those guys were capable of. So I was writing directions on flagging tape on each one of these like features. Like, okay, you know, you know, lean to like six feet up right here. Try to go, you know, in between these two trees. Like, and a, a couple of the directions I was, you know, standing there, I'm like, uh, you know, feature, like maybe as high up as you can reach, and, you know. And I came back like two weeks later and there, there was like a feature that was like 20 feet up in the trees. And those guys would just be laughing. There's a couple like OG badass skiers, this guy, uh, Moss. Um, and, you know, those guys are like, oh, someone can do it, hit it, fucking yeah. You know, they were just in to watch people send it. Um, so we had to rebuild a number of features that were just built like way too ridiculous. Um, so, yeah, we did the build, man. We, we you know, Liam Griffin came on. Um, that guy, that guy's done a lot for snowboarding. He was, he was managing the, uh, the full um, Global Open at one point. Was, Burton was doing six events uh, around the world. Um, so I brought, you know, I asked him to come on and manage it, and we did Supernatural, and um, it was a wild time. It's a crazy event. Um, you know, Kurt Morgan was in charge of, of, like, covering it and shooting it. And, you know, it went so well that we ended up doing it the next year. It was supposed to be Supernatural again, and we had to change the name last minute to Ultra Natural, which I hate. Really don't like that name. It's like a, like a tampon commercial or something, or like a ultra light cigarette, like Ultra Natural. Michelob Ultra. Yeah, we got like a cease and desist from like the British Columbia Tourism Board government. It was so silly. We had for a lo- Supernatural. Uh, for Supernatural, because like in like the. 80s 90s like that was like like supernatural british columbia it was like your uh, tagline commercial tagline 
and we were like the Red Bull Supernatural, one word. Um, hired a lawyer right away, and was like, oh yeah, there's no chance this will hold up. We, you know, we'll write them if they want to go to court. Like, there's no chance. And we started down that path, you know, and you know because we had Red Bull, you know, titling it. They were helping us out. They were like. <laughs> you're gonna change the name <laughs> we're not taking legal action against the province here no true it's like damn it all right so so we did the alternatural um you know it was epic and then again learned a lot um but step back right because even at that point it was like the goal was to to bring it into like a tour format um you know the whole like root of of what this event is um comes out of you know, this isn't like my invitational. Like this comes out of talking with people for decades, seeing where snowboarding has gone. Like, you know, taking leads from, you know, like with what Terry was doing with the Arctic Challenge. Like that was super inspirational, what that guy did. Um, and, um, you know, I, I've gotten so much out of snowboarding too. It just seemed like I was in a unique position to try to make this thing happen. And I had a great team of people around me from, um, you know, Cersei Wallace to all of our sponsors who's helped support it. Um, it just seemed like the right thing to do. And, and so we I think we, we, we shot fourth phase, <laughs> took like four years off and then started to build behind the scenes of like what this event was. Um, and through that process, you know, we solidified the stops, which it was going to kick off in Jackson Hole and go to Baldface. And then it's only appropriate, you know, the final up in AK. And you know, it was a massive, massive undertaking. It took years to get there. Um, yeah, started a whole company. You know, we have a great team of people. We have incredible investors that believe in the vision and want to help support snowboarding. And you know, um, hats off to all the people that believe in it. You know, our lead investors, Michael Schwab, Brett Hershey, guys, just really doing it because they believe in the vision of it. Um, and you know, here we are, like. Two years, two years down, and we're just rolling in. You know, just announced a couple of weeks ago, like the the whole season plan for year three, and yeah, it's it's wild, man. It's a, the classic, you know, st startup that takes so much so much time and bandwidth. Um, but you know, over the years, start to learn pattern recognition, um, how to try to do it right. And that's where we're at. It's a it's a beautiful thing, and it's still in its infancy. And I think everyone can see that, you know, we have some wins with that event. But uh, where that event can go, it like truly is limitless. Mm -hmm. Like you know what these events can be, the level of writing that they can support, because we felt like anything short of anything short of having an event of this caliber, um, where riders could literally put down a run that would end a video part. You know, that was the goal. If it wasn't like at that level, then what the hell are we doing? Mm -hmm. Which is a lofty goal. But um, yeah, that's where we're at, man. All right, Travis, I want to take a quick second and commend you for the natural selection and what it's done for snowboarding, the culture, and the competitive side of snowboarding. It's been huge. Uh, it's a breath of fresh air for us viewers, us fans, uh, if you look at, you know, X Games, Olympics, 
people, I'm watching them. I'm a fan. But if you look at, at least in my our, our culture, our bubble, like everybody's getting together to watch the Natty Select. Like it's a full, like, what are you doing? We're all parking it. We're all watching it. We're all excited. Um, so it's it's a great direction, you know, in the world of of 1800s and things like that, which I'm blown away by. I love it. But personally, watching The Natural Selection is just what is it? It's a it's a huge void in the market, uh, and, and the points chase and the whole thing. It, it's it's fucking awesome, dude. It's a great thing for snowboarding. So I want to say thanks for that and what you've done. And uh, I want to know, yeah, what, what's what's going on? I heard I heard that uh, Jackson pulled the plug going into this new year. What, what's what's the plan for the tour this coming winter? Yeah, man. Uh, yeah, unfortunately, we're not going back Jackson. Um, but I think this coming season is like we have probably the best season we're going to have teed up. Um, you know, we made some little announcements, but essentially um, – we're going up. We have a, an amazing new partnership with Revelstoke Mountain Resort. And, like, that place is in the heart of it all. Like, the terrain up there, the snow conditions is epic. And these guys, you know, fully see and believe in, like, the mission and the narrative of what we're trying to build, right? Like, um, so to have them, you know, support us, like, through and through um, is going to be beautiful. So the, the way that it's working this year is we got, you know, we got three stops, right? We have... The qualifiers, which is kind of what Jackson was, um, we're doing that event as a calling it global decentralized duels, and essentially what that means is is it's global, so these head-to-head -head battles can happen anywhere in the world. It's decentralized in the sense that we're going to be working with like writers, film crews, and trying to keep this you know easy and work with the people that are in the trenches doing this. Um, on the daily and you know it being the qualifier so there'll be 24 riders that's how the last two years have been in Jackson come to compete and so with the duels half of the field the returning half from last year so everyone that went to Alaska last year that earned their way onto the tour this year they get the kind of upper hand where they get a call the spot and the time and then all the newly invited riders that are coming on are gonna have to go toe to toe with these riders at their spots. And it's a session, multi-run session, shot, and those duels will come out in a series of, you know, a duel a day in mid-Feb in the lead up to the event up in Revelstoke. And I don't know, I think it's gonna be pretty damn dynamic. Like we kind of beta tested it last year with the duels event that happened at Baldface. Um, it's a cool format. You get to see, you know, this almost kind of more authentic, you know, side of like filming riding where it's just session on some epic terrain. And, um, you know, yeah. And then those 12 who make it through, it's pretty cutthroat. But this is this is the NST. <laughs> it's it's cutthroat. Um, yeah, they'll go and they'll battle it out back in Selkirk Tangier's heli tenure. There's like, you know, five, six options of like incredible venues, some of the best terrain in B.C., um, and then they'll move on up to uh, the Super Finals up in Alaska. We're going to Valdez, fully new zone, new tenure. Um, and we're, we're thinking about going live from AK, which would be amazing. How do you do that? Satellites? Technology. Technology that would is be, there. The AK session last year was frig. Yeah. 
That was insane. And camping out there and the whole yeah, thing. That was so nuts, the freaking glacier camp. This new you, worldwide you big decentralized air jewel, jewel, though, that sounds... My whole February is going to be... I'm going to be sitting in front of TV I said points chase earlier. I got to correct myself. I don't want to say that it's head-to-head. But yeah, sorry. Yeah, Yeah. Dude, that's going to be nuts. Yeah, it it should be epic. I mean, it's it's an interesting, you know, take on how the the tour is running this year. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just, it's been, it's been really, I think, encouraging um, the feedback we've got from everybody with the event. Um, You know, it's still early stages in, in this thing and... I mean, speaking to the people right here, like, like, tune in. Literally, like, we are able to do these events because people are interested in them. People are interested in them and tune in. Like, that's kind of the measuring stick of success. I mean, having all you guys come and support what these guys are doing here with the bomb hole, it's the same deal. Like, without you guys, it's just couple of freaking crunchy dudes talking snowboarding in a room. <laughs> exactly. Well, that's still what it is. Still what it is. <laughs> so there'll be 12 duels then. Yep. Woo! Be 12 head-to-heads. Oh, no. Um, Not 12. No, no, no. Yeah, 12 head-to-heads. 12. 24 riders. Uh, 16 men, 8 women. That's going to be nuts. Yeah. Well, I would never gamble on the natural selection because, but, like, allegedly, I would just never do get, that. Allegedly, it's against the law. It's against the talk. law. Allegedly. But it just seems like a great event for that hypothetically, yes. allegedly, because we would never actually do if, anything like if that. If you were into gambling. I live in Wyoming. You should freaking bet on that <laughs> shit. There should be a whole room in Vegas set up for yeah. that. <laughs> we had the, we should everywhere. fly to Vegas yeah. for the net, the the AK and, and just uh, see what the the spread is on yeah. everything. I'm ready to make some money. Allegedly, I should <laughs> Allegedly. say, for legal purposes. If you gambled. If it is did, a great should. format for that. Yeah. It is. Um, and just a great format for, you know, putting riders in these situations. And, you know, different riders handle it differently. And, you know, there's some, some of the world's best riders that have gone and you know, had shockers mm-hmm. like that, you know, are capable of incredible things. And it's like on that day, it just wasn't happening. And, um, you know, and then there's some people that like look at Jared after last year, man, Jared's a household name, man. Yeah, Mr. Elston freaking <laughs> threw down. He showed up yeah. and stood up and delivered. He's getting fat con <clears throat> Connie's fat contracts in the mail now after that. They're just, just he's in just, the mail. They don't even call slide them across the table. <laughs> and fucking signs them all because of Natty Select. All because of the Nat. That's it. Yeah, man. And, you know, again, like Carter Westfall, our CEO, Liam Griffin, COO, you know, Nicola DeChamps, Nick Coldenhoven, Cersei Wallace, Jeremy Ocletus, um, you know, Laura Bodmer, like all these people just do so much for this event. Um, Staffed up. Okay, let's talk about, so where do you see this thing headed in the future? What's your vision? What do you think it could be? <clears throat> um, I mean, yeah, the fully realized, <clears throat> I mean, we're, look, we're, we're, we're trying to go Premier League. Our goals are nothing short of like Premier League in snowboarding. And then, you know, some of the other, I think, healthy components, because it's about, it's about bringing health to it. And, and, you know, to be frank, like we're still in this position where like a majority of the riders are getting on tour through like invitations. We've got a, a very credible, you know, invitation board um, that I'm proud of that consists of like Pat Bridges, Mary Walsh, um, Ed Lee, um, Liam Griffin, myself, and Matt Barr. And, you know, this, this, independent board you know we try to keep it legit as far as how people get in but you know it is not it is still not fully realized like there should be 
there should be a way to qualify in. Like anybody should be able to get into that tour. And, you know, there's still ways in, but, you know, we're working towards that. It's like we, we're building the top of the pyramid, and it's super beautiful to see, like, what the IFSA and, like, the youth programs and free riding continue to grow, like participation's up, um, you know, and inevitably, like, even, like, with what the Free Ride World Tour's been doing. I mean, close to Nicholas Hale Woods, and, you know, I think hats off to the effort. I mean, he's, like, 20 years in into building the free ride world tour into what it is today. Um, and so, you know, it's, it's, I, th I see a future where, you know, it, it's, it's harmonized, um, where there's coherence between, you know, these levels and it's, it's, it's something to aspire to. And, you know, and the support for the riders and the money, like it, it all has to, uh, it all has to continue to like up level and improve. Um, but, you know, we're working on it because we feel like the, you know, the fully realized version of this is, is something that, you know, that's what riders want to do, want to compete towards. And I think, frankly, snowboarding has been headed in this direction for 50 years, like unknowingly, like mm -hmm. this is what, you know, the, the, the natural cycles of, of progression and like, you know, you could be critical of, of what's going on in like Olympic level riding, but like, I'm not, I'm a fan of everything. Yeah. I got so much respect for, you know, I come from that. Um, but it's tricky to see how things get so hyper-specialized and then there's actually, like, less participation because it's gotten to a point where it's like, yeah, you now have to freaking train, for the most part, you know, like a gymnast, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it, it, it's not exactly what the majority of, like, riders who get into it, you know, are, are thinking of. And so how do we create something that, you know, that has, like, multi-generational health and supports the culture because it's been frankly sad to see the independence of all these amazing events kind of fall by the wayside over the years. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, and brands that have been trying to support, you know, that are having their own struggles, need to work on their core business. And, um, you know, even with the evolution of like, you know, with the U S open. Um, so, I, you know, I look and continue to like openly embrace like, any brands that want to continue to help us make this thing a reality and shout out to, you know, Burton and Quicksilver, um, which really are the only two like main core brands that are going above and beyond helping us, you know, make this thing a reality. Um, you know, so many brands are part of this industry Alliance component we've put together and, you know, I can't even name brands because it'd be unfair. Like so many brands are a part of the industry Alliance and helping get this thing going. Um, but, you know, I think it's like, be the change you want to see in the world. <clears throat> and from me and the whole team at NST, it's like, like, we feel that this thing deserves a spot and is, is relevant. And so let's just freaking do it. And at the end of the day, like, even if we freaking fail, you can't unsee what's been seen. <laughs> and so can't unsee it. You can't. And so, you know, Some I think can't be where it's headed, you know, there's always going to be, you know, bad need. Red Bull, a big supporter? Yeah. Yeah, Red Bull's Red Bull supported us with um, broadcast stuff over the years. Mm. Um, yeah, I think, uh, I think duels, actually, they're going to help, like, lace out the whole duels program. You're going to have to go Red Bull uh, TV for the duels. Um, yeah, I mean, they've just been... I mean, frankly, like there's no other company out there that's 
um, you know, in, in from the, the projects that I touch and work with, um, you know, I've been able to collaborate and motivate um, Red Bull into helping at so many different levels um, with these events and films over the years. Um, so really grateful for the continued support. Incredible. I have some unsolicited advice for if you'd like, to, <laughs> if you're willing to hear it. Unsolicited. I love it. Uh, so, you know, one thing that I'd love to see in there, you know, I'm just throwing this out there. You know, do what you want with it. I love a couple log jams. Give me a couple jibs, ah, you know, I'm like, because that's backcountry jib. Yeah, yeah, you know, get, get a fucking tree that's f- just jamming out of the, mm-hmm. out of the face. And then there's a, there's a landing somewhere down there. And, you know, you know, Bodie did the Miller flip on that thing. That's kind of a jib. So, uh, maybe Mickle hit the rock kind of thing. There's been some jib. But, but I, you know, I'm just a saying an, an easy way for us, us uh, jib dogs to kind of like, you know, maybe somebody goes sideways on it. I don't know. You know? <laughs> I love it. Um, amen. I mean, you know, it's always such a collaborative effort, like <clears throat> building these venues and putting these things together. Um, you know, we, we've tried to, like, shape the venues to the styles of like their, you know, where they're inset in. And we learn a lot from every venue that we've built. Um, jibs, I mean, yeah, it's like one of those things where I think the, the cause we discussed jibs like in the Jackson, like putting a big old donger, big old rainbow log. A rainbow, I was gonna mention that, a rainbow would be so rainbow. sick. Dude, you know, Buds is a fan of the lumber himself. <laughs> a big old rainbow? Go, go like steal it from Vale or something? Don't steal mm-hmm. it. So, you know, respect. Where they you grow. need aspens Where they grow. That. You need some aspens. Yeah, bending aspens. Um, I think one of the reasons we didn't go that direction was, you know, we had like the BC venue where like we went, like there was maybe not a full log slider, but there was very jibbable features yeah, all true. over the place. Mm-hmm. And then going into Jackson and it being an inbounds public terrain, like we wanted to be a value add. Every bit of resource that we put into that, we wanted to second as like an incredible, you know, best place to ride on the whole mountain. You know, we wanted to add something. You know, we wanted to, like any relationship you, you know, uh, embark on, you know, aspire to like leave it better than it was when you found it. Um, and so we went above and beyond trying to make that venue something that is stellar and everything's under snow and just like the, the, you know, the shape of, of how everything came together. Um, cause that, that piece of terrain was a cool piece of terrain, but that piece of terrain before we did work on it was savage, like super sketchy. It didn't flow even like midwinter. You still were like hitting rocks and dead logs and bushes and stuff. And so we cleaned it up quite a bit. Well, I just want to say thanks for what you're doing with Natty Select. Uh, we love it. I know the culture loves it. Uh, we tune in. Everybody that's listening, tune in because it's friggin' awesome. And um, that's really all there is to it. Everybody loves it. So keep doing it. It's pushing the progression, snowboarding, keeping it fun and exciting. Great direction. Um, that being said, we're, we're pretty deep in this thing, so I'm going to keep it moving. Um, you know, I think entrepreneurship's a cool deal for you to talk about because you have your hands in many things aside from just doing maneuvers on the old snowboard um do you know do you want to try to just kind of quickly run through a bunch of your your uh entrepreneurship endeavors <laughs> uh yeah man i mean um you know i i've always been kind of into you know business and the hustle and um i think from 
you know, starting little, you know, mini companies back when I was you know, a teenager. These just like little, whatever, cool hustles that are symbiotic, right? Everyone gets something out of it. Um, and, you know, inevitably you start to learn about business, both with, you know, just my dealings with other companies and then, you know, into like the realm of products. And then you're, uh, you know, a part of like these marketing campaigns and, you know, bigger strategy. And, you know, quite some time ago, um, starting to get in the realm of like, oh, actually like, you know, working as ambassador or taking equity in like a startup company. And, um, you know, I've had the pleasure of probably working with at least 20 startups over the, over the last decade or two. Um, and I don't know, I, I find it something that is really, you know, fulfilling. And, um, you know, I started a company called Assemble, um, that was, you know, built to be the bridge from creator to appreciator. And I started that with, um, this woman, Claire DeGoot and, uh, Mikey Perillo. And I mean, that was, that was a 10 year endeavor where, you know, we wanted to prop up photographers and artists within the space and the culture because there was a desire for, you know, access to their, their art and their craft, but it was this like kind of broken, you know, difficult system. And so, you know, that was like a heavy lift. That was like 10 years of, of working hard, like spending all summer just working on like art and photography and, you know, basically look at it as a, you know, super expensive education <laughs> that I paid for. <laughs> uh, it was a bit of a, uh, like community service at the end of the day. Um, does it have a, I, I, I finally had to shut it down. Um, but man, we work with some amazing people over the years of, of that. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, from that moving on to just working a lot of great companies, you know, I had the, had the pleasure of, of helping support people too, like, you know, probably recklessly at some points, but, um, you know, putting money into endeavors that I, I believed in and you learn so much about it. And I, I felt like one of my talents was, um, like being a connector, like finding what people needed and relationships that could help propel like a dream or a vision or a product into like that next state of, uh, realization. And yeah, it's, it's been a pleasure to be on multiple, you know, several different boards with multiple companies and, <clears throat> you know, influence different things and help people out too. Like, like Alex Yoder with uh, overview coffee. Like that's an incredible endeavor. Like it's a big idea that he's chasing. And if you like coffee, um, I see you guys are on the subscription model. Yeah. Good coffee. We get one a month. Shout out to Yoder and yourself. Thank you. It's good coffee. Yeah. It's amazing coffee. Great cause. And if you're buying coffee, why not support a rat cause? Right cause, um, you know, and then there's like the need for for certain things. Like, um, we literally just what I'm super excited on right now is we just launched this company. I'm a co-founder of uh, called Cindy, and you know, Cindy is a peer-to-peer -peer marketplace to buy, sell, and rent freaking gear. Um, you know, the need is just so obvious and apparent um, to try to pursue a more circular economy. You know, there's like so much waste. And, you know, I, for one, and I think a lot of people have, you know, incredible things that, uh, especially when I look at through the lens of, you know, 
second lifestyle, second life cycles of product. And one of the biggest challenges we have in snowboarding is like the barrier of entry, you know, both in products, being able to find, you know, good secondhand gear for people that are just getting into it, don't have a budget um, to be able to get into it. Cause otherwise it's, you know, you need a lot of gear. It's a freaking gear heavy. Is it, is it uh, snowboard specific or action sports? No, it's straight like anything sport adventure, literally from like wingsuiting to freaking golfing to surfing to foiling to snowboarding. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Cam Zink, legend in the mountain bike world. Fast on a moto, too. Yeah. The guy's, the guy's a G. Love his family um, is in it. And then this guy, uh, Ian DeCarez, who is a G, he's, he's behind it. And the whole dev team is actually in Ukraine. And they've been building this thing for the last like year and a half through the frickin' war. The craziest stories. Ian just spent a week in Ukraine, like basically meeting with the whole team. We frickin' brought them Starlinks, generators, um, and they're just so committed to, to get an insight into like what's really going on in, in Ukraine and how like motivated that country is and the, the level of like, I don't know, pride, national pride that's happening in Ukraine. Like they're unstoppable because they're defending their freaking home. And the Russia's coming in just, hey, a half soldiers or convicts or, you know, more or less put in a position. Like, like where's the motivation? Like, what are we fucking doing here? Um, anyways, that's a whole other story. But um, I don't know. I think it's a beautiful symbiotic platform, right? And that's what I think is beautiful to chase is symbiosis where everybody gets something. And yeah, great way to kind of play your part. And also it's a nice little side hustle and you value in your gear that you invest in have second life. Um, it's inevitable. I mean, it's peer to peer, right? Like Turo, Airbnb, Poshmark. It's, it's, you know, but there's something that needs to be focused on. Mm-hmm. Um, so you build a profile too, like those yeah, as you well? you build a little store. So it's yeah. not like, it's not like Craigslist where it's like, here's my address, come buy the thing. No, not at all. Yeah. You have your little, your little mini store and you know, yeah. there's some like gamification to it and. Um, it's super easy, <laughs> literally like, you know, shoot photos, description of it. And then you post it up, someone buys it. You just get a instant, you know, shipping label in the mail, send it. Um, so, you know, that's a great company like Hana living. It's incredible. Superfood company I've been, been with from the beginning with Jimmy Chin, this guy, Joel Einhorn, um, you know, some wild stories that probably can't even get into, um, due to time here, but. Uh, it's just, it's been a joy to like work with these different companies and learn, man, like put yourself out there and be a part of it. And, um, you know, even if something doesn't work out, it's the experience and what I've learned, um, you know, from it, it's been huge. Is that Cindy.com? Yeah. S C N D Y. Uh, yeah. I mean, you know, work with and invest in brands for different reasons. Um, like, you know, Talego hard seltzer. It's like, Dude, seltzer was hitting year two ago. Still love it, but there was not a quality one. It's all just like shit chemical freaking seltzers. So this company Talego, you know, rolled up and a good, amazing group of like action sports like mine individuals rolled into it. Uh, that's a super fun brand. Um, 
you know, TAE, it's a freaking cold fusion company. Um, it's a fantastic company, Trialf Energies. And, you know, they're basically trying to solve the holy grail of sustainable power, which is cold fusion. And, um, you know, there's probably five or six fusion companies out there, but TAE is the only company that's trying to work with boron. Um, and boron is a non-radioactive, clean, truly clean power material. The rest of them are using uh, highly radioactive isotopes. And um, it's just cool to see the future of technology. I mean, what we see in our world right now, how things power, what's up with batteries, like, you know, give it 20 years, it's going to be radically different. We live in such an incredible time, I think, to be alive. Um, this company, Goodleap, who is one of the largest solar home loan companies that has this uh, incredible program where, you know, they're, they're building solar clean water facilities wow. around the world. Not only power, you know, bring clean power, but also, you know, pump out water for like 70,000 people, clean water. Uh, 70,000 people a day. There's, there's, there's amazing entrepreneurs, entrepreneurs out there that are, you know, changing the world. And frankly, I want to help be a part of it. How do you get involved with companies like that? Um, personal relationships, um, often. You know, some of these companies are like... Like Cold Fusion. That's, you just have a homie that knows what's up with Cold Fusion. <laughs> you know, you know what I think we should set code. up? Here's a, I, I'm listening to all these companies he's yeah. invested in or part of. And I'm thinking, this guy's like Mr. Wonderful yeah. from, uh, what's the show called, uh, where they go pitch your show? Oh, yeah, yeah, the uh, Shark Tank. Shark Tank. <laughs> so I almost think we should do a bomb wall Shark Tank. We get we get T. Ricky over here. People come pitch their brands. You know, he comes, critiques them. <laughs> I'm in. Yeah, and then uh, yeah, we An get our own little shark. version. Yeah. <laughs> Cold Let's, Fusion, I'm down. Let's yeah. go. I mean, you know, e each one of them is unique, but a, a large part of it is just like relationships. Um Asking questions, like uh, wanting to, you know, learn, wanting to, you know, be in proximity of people that are like doing great things and trying to change their world um, in their own right. You know, for me, it's like the relationships, like with, you know, with TAE, um, you know, one of our lead investors is also lead investor in, in TAE. And they came on and they titled the Baldface uh, event last year. And... And, you know, like Goodleap, for example, like the, the CEO founder of that, this guy's Hayes Barnard. He's just a, he's an incredible human being. And it's those types of, pe of people, right, that you want to gravitate and support any way you can. Um, and, yeah, feels good. Cool to support companies you believe in, too. Mm -hmm. I think about, like, the stock market. I got a bunch of money in stocks. I just, like, I don't even really know. Somebody else handles it. But it's, like, they're just companies that I hope will make me money, really. Yeah. But it's, like, these are companies you believe in, which is a totally different deal, which is awesome. Yeah. I mean, you know, they're just good people, whatever. Like, we were pumping this company spot insurance, like, with natural selection. And, like, that is another example of, like, a service that is super benevolent and helpful. Like, yeah, 25 bucks a month to be insured and covered like how many people do you know you know have had to set up gofundme pages because they got hurt and their life radically changed you know in a minute because they weren't fucking insured um unfortunately that's just the nature of our you know health system that's like a major medical scenario like 25 dollars a month and something gnarly happens yep that's sick okay so you, since you have all these entrepreneurial endeavors 
and you've started your own brand. You know, you've done Brain Farm. You know, you got NST. You're just founders of all these brands. You've done, built so many things from the ground floor up. There's a lot of people listening that are, they have a brand in their mind. They're like, I got this thing I've been thinking about starting. And for whatever reason, they maybe aren't starting it. But what advice do you have for those people that are thinking about starting a brand? You know, um, I think that you, I would, I would advise you to take a moment and, and be really realistic and be super critical. Like you got to be the most critical out of anyone about the product or brand that you're bringing into the world. You know, and then you got to look through it um, through the lens of like market fit. Like, is there a need for this? Um, you know, do people do people need this? Is this a radically better way of, of of doing things? Like, you know, like with Cindy, like, is this a paradigm shift of something that is you know inevitable, and this is an easier way to do it? Um, and then beyond that, you know, I think you have to really look into the mirror and you know, going down the startup road, it's not easy. Like you have to be willing to suffer. You have to be willing to, you know, work harder than anyone else around you in that field. And so much of it is about the people and the relationships. And then as you start a company, you know, there's this like cultural, you know, like call it corporate culture that, um, that needs to also be instilled um, because at the end of the day, you know, you're working with fellow humans. Um, and, you know, I, I think part of it as well is like, what's your mentality around it? Are you all in? Are you like, oh, I'm going to try this out and see if it, you know, takes or is like, are you manifesting the shit? Are you like visualizing what it feels like in five years to be, you know, running or, or, you know, providing this service? Like, is there symbiosis? Does everyone that touched this product get something out of it? Um, I don't know. I think there's a lot that you, you go into in, in, in the startup, but, um, um, yeah, it's a, it's an amazing educational tool. Like, even if you fail, even if you fail, like, you know, it's, it's, it's powerful mm -hmm. to go through these you know, cycles of furthered education through experience. Mm -hmm. um, just be realistic, you know, understand the implications of, of what, you know, potential hardships do to your relationships. Um, you know, your family, like the ones close around you, people that you, you know, just make sure that you draw some boundaries. Because, um, you know, you hear too many times about people starting companies and then it just it going south. I mean, I think it's a real deal that like, you know, 10% is probably an overly optimistic number of, you know, new companies that actually like work out. Um, but that's also how incredible, radical paradigm shifting, you know, very disruptive companies or products continue to evolve the world we live in. Because Oftentimes, you know, these big, you know, mega huge corporate companies, they get so big that they don't have the maneuverability or, you know, nimbleness to potentially bring something to market that um, someone and like a core stripped down, you know, lanky team can bring, can bring.
I don't know. I, I love it. I love to see entrepreneurial people follow their passions. All right, buds. I think it's time to talk about one of our sponsors, which is Pub Beer. It's time. You huh? gonna crack some can? I'm gonna crack, dude. Responsibly. Always responsibly. Always. I'm jumping in on this. Oh wow. Ah. Crab's cracking can. That was a good crack, dude. That was a clean crack. Cheers. Now uh, we always say, if you're uh, thinking about drinking one to ninety-five beers and uh, waking up in a ditch responsibly, I should say, what are you gonna choose? Pub beer every time, my friend. All right, I'm going to play the theme music here. Welcome to the Pub Beer Crap Shoot. All right, you got some dice in front of you. Yeah, I love they say Goon Gear on them. Mm-hmm. Shout out to Goon Gear. Oh, whoa, 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 uh-oh, whoa, uh-oh. Down. You know, if Quicksilver doesn't work out, I'd love to see you on Goon Gear, Travis. That was nice. My shooting? Yeah, you shoot. Roll it. <laughs> Woo! What Nine. Niner. Nine. Whew. This is actually a perfect one for Travis. <laughs> Name one thing still on your career oh, bucket wow. list. Baker Bank. Oh, damn. Win oh, or compete? We're talking a win? Win. Win. I, uh, I think I've, I've got like a, I've got a first in at least two qualifiers rolling into finals day. And didn't work out. Any podiums? Um, not top three. I don't think. I think like a fifth or something. That technically is not a podium. There it is because oh, all <laughs> seven to eight people of like pro men get to go up there. Oh, all right, my but bad. no, I'm no wrong. top three. Yeah, it was not podium. Um, yeah, Baker Bank, man. Respect to the Baker Bank. It's uh, the one you're still after, huh? The one that got away, if you will. Yeah. You know, my finals, I, I usually like wad them up. I'm kind of an all or nothing competitor. Like, if you know you're not doing I'm good, either crashing like... and you know, crash and burn or I'm um I'm, yeah. Back <laughs> in the day, that was kind of my, my jam. <laughs> Love it. Buster bail. Ready fire aim, you know? Uh you know, there's one that's a li- there's Ready a bank slalom. There's a bank slalom that's slightly more prestigious than yes, the Baker Bank. There is, isn't and there? And it's called Bombhole Cup. And it's April first and second, Travis. We'd love to have you come uh, compete at Bombhole Cup if your if your psycho schedule uh, allows for it. So I've heard incredible things. Yeah, it's a good time. It's electric. It's a little bit. It's like take the natural selection, but imagine it just like twice as big. Yeah, and that's kind of Bombhole Cup. Twice as much hype. Twice as much hype. Yeah. Okay, uh, where are we here? I guess you know what it's a good time for, buds. Hot takes. Hot takes. It's time for hot takes, <sighs> and he's a hot little potato right now. So, who does the goat have for a goat? That's the question. You know what? I don't even have my hot takes notes. We're going to go oh, off we're the top. Freestyle. All right. First one. A lot of people are curious about who your your MJ or goat greatest of all time, as it pertains to you, both male and female, is. I just uh, it's it's hard to circumvent around Terrier for me because you look at like longevity, like what he did, how dominant he was. And for me, the big thing was like the Arctic Challenge piece. The fact that, you know, that dude put a lot of effort in into trying to make, you know, the next generation. Like he tried really hard to give back. Um, you know, he had a hand to play too with the Ticket to Ride Tour, like TTR, which, which, uh, I mean, that was like the weird like Premier League. That was where snowboarding was headed the Premier League, and then it kind of fell into this weird battle with the uh, IOC, 
you know, lead up to the Olympics and this like ensuing battle that IOC ended up basically outspending core snowboarding and, you know, frankly, just fucking toppled the cards in, you know, the authentic like events in, in, in snowboarding. Um, I think when you look at the like the length and breadth, um, I just I don't know who else, you know, I don't know who else like has the you know, that rounded out, like chalked up, you know, when you put it on paper. Um, I will say that, uh, <clears throat> you know, I, th I think for like being able or being like the best of all time to be able to like film a fucking clip and make something magic out of any like nominal feature, um, you know, I'll throw Nicholas Mueller's name in the hat because that's a guy who like, such a different body type than me, <laughs> opposite. And that's a guy who I always like wish I could like snowboard for a day or two in that like super lightweight, hollowed out bird bone body of his and just, you know, toss a freaking stale fish. If I could just do a stale fish, like, um, I'd love it. He's got more like an and, elf's body, huh? Yeah. So. And female, who you got? Um, <clears throat> I mean, like my goat, I think is Hannah Beeman because I've like seen her personally, like through all the years and like through all that she's done and tried and like her radiant radiance of influence. Um, you know, she's kind of she's kind of mine. Um, you know, Victoria Jalou's freaking early mountain big, you know, big mountain riding, incredible. Like Craig Kelly, like. In, you know, on that same big mountain, yeah, he, like he influenced so much. Um, you know, Terry Dakitas, his name is in the hat, without a doubt. Like she was so dominant, so dominant. You know, her Jana mine. I, I, you know, but for me, yeah, that's that's a personal opinion. So, okay, best style. I mean, Ed Mueller had pretty immaculate style. You know, remembering a couple like chicken wing tricks he did. Um, I mean, some of the new shit though also is bonkers. Most underrated. Uh, most underrated, like I think hands down, Lonnie Cock. Great answer. Like oh, Lonnie Cock was answer. so fucking good, so dominant, incredible. Um, and I don't know why. Like I don't know why he didn't go sky high, man. Like his snowboarding was so. He was like one of the most consistent people. Watching him ride Mammoth Park, mm -hmm. it was like stupid. Like yeah, that, any super park he was at, you'd just be like, Dude. "Big jump god, <laughs> yeah, big jump god, big jump god." And then he also like he also was a G in the backcountry. It's one of those things where it's just like I don't know how that didn't take. Favorite board graphic or best board graphic of all time? Well, you know, you spend so much time working on these projects and knowing the artists that I have, like I'm going to have to sidestep some of the artists that, that have done graphics for me. Um, again, like I think for me, one of the most influential ones was, um, yeah, the, the, the balance, Mikey Perillo balance board, just the way that whole thing came together. Pensiero has like the full, the full like five board, um, spread on it on the boards he's yeah he's a, got the boards themselves wow he's got a lot of a lot of good ones up there okay uh favorite 
snowboard video ever made. I don't know why, but um, yeah, Moss's uh, 1999 for me was like, I don't know. That was the one that just, I don't know what it was about it, but um, that was the film I played the most. I really love Kingpin Chronicles too. Kingpin yeah. Chronicles was so legit. Okay, if you could go heliboarding with three people in the world, mind you, anybody, like it doesn't have to be in the snowboard world, you know, I'm just going to say that for the sake of this. Friends, family, celebrities, doesn't matter. And I don't know how, I, I, I mean, we have, we have a spot for three. I don't know if that's correct. You spend a lot of time in a helicopter. I don't know how it all works, but we, we, <laughs> we were landed on three. Okay. So who are you taking? Um, <clears throat> I'm taking, dude, Eric Risland, Pat Gilday. I'm taking like my, Your you OG, know, my, day like, one. my early squad. Day one homies. Yeah. I don't know. But probably round out with like Kellen Ryman. <laughs> All right. Like, the early homie, because it's like, you know, we went through so much. Like went through so much together. And um I don't know, to be able to like <laughs> today's age, like go out and go heli. Like we never even considered heli skiing mm. back in mm. that day. Young Dolly picked Mike Tyson. Mm-hmm. I'm just gonna say that. Um but those seem like great picks. Yeah, there's a couple other couple other people in our squad, but do you go high backs over the or pants over the high backs, pants under the high backs? I go under, under. Okay, boa or laces? Boa, boa for sure. No question for him. No, it just uh, I don't got time to f- with laces. You got like time for laces, you got his kicker to build. He ain't got time for that. And Kickers just like builds, guys man. got a lot of time. He's a freaking Mister Wonderful over yeah. here. Shark takes though. Dude, the in the exit, portfolios. I just you finish and it's just pop, pop, boom, you're out. It's a pop, pop, boom scenario. It's a good scenario <laughs> when you're out quick. There's nothing worse than you're like tied in and you're like over it. Oh yeah, I remembered another one. This well, is they a... don't break anymore either. Now, yeah, they're good. Yeah, they're you solid. just freaking shear them, put don't. them right back. Okay, you heard it here, folks. Trav rides boa. Okay, last question. Worst trend. What do you got? Mm. I think worst trend is snowboarding is. Um, I don't know, like anything that's like counter progressive. Like anytime you get into the situation where, you know, you got like the the old guard or like old rigid ideas of like how it should be or how it's been done. That's like counter to like new progressive ways that like the youth is like coming up with. Um, I don't know that that just it's like this old mentality where like I grew up within that there's all these people that you know oh, you know change is boa sit in that category uh, what is it in particular you're talking about like people that like yeah, in my day like, we used to hit yeah. big jumps or in my day mm-hmm. like like or, or I need to know like a little bit more of a ref, like a, a reference point to understand because I think I do but um I don't know I think it's like anything that's counter you know, like counter trends that's, you know, that's, that's coming up. I don't know. Maybe that's like too vague. You're looking for like an exact, um, I think I follow you. Maybe like, a writer that refuses to go on Instagram, even though for their brand, it's basically part of your job. I don't know. Is that an example? I don't know. Yeah. I don't know. Maybe not nail that, that example answer, but, um, I don't know. Rigid ideologies. Um, and they won't bend. Yeah. Where it's like, like I don't know, I, I I look to the youth for inspiration, like yeah. through and through. Um, I think, I think that's 
pretty whack. I think the other, uh, or I'll give you a more definitive, uh, you know, shitty trend in snowboarding is um, brands not supporting their riders or like, you know, taking away, say, like pro model equipment or trying to give riders like half percent on their like, you know, pro model equipment. I mean, frankly, I think like the, the, the tightening and the squeeze and like there's so many riders that are incredible out there that, you know, this like, you know, chasing profitability from a lot of brands that are within and on the outside of, of snowboarding and the realization that, that you got to continue to support the riders that set the pace, set the culture and set the future because you want healthy, you want a healthy future. You want to invest in, you know, a business that's going to continue to thrive like support the riders and industry people. Mm. I think that, and you know what else is a whack-ass trend? Like not paying for freaking videos to watch. Like people put videos out, rent, rent that shit, buy that shit, support it. Anything that you like, vote for it with your dollar. Versus it's percent really a thing? Yeah, I've heard it. I've, I've heard people getting offered okay. half percents and shit. Okay, inversely, because that's kind of, if we're pointing out what's wrong, I think it's good to kind of flip it on its head and, you know, point out what's right and maybe what do you think we need to do? Because you are a, a steward of our sport, right? Of the direction things need to be, be heading. You are, you see the playing field from a 3,000 foot view. Where do you think as a culture, as a sport, as a community, as all, all these brands, uh, as an ecosystem, what direction do you think we need to be heading? I think it, it needs to continue down the path of, you know, trying to make it as accepting and, you know, trying to lower the barrier of entry into, into snowboarding, into, you know, participation. Like, it's, it's beautiful. Like, you know, it's not the counterculture that I grew up in. Like, we're, like, multi-generational at this point. You know, you got like literally grandparents snowboarding with their grandchildren. And I think that, you know, there's a beautiful thing that comes with it. And it's like elevated the conversation, but continuing down the path of like, you know, trying to help bring education, um, you know, and awareness to like the connectivity that, that, that snowboarding and going into the mountains, you know, with friends and families and going to you know, have real experiences together, um, you know, can provide. And I think that, you know, continuing to <clears throat> pool resources and pool influence and try to continue to support programs, you know, that, that get more people to the mountains, you know, whether it's, uh, you know, whether it's trying to, you know, create like discount, you know, discount codes for groups that are bringing, you know, people to the mountains. I think especially resorts in a lot of these communities need to do a better job to make sure that um, residents of their general community, you know, can get some sort of realistic access to these resorts, um, whether it's through the schools, which is probably the best way, um, just, just, helping provide access and 
you know, going this like hyper exclusive route um, with resorts, it's just not the, it's not the right direction. Um, and there are a lot of groups doing it. I mean, Burns Chill Program, like what Stoke Mentoring was doing all these years. I mean, in Jackson, we've got Carving the Future. Um, there's a lot of great grassroots organizations that are helping, um, you know, get people of, of all different means, like more access to come partake. All right, Travis, we have uh, another Patreon question for you. This is from uh, Andrew C., and he says, you become a father recently. Has your approach to going huge and hitting gnarly lines changed? Andrew C., appreciate it. <laughs> um, dude, having a, you know, having, a, having a child, bringing and shepherding a new life into this world, um, yeah, it, 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 does, it does change it. Um, it, it changes the reality of, you know, you got to be more calculated with your decisions. Like, um, absolutely. It changes everything. And, you know, we're like 20 months in and, you know, my beautiful partner, Brooke, Brooke Castle and, um, our fantastic son, Jupiter, he, uh, I don't know, seeing him evolve, you know, it's it's such an incredible life-changing experience. <laughs> Whatever you've heard, so many parents probably say, you know, such words, but uh, I think that, you know, this new responsibility and this new, um, you know, component of hoping to be here and to support and provide space for this incredible, you know, person to figure out what he or she is supposed to do in this world and support it, accepting. Uh, also being decisive in making sure that, you know, provide. It, it's a learning experience, right? And I'm thrilled about parenthood because it's the first time in my life that I, I'm, I'm not number one. <laughs> um, so, yeah, I, I, lessons in humility. Let's go. Jupiter. Dope, Great man. name. I hear a lot of people when they have kids say, you think everything matters, and then your life's a certain way, and when you have kids, all that goes out the window. And I feel like you might be one of the people that could put that into words. I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, it's, a, it's a collaboration, inevitably, with Brooke, with Jupiter, too. And it's like, you know, I'm not necessarily changing my life. For him, it's, it's more like, all right, Jupe. You're on the program. Let's go. <laughs> and, um, you know, the, the beauty of this, like, you know, generational wisdom and the way that this thing, you know, works, I, uh, I want to do a better job than, than my parents did. And I feel like my parents did a, a pretty good job. They tried hard. You know, a lot of respect for my parents. And, um, you know, but times change. And... Consciousness shifts, um, and I'm just thrilled to go through this experience. I feel like I'm going to get as much out of it as, as he will, hopefully. Unbelievable. Stoked your, uh, your dad, and you're, you guys are raising a rad kid, and I'm stoked to see how Jupiter turns out. I mean, Jeep. that'll be cool, man. Like, you, you, you uh, going to push him to be on the board, or what, what's the vibe? It, like, you think he's going to be goofy? You think he's going to have a good back seven? Like, how's his, you know? You know, I, 
Maybe I, he'll be a jibber. I think he's going to be I goofy. Hope, I hope he's a jibber. Me too. I hope Which, he's a street dog. <laughs> real quick, if we could address the word goofy. Um, you know, I, I, I feel like uh, I had a nice long conversation with uh, Micklebang this winter. Changed my perspective. And, you know, he said that uh, he had a good conversation with, uh, with Mikey. Um, and, you know, Mikey said it. It's like goofy's gone. It's, it's now called pimp style. <laughs> And Is that so, Mikey Renz? Yeah. <laughs> Pimp style. <laughs> I haven't heard that, but I like it a lot. And so, yeah, I think Jupe's going to be Jupe's going to be riding Pimp style. <laughs> okay, it's official change, official name change. All right, we're gonna talk. Uh, we're gonna talk setups here. I know you're a tech nerd. Uh, we always kind of ask our guests what generally their daily driver is and bindings, and walk us through your setup and how you set it up. <clears throat> Uh, yeah, you know, I generally speaking, you know, I'm rolling like 18, negative six, <clears throat> between 23 and a half and 22 and a half width. Um, I, I shift a lot. Um, I don't change too much, but depending on the day, depending on the conditions and snow depth, what I'm doing, riding park, free riding in AK, um, I'm always kind of sh- subtly shifting. And you know, I've, I've built this quiver with, excuse me, that pub beer's hitting. Um, I've, I've built this quiver with LibTech over the years that's been, you know, a joy to, like, continue to hammer down, like, nuances. Can it be better? It can be better. It can be better. It can be better. And, um, you know, I'm so thrilled to, like, the, the board line that we have. And, you know, like, uh, riding here tomorrow, right? Um, you know, probably take a 157 T-Rice Pro, just go carve around, get my jib on, and, you know, fun little park, you know, resort shredder. Um, but generally speaking, I, I spend a majority of my winter, especially when I'm doing NST events and doing backcountry stuff with, you know, the Orca, which is an incredible directional board. Um, and then the Golden Orca is, like, the challenge of trying to design a board that works and excels going both ways in soft snow that rides like the Orca. It's kind of this impossible time. How do you take like a directional board and try to get the same feeling, but then have a tail on it that is, feels like a nose on any other normal board. And I feel like after many years, we kind of finally hit that. And, um, so the, the the gold Norca is what I you know competed on last year. Uh, it's what I'll be probably riding competition this winter. Although we got a new board, a new upgrade of that board, which is crazy tech that um, that'll be dropping. Basically, we've got the Orca, which um, beautiful board. You know, proceeds of that go to the Orca Conservancy. I think we've raised almost hundred thousand dollars for them. Um, beautiful program that they have running. Uh, we have the Apex Orca which is like the first, I think, the first truly damp carbon board in snowboarding. Um, and we've applied that tech to the Gold Norco, which we'll, we'll probably be rolling that out midwinter. Probably shouldn't be talking about it, but we're really What's the board behind it. you? Uh, this is the Gold Norco. It is. Okay, so yep. I was thinking. Yep. Gold Norco, graphics by none other than Andrew Schultz. Incredible freaking artist. Amazing skater. Um, and... Yeah, man, that board lines, love it, literally. 
I, I spend a lot of time with with the Lib crew. You know, shout out to Postulus and Stephen Cobb. Um, you know, crazy mastermind Mike Olson. You know, who inevitably is like the the, the mad scientist there. Um, they're just they're the Northwest family, and I love it. Like the whole Cummins team. You know, that family is amazing. Um, Barrett. I don't know, Tim Zim, whatever. They're, they're family at this point. So, and then uh, bindings, what you rocking? Uh, yeah, Union. I mean, I've been working with Union for, you know, coming up on almost a decade. And uh, the Falcor binding that we, you know, that we made years ago, it, it's still, you know, so incredible. It's just, it's a great free ride binding, super light. Like this right here is the Falcor. And what I really love about Union is that they continue to invest so heavily into the R&D, um, you know, because I'm working with them on, you know, long, long lead projects, right? So we're working on stuff that's like two years out. And, you know, this binding, love it, incredible. This is what I compete and ride on all year, but the stuff that's in the freaking hopper. <laughs> Dennis Hopper? Oh my god. The Dennis Hoppers. Is that a, uh, good a never ending story reference? Falcor? Yeah. So basically, you know, Falcor was the luck dragon that was, you know, constantly saving Atreyu, the main character from the superstorm, uh, you know, eating up their world, which was created by imagination and dreams. And so Falcor, our boat, was, you know, gonna get us through some superstorms, save us. Um and yeah. You know, to Let's be falcored is actually an urban dictionary, and that's to be taken somewhere magically. Really? Mm-hmm. To be falcored? To be falcored. I feel like we've been falcored on this conversation a yeah. little bit, buds. I love it. We just went yeah. through a little falconry, you could say. Yeah. yeah, if you're ever looking for like a good pickup line at the bar, you can be like, baby, I'm going to falcore you. I'm going to take you somewhere magically. <laughs> and if she's seen that movie, she's going to be down. Yeah. Chances are she's going to think you're a complete weirdo. Yeah. And then, uh, you know, and then the last piece is like I, I've worked with Quicksilver for freaking, you know, again a decade. I take I take the like collaboration with product so seriously, and um, the the product that we've developed and fine tuned, like the three layer stuff, and um, you know, we've been first to market with a number of things that, you know, from like full you know full rimless vision with like the Hubble goggle to we actually had the first airbag pack um, collaboration with ABS. Um, and again, working with a great team, Todd Richards, respect, acting as interim new, uh, team manager yeah, at the moment. So good. <laughs> so good. The original TR. Mm-hmm. Um, we just got a great crew. Austin Sweet and uh, we got Red Gerard on the on the team now. He's a hitter. Fox and I don't know. Robin. Red's on the team. Yeah, Reggie's yep. killing it. Okay. Uh, one thing we got, we're talking quicksilver. There's something we got to address here. We got to talk about the kits over the years, man. We've we've seen some we've seen some fits. We've seen some American flags. We've seen some all over like print, which I'm not like. It's like I don't even know what the hell's on there, but it's wild. <laughs> Seems like you've gotten pretty exploratory with your design of the quicksilver outerwear over the years. Yeah, for better or for worse, you know they offered some uh, some some creative freedoms, which. At time, for better or for worse, um, you know, I don't know. We it, it, it goes through trends. Like there was a time where you know I was wanting some like really loud shit, and it was like Perillo, like let's paint up some freaking crazy shit, or like the very first outerwear 
program that I got to do with them. Um, you know, they're like, yeah, we're, you know, first outerwear collab. I got to like work on outerwear. So I went and I storyboarded this like entire, like, you know, architectural, modern architectural meets like King Tut Egyptian. And I freaking came up with this like Egyptian kit, dude. It had the freaking Egyptian, you know, Pharaoh stripes. And, you know, funny enough, we actually won awards that year for that outerwear. It was like the most sustainable, eco-friendly outerwear like on the market. And that was like 15 years ago or something. Um, but yeah, there was some there was some loud shit and some bold decisions. Um, and sometimes, you know, filming, you know, there's a time and a place for some freaking loud, loud shit. Now, does that necessarily translate to the uh, general consumer? Not always. <laughs> but Generally, kinda, black does. But yeah, keep yeah. But we, not you can't just have every pro model line be black though. I mean, for I, sales. I've really enjoyed chasing this whole you know line where it's like. I don't want to be. I don't want stuff to be liked. I want it to be either hated or loved. Mm. And there was like there was a small group of people that some of those pieces they freaking loved them. Some people hated it. Um, I think it's a better place to be than like somewhere in that kind of vanilla sandwich in between. <laughs> Love that take. I bet there's some kid out there right now rocking the Pharaoh the tomorrow. He's getting all ready. <laughs> the king you know cuts I mean? He's laying out the Pharaoh right now for tomorrow. Yeah, yeah, we had some fun kits over the years. <laughs> like the Brain Farm kits for Art of Flight, straight mm -hmm. up. We designed this like snow camo with like feather arms and shit. And they literally blended in. Like <laughs> that it's a shot, and there's like five or six Brain Farm members, and I think like Scotty Lego standing there. And like all you see is Scotty Lego. <laughs> you don't even see anyone in. else. And that was the whole idea. We had so many people working on that project that it's like, uh, Kind of need you guys to blend in a little That's bit. so sick. <laughs> Gary running cam number three to not be popping in the background <laughs> of the shot here. Uh, awesome. Gary, lose the fluorescent beanie. <laughs> yeah, but, you know, Quickie helped us out with that. And uh, for me, it's like, I don't know. I've been with that brand for so long and, and the mountain and the wave, baby. I mean, like, that's that's like the that's the, that's the hydro cycle. You get some eyeballs over the mountain. Is that what's going on on your board? Um. <laughs> Yeah, there's, there's uh well, I actually turned it into that. There's there's bubbles, oh, gotcha. bubbles, and I I kind of co. It almost co looks like Cookie bubbles. Monster or something. Yeah, that's sick. <laughs> All right, so just what couple last things here. Uh, you know, I think it's interesting. I don't know if people know this, but you go to Hawaii before the season, and what do you do there to get ready for for the winter? I just get pummeled by big waves. <laughs> <laughs> Big waves. Just slightly survivable. Mm. Um, no, I've, I've been going over there for last, I don't know, five years. And um, it's just a, a really, I don't know, healthy atmosphere mm -hmm. being over, you know, the, the, the ocean is therapeutic. Um, you know, it, there's something, I think, with the ocean and with surfing for me personally that's like, you know, snowboarding, you kind of, your body goes into this like, you know, internal rotation over time. You know, you kind of get hunched and these things come in and like surfing is literally the opposite of that. So it's this really like beautiful therapy. And then I go and I, I train with some of the big wave surfers over there at this place called Deep to Peak. Um, Samantha Campbell runs this place and she just runs an incredible program that I, I really appreciate. Amazing, you know, body workers and um, great group of people. And um, yeah, like Paige Alms. 
Ian Walsh, Guy Lenny sometimes. And, you know, it's nice to be with a, with a group of like super devout, um, masters of their craft that take it really serious. Um, I don't know, it's just a healthy atmosphere. Plus if you can roll into winter with a, with a tan in six months, deep, deep, dark, like you're ahead of the game. <laughs> pro tip. Pro, pro tip. tip. All right. Uh, I, I got one more question I'm going to ask, but before I do that, we always like to throw out thank yous. Do you want to throw any thank yous out? So many. Um, I mean, first thank you for sure goes out to the amazing, amazing mother of my son, Brooke. All I can tell you, she makes a really good cheddar biscuit. Yeah, she does. Thank you. I would like to thank her <laughs> yeah, as well for that you. cheddar biscuit. <laughs> thank you. Um, and then, you know, beyond that, Cersei Wallace, for sure, who's been with me through this whole thing. She's been producer on all these projects. And, um, you know, I think she started because she wanted to help her friends from from getting screwed over with, like, contract negotiations. And, um, yeah, she's she's done a lot, so much. Um, you know, beyond that, like, all of the all of the collaborators, like every single one of these projects we've discussed, like there's a freaking team of people and we're all collaborating and working on it together. Um, and I think at the end of the day, like you want to achieve anything in life, like, you know, you need a, you need a team, you need, you need a group of people to like rally around. And, and for that, it's been, you know, been critically important. My, you know, sponsors across the board who support me, make it possible for me to do what I do. Um, every one of them, love you guys. Um, Natural Selection, you know, all the people that put time and effort, our investors, the brands, especially the brands, you know, that believe in what we're doing. Um, you know, our host partners. I mean, it's just, uh, you know, a gravy spray, freaking gratitude all day long. Um, it's almost too many people to thank, which is a shitty thing to say, because every one of them deserves some recognition. Um, you know who you are. You know who you are. That's all I got to say. And I love you. Gravy spray. Okay, last question. You are a human who has accomplished great things. You've reached heights that are unattainable to almost everybody. Uh, and I want to ask, if you could go back in time and give advice to like an 18-year-old self that's a little lost hard-hitting question i know what would you tell your you know maybe maybe 15 year old self or you know person in that hard spot trying to figure out what to do you know <clears throat> there's two parts of it right because i wouldn't be the person i am here today had i not done everything the way i did it um however you know, I would probably try to give some words of advice within, you know, just um, toning down, I think, the level of, like, you know, alcohol and how hard you went in the paint, like, partying. Um, you know, I, uh, I was, like, swept up in snowboarding culture, and, like, the party was real still is but um i think that i'm i'm pretty lucky to have made it somewhat unscathed through like all those years of of sinning it and like going straight blackout like you know of all the dangerous shit that i've done i think like you know sending it 
and you know partying freaking just drinking too much drinking hard alcohol and going blackout like i'm so lucky and grateful that i like made it through it and didn't kill myself or freaking kill someone else um and it is it's crazy how how derailed you know substances can can uh can go to people um I think that would be the main thing, man, is just, dude, you know, body is a temple. And we need motherfuckers living longer lives. Like, we want to up-level the world we live in. Like, we need more wisdom. How do you get more wisdom? Live longer. Wisdom comes from experience. Um, you know, health and longevity is is something that, you know, you start to get older and you start to, you know, you don't take your health for granted. Um, and there's too many people that have had, you know, terrible accidents while under the influence or just taking it too deep. Like, whatever, have a good time. Like, it's a beautiful life we get to live. But when you take it into those, like, extreme levels, um, yeah, it's, it's super sad and unfortunate when, when people get taken down by freaking senseless freaking bullshit and I think you know for me you learn later in life that like you can get to those same places without the substances um again where these like you know fleshy pods of such incredible potential that you know me growing up and you know frankly I'm I'm super grateful that a lot of like the forefathers of of snowboarding you know just turned out to be complete victims of substance abuse because I was able to also like, uh, you know, acknowledge that, you know, heroes that I had built up, people that I looked up to, and then, you know, seeing those same people, like, struggle, not that I'm not that I'm celebrating it, but being able to learn from that and be like, that's not who I want to be. Like, I don't want to become some freaking washed up, like, victim of, you know, losing control to to substances. So I would probably go on some tangent about that to my younger self. Younger self doesn't like to hear, listen to that type <laughs> yeah. of stuff, though. I know, I know, but younger I feel like there's a loving way, <laughs> you know, Maybe a loving if, way if he, to say if it. If younger self actually knew it was you coming back from the future to tell him, he might listen. That's that's why I <laughs> that's why I go that route. All right, Travis, I think we did it. I think we did it. It's been a beautiful banter journey with you today. I mean, thank you guys. It's an honor to be in here. I really appreciate your craft. And again, you guys put so much effort into this. And, you know, it's the uh, start of the season. It's going to be a beautiful, glorious year. And I, I just I hope that you guys get to go out and just saturate your umwelt. In Definition of umwelt? Yeah. Uh, umwelt? Umwelt's, uh, umwelt's a German word that um, means like your entire sensory array, your entire experience, like how you're able to, um, you know, process reality. So it's like your smell, taste, touch, All even it. intuition. It's everything. It's this whole, your umwelt is like how you experience the world. Umwelt. Okay, so saturating umwelt. umwelt. Yeah, and so saturate umwelt. your umwelt and, and, you know, this the beauty of, um, of the winter. Um, yeah, you need... Sorry, we're on the umwelt. We're still getting tangential here, but um, 
there's a book that came out. It's called An Immense World. Highly recommend it. Um, talks about essentially that. It's about the umwelts of different animals and different creatures around the world. And it freaking takes you into this like quantum What's reality. What's the name again? I think it's called An Immense World. Nice. Great, great audible book. We'll put okay. it in the show notes. Oh, okay, I'm going to derail again, even though we're trying to wrap it up. I'm derailing <laughs> because we got a great mind here who is a voracious reader. He's obviously a great mind. Uh, one book, all of our listeners, if you guys made it this far, we're fucking seven hours in. One book you could recommend. What is it? Anything Joe Dispenza. Um, power, power versus Force. That's a freaking incredible book. Power versus Force. Um, is it tough reading on the boat with the waves? We get used to it. You uh, you get used to it, but when you're like real motion in the ocean out on the high seas, blue water sailing, um, yeah, there's the motion sickness is real, but there's a lot of in between times. It's a great place for reading books. I was just thinking you must be on that boat just devouring books. It's a great place to read. I'm I'm kind of more audible, like listening to them, like these days, you know, traveling, driving. Yeah. Okay. All right, Trap. We did it. I'm going to wrap this thing up. I just want to say thank you so much for coming on the show. Everything you've done for our culture, for snowboarding, uh, we really appreciate you. Uh, and about the time this episode comes out, it's going to be just about holiday season. So we hope you guys have a great, happy holidays with your family. You're able to enjoy that and enjoy some snowboarding. And we want to say thank you to all of our sponsors, all of our Patreon members, all of our listeners. We love you guys. And that's it. Over and out from the bomb hole.